Hello, TBU listeners. Josh here. Usually Stella does these Comic-Con diaries, and usually they're in San Diego during the summer. What gives? Two things brought this episode about. The first one was that after years of waffling, I finally decided to attend New York Comic-Con. The second thing was Stella challenging me to do my own Comic-Con audio diary after me teasing her about the length of hers for many, many years. I've been attending San Diego Comic-Con since 2010. Back then, uh, Dustin used to go. Apple went uh, with Dustin and I uh, in 2010. That was back when the TVU site had like less than five or six members and Apple was still a big part of it. Since then, many people have joined me for my San Diego adventures. John Wilson, Zach Joyner, Eddie and Kristen D'Angelini, TBU's intern Ben, Jeffrey Taylor, Kevin Cushing even uh, joined us for dinner and everyone inside the convention with us, unfortunately. <sighs> But I've mostly been joined at the hip with Stella and Donovan, as people who listen to our San Diego episodes know. We've shared assignments, travel plans, and hotels, but not necessarily rooms for gender reasons, every year since 2011. For New York Comic Con, I rode solo. Don't get me wrong, I've done many conventions without Donovan and Stella, but always smaller potato stuff. In fact, I just did Dragon Con a month earlier, and while that's a large convention... It's not to the scope, panel-wise and press assignment-wise, that San Diego and New York Comic-Con were. I've done Star Wars celebrations, Walker Stalker cons, you know, stuff like that here and there. But the big-time stuff, I've always had Donovan and Stella by my side. So being by myself was very surreal, especially as I was doing some of the same rituals, like Gary Mariano press rooms and stuff that we always share. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. Lots of press junkets, interviews, and panels here. If you want to know what you're getting into before you listen, thanks for the spoiler. Here they are. Um, Thursday's audio will have talk about Batman Ninja. Uh, there's lots of uh, translation and audio stuff from the panel, so I'm not going to put that full panel on here. because that uh, And there wasn't a press thing because a lot of the people involved in that didn't speak english but i'll talk about that in the thursday section and there'll be the dc original movies press junkets friday's audio will have interviews with freddie williams and james tynion on batman teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 then tynion solo talking about detective comics and then tom king talking about batman then the press junket for gotham by gaslight Saturday, we'll have audio of the DC Comics Batman panel, which was uh, interesting. I live-streamed that on Twitter. Sunday, we'll have the Batman vs. Two-Face press junket. Brief Gotham talk, because um, even though I did the press junket in the panel, I want to save some of that for the Gotham Chronicle. I gotta, you know, I can't give away the whole show over here, because then Gotham Chronicle won't get any ratings. And we'll finish it off with the Batman the Animated Series press junket. So, uh, as you can hear, not the MyBrid or the avalanche of stuff that we have in San Diego. While this was busy and the structure was similar to San Diego, I was relieved to see that this wasn't as crammed as San Diego was. But anyway, in the style of Stella, let's introduce each day with a song. City. It's a big old battle, tough old town, it's true. 
begins in New York City. Right away you're making time and making friends. No one cares where you were yesterday. If they pick you out, you're on your way to a once upon a time that never ends. So all of Thursday. The first thing that I so Thursday. The thing I find most different about New York City is their mass transit system. Every time I visit other places like Atlanta or San Diego, Charlottesville, I either rent a car, I take an Uber to where I have to go and stay around the hotel or whatever. With New York City, the mass transit system is so vast and reliable that it completely changes the identity of the city. And makes it distinctly different than almost every other state that, like, in the world. I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say that there's no place like it, but it really is different than many places in the United States that you'll visit. I was actually born in New York, but I left when I was two, so I'm very much a tourist every time I visit the city. As a Floridian, the novelty of taking a New York subway still hasn't worn off on me yet. I took the subway into the city and walked to the convention center. I'd never been to the Javits Center before. I love the glass ceiling, which um, I had actually read uh, 
sometime uh, around the election that that's the reason why Hillary Clinton was planning on having her victory party there had she won in 2016 because it was a literal glass ceiling, shattering the glass ceiling, the metaphor, etc. More about presidential election of last year later in the podcast when I get to Friday. (laughs) But the layout is different enough from every other convention center I've been to, aside from, you know, the glass ceiling, the the way that the floors are laid out with the food court and everything. It was... um, This was different than San Diego, but not necessarily a bad different. And while it was very crowded, I was used to worse crowds, so I got by. The first thing I did was attend a panel called Batman Ninja. I wasn't sure what to expect, and I was surprised there wasn't a press event for it because it was run by Warner Brothers Animation and their publicity guy, Gary Mariano, who uh, always does press things for these. I later learned why. The New York Comic Con system involves having your badge scanned to hold your spot for the larger rooms. So I waited in line for this room, and then when it was my turn to get in, because I hadn't scanned my badge, I had to leave the line after already waiting and go scan my badge, then go back in the line, which, you know, this is run by volunteers, and the volunteers do a great job. They're very busy. They have to deal with a lot, but something slipped through the cracks, and this slipped through the crack because I never should have been able to get that far in line without scanning my badge anyway, and no one told me or and even when i passed the people they directed me to keep going but i scanned the badge i went back in line and when it was my turn to go in the room they didn't even scan my badge away but i was still able to get a front row center seat and if you attend conventions like this then you'll know gary mariano the warner brothers publicity guy who i mentioned before we've done so many press rooms with him and he's run so many of these things so once he stepped out to introduce the panel in his tommy bahama t-shirt i sent a picture to donovan and stella and even ben letting them know that it was now officially a comic-con batman ninja looked awesome i live streamed the panel for uh, twitter Or it might have been Facebook. I think I did both at different times. And uh, it's going to be an original animated movie where the Batman family and their rogues gallery somehow wind up back in time during feudal Japan. Footage was shown, and as of now, I don't believe it's leaked yet. It was really awesome. The production crew and animators were brought out. And since most of them are don't speak English because, you know, this is made by real Japanese people, a translator was used. That answered my question about why there was not going to be a roundtable session for the press. That would be very hard to manage without having multiple translators and, you know, just the back and forth. There's a nuance that gets lost when, you know, these things are being filtered. Either way, though, it looks like Batman Ninja is not to be missed. Once that was over, I navigated to the press floor where the roundtables for DC 10 years of original movies was being held. All of the on-site press stuff was held in a certain floor to even get to that floor. To even get to that floor, you had to show your press badge. That was a bit different. While all the San Diego Comic-Con press stuff, and I'm I'm sorry to keep on comparing this to San Diego, but that's going to (laughs) happen. All the San Diego press stuff does have a bouncer to check us in, but usually it's a room-by-room basis as opposed to being an entire floor. It did help that, as press, we had our own wing of the con, so to speak. This event was to promote a box set coming out, which looked awesome, of, you know, different DC animated movies from the last 10 years. The people involved in this were producers Bruce Timm and James Tucker, Alan Burnett and Jim Krieg, Jason Omar, who played Batman, and Vanessa Marshall, who's played Wonder Woman. Another difference between NYCC and SDCC, and yes, uh, I'm sorry this comparison is going to be a bit negative, but I can't talk about this without mentioning this, were the other press people who were in this room with me. 
during SDCC, we're usually um, at the table with other websites or outlets and the fan-related spectrum. And yeah, th- there'll be people who are not on that, but the majority of it is people like the Batman universe, you know, people closer to us. But here we were with lots of broadcasting outlets like TV, radio, and stuff who were more broad and kind of detached from the coverage and a little aggressive too. The fan outlets were there too, don't get me wrong. Maybe I just wasn't sitting with them. Maybe these people have always been at San Diego. I just don't notice them. But I noticed a lot more of the other reporters here and the attitude that came with them. There's one example, and there's going to be a few examples throughout the weekend, sadly. But one example is a reporter who you'll hear on a few of these roundtables. They started off by taking too many chairs at the press roundtable we were at. I told them that there wasn't going to be room for the talent to sit on because they were using multiple chairs. And the talent wouldn't even be able to get to the table because of like the sp- empty space. It, it's hard to explain without a diagram. But needless to say, him having all these chairs was not a good thing. Um, but he wasn't going to give up his multiple chairs. He insisted that the talent would figure it out and kind of brush me off. Then Gary came over, unaware that he and I were talking about this, and asked the guy to give up the chairs because the talent had no room. Same thing I said. The reporter sheepishly complied. I know Stella's going to roll her eyes listening to me say this, but that reporter got on my nerves every time we shared a table over the weekend because they kept on asking long off-topic questions including like them pitching their own thing that had nothing to do with this multiple follow-up questions which you know sometimes we do follow-up questions at these things but when you're at a full table of people doing multiple follow-up questions like three or four in a row is just like rude and spouted weird incorrect comic facts This doesn't mean that I had a bad time. Vanessa Marshall was a great experience. Um, I was very pleased. Uh, She she was so happy when I mentioned that I remembered her as Mary Jane. She lit up, patted me on the back, and uh, as she was leaving, she thanked me again. I'm glad she has fond memories of being Mary Jane in the spectacular Spider-Man. Bruce Tim interview is interesting because there's kind of a weird view of Batman's relationship with his kids. He kind of said that it's less of like, you know... A family relationship and more that like he's weaponized them and that's like how he sees them as weapons listen to what he has to say along with some of the other stuff here i did make a point to ask him about back earlier one for stella unfortunately um even though he was kind of positive you know in his no i still felt a very big no from it so. no, we've, been here for, we've been here about 10 minutes maybe. oh my goodness <laughs> you'll be happy to know that gary compared you to miss america so whoa i know pressure is up front instead of being here can i get a picture of yes of course this is very nice. Nice. Thank, you. thank you yeah also yeah, yeah of course Thanks. Can my wife get a picture? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Come on. I'm filling in today. Oh, right on. on. Excellent. May we ask you a question? Yes, of course. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I was wondering, um, uh, what superhero values like do you hold dear? Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> uh, playing Wonder Woman was really an honor because most of her values are my own. Um, I contend with those issues every day. You see injustice and, and inequality and people being maligned all over. I mean, more than we'd care to notice. And uh, 
it, it's always important to step up and speak out and do the right thing. And uh, her intelligence coupled with her physical strength, everything that she embodies, I just look up to her so much. And I have since I was a little girl. So to actually get to portray her was an honor. So I just tried to find those things in myself and bring them to the microphone. <laughs> yeah. You've dabbled into, you know, many different uh, geek-related worlds, you know, because you were Mary Jane and Spider-Man, and you've done... Oh, yeah, I love love that. gigs ever. We want another season. I know, I know. Um, But, yeah, uh, you know, and Wonder Woman, and then you've been in the world of Star Wars. What do you find that you've been recognized the most for? Um, Probably for Star Wars, I would say. Um, But I I wonder sometimes if that's a virtue of having played Hera for four seasons, or we're about to uh, do the fourth season. Uh, It it airs October 16th, actually, so it's coming up. But uh, having been on the air for that long as one particular character, I think she's had the most airtime. So maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's Star Wars, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that one gets a lot of recognition. So when people... Uh, mentioned Mary Jane. I'm always thrilled because that was that was also a lot of fun. <laughs> Doesn't get as much recognition. So. Okay, question for you. So you've played Batgirl, and you've played Wonder Woman. Oh, Batgirl, I think was Tara Strong. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Played Wonder Woman. Uh, yeah. yeah, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, yeah. and you played Poison Ivory. Yes. And you played uh, a lot of different roles. You were also yeah. in Ben. Would Wonder Woman be like? Um, I, I think she's definitely, I don't know if it's fair to say she's the most iconic role, but she's certainly um, uh, an amazing character to play. Um, and the movie's great success this summer, seeing all these little girls who want to be Wonder Woman for Halloween, it really warms my heart. Um, definitely, I think because I've looked up to her my whole childhood, she has a special place in my heart, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> You've been a part of the DC movies for a while. What was the most fun that you've had recording um, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, well, for, it's interesting. Wonder Woman uh, in uh, the Crisis on Two Earths and uh, also in Flashpoint Paradox, both of those films dealt with alternate worlds and... Uh, you know, it was interesting to see how in Flashpoint Paradox, Wonder Woman was actually quite evil, you know. Uh, but, of course, that was the whole point, that, that the universe was flipped over. Dr. Uh, Zoom, I believe, sort of changed everything around. Um, so it didn't make a lot of sense when she was being so mean to Aquaman and to the children. <laughs> like, it, it just felt counter to her, but that was the whole point of the film, that things were upside down, so... Um, that was a little awkward to, to this day, but Jim says that she was doing what she had to do. Jim, the writer. So. Do you read the comics for either research or for fun? Yes, I, I do. Yeah. What is your favorite? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's hard to say. Honestly, I, I love them all. I love stories. I've always loved to tell stories. Um, I wanted to major in uh, religion and anthropology and philosophy because I feel like all of these things are handled through well, what we do in entertainment, telling these stories for healing, and then graphic novels and also comic books are so tangible and immediate, and there's something so intimate about reading a comic book that is, uh, it's like its own its own special thing, so I, I don't even know if I can pick, I'm, I'm going through my shelf right now in my mind, yeah. I, I don't know. I love them all, honestly. Did you get a chance to walk the floor at all? Or? Not yet. Oh, really? I hope to, though, yeah. Not top three. Top three. Oh, oh my gosh. What, what There's. What do you like? 
yeah, there's honestly, I'm I'm trying to find them on my shelf. There's a bunch. I've actually there's a few lock and key ones that oh, I've, yeah that have those. been really cool. Yeah. Um, there's several Batman ones that I got when I was here. Um, uh, for Comic Con 2014, I think it was uh, Midtown Comics we went over to. At one point, it was so much fun. We made the pilgrimage, and uh, <laughs> I found a couple. But like I said, I, there's just, I, I, it'd be hard. It'd probably be easier to think of something I didn't like. Or actually, I don't even know if there are any. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I can, I'll tweet a couple of the yeah. covers for you. I'll tag you. I like this. Yeah. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah. It's overwhelming. I'm looking at my shelf in my mind. There are like billions of them. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> You've been lucky to play so many great roles. Was there ever the one that got away, like the audition or the role that you really wanted that, you know, just fell out of grasp? Um, well, ironically, I was. Uh, it was between uh, me and Susan Eisenberg for Wonder Woman for the cartoon series. And I had just gotten married and was uh, in Paris for the callbacks, which is like the biggest quality problem ever. But they said, sorry, you know, we're going to have to go with someone else. I'm not saying I lost it because I wasn't there, but I always thought, oh, I could have played Wonder Woman. I'm so sad. So Bruce Tim and Andrea Romano had said, when these movies came up for the Blu-ray, or, well, I mean, not then it wasn't for the Blu-ray, but the ones that we're discussing today, she said, we knew we had a special place for you, so that's why they put me in uh, Flashpoint Paradox and Crisis on Tours, because I missed out on that one. So for a brief time, I was sad that I never got to play Wonder Woman, but then... Happy ending. There you go. Yeah, so I'm very grateful. And you got married too, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> you also got to play the Huntress, which is pretty darn cool. Yes. One of my favorites, actually. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm used to getting married. Hey. <laughs> there you go. If they ever do Paris and yeah. In the Star Wars movie universe, uh, disappointed if they cast someone else. No, I, I want them to do whatever's best for the narrative. I, I would be honored to play it, but you know the thing is with Star Wars because it spans now over so many years, it's quite possible that the Hera, the Hera that they would need, might be senile, or you know <laughs> she might be two years old, or I mean, different people have played Obi Wan. You know, it, it really. The narrative is the most important thing. I would not be pissed off at all. Plus, it's not really my deal, you know. I'm, eh, I'm more of like quiet voiceover person, ironically. But I feel like the past like five years has been some a uh, bit of a change with like welcoming like more women into like comics yeah. and all this stuff. Sure. But like, what was the time? Do you feel like any of that pressure was put on you, like being like, like any like? No, I never felt any of that, honestly. And I don't know, maybe because I wasn't looking for it. Sometimes if you set the tone in the room, you're not greeted with any of that stuff a little bit. But um, just on a humanitarian level, I think, like I said, stories are, are being told and it's important that we lift those up. And uh, however we can serve that in the best way, that's really, it seems like that's what everyone on my side was looking to do, the writers, the uh, actors, all of us. We were grateful for the job and, you know, wanting to, uh, what? One more. One more. <laughs> oh, okay. That's wonderful. I'm so happy to hear. Yeah, no, I never, I never, yeah, that was on a panel for uh, uh, video games at uh, Fan Expo in Toronto a couple weeks ago, and someone had asked me that question, and one of the actresses, she was in uh, Resident Evil, and uh, she felt that she was greeted with that because she was sort of the only female character in an all-male cast, and I guess it was mocap, and she kind of had to really claim her space, but I have never... 
kind of, I like football and I, I kind of, I'm sort of like a dude. I mean, I'm saying a woman, but so that stuff, I, I never really notice any of that, but uh, that's a good question, uh, but not yet. <laughs> that's really wonderful. Yeah. Like, I've heard yeah, no, so far so good. <laughs> Alan Burnett. Oh, look at me. Hey, hey, how are you doing? Isn't it great? It's fantastic. I love it. What part of Florida? I'm in Tampa. I'm in the Fort Lauderdale area. Okay, that's where my parents live, right on yeah. Broward County. Yeah. We were uh, we were sitting waiting for that hurricane to come right at us. I mean, yeah. It was a scary time. But anyways, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a survivor, a strong. Yeah. Yes. So um, I'm Alan Burnett. I'm a co-producer and sometimes a writer on these uh, these DVDs. I've uh, done like, uh, I think I've, I have credit on eight, uh, on this, 28, 28, 27, and uh, it's been a great run. So um, I'm ready for questions. What made you decide to, you know, get off the train, you know? Oh, well, I'm 67, and uh, and I and, and I can't I I couldn't believe I still can't believe I've been on this train for that long, but um, but I love these characters. I've loved them since I was a kid. Probably uh, reading comic books meant more to my career than any. Uh, I have two degrees. <laughs> it just means more than anything. More than those degrees. Um, so uh, no, the time was right. I, the time was right. Looking back, what would you say would be the your proudest moment? Uh, your proudest moments, I should ask. On uh, uh, well, you know, I was on Batman the Animated Series, and I suppose that's the high point. But I have loved doing these things for the last ten years, nine years. I can't, and I can't believe that it's been that long. It seemed to be have gone fast. We did like three, some some years we did four, I think, and. Uh, and this was a, a it was a great run, and for a guy who's done a lot of series, the grind was there was there wasn't that series grind to it because you go from different project to different project with different characters and there's always a mixture of stuff going on. So it's been a godsend for me because I've I've done I think 15 series and. You know, and I don't need to conquer another one. So, although we did the Justice League action, I did Justice League action. We did. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I keep forgetting about it. But so does Cartoon Network. <laughs> so they don't know anything. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so um, so I so this doing these shows has been great, and they've. I've enjoyed them uh, all the way through, and I think it's a great package. And uh, I'm glad they're putting it out. I'm glad they, you know, they have 30, and that's a nice number. We're still doing more. I, there's got to be like six more in the, going, going on. Yeah. And uh, so, and what? And I probably shouldn't say this, but I got a couple. Uh, writing credits on them, ones that haven't been shown, and so it's, uh, it's 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 been good. It's been really good. Did you know just how special that the animated series was going to be? You know, the animated series 
I knew it was going to. I, I knew it was a quality thing, and it's something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to push a more adult superhero show. I go back to Super Friends, and where you couldn't do anything. I mean, there was you're making an audience for two to eleven year olds, and so you couldn't do anything inappropriate for toddlers, and so it was impossible. And I've always pushed to do, I always wanted to do uh, more adult shows. And um, so when we did Batman, I knew this was a, a new thing, a special thing, and that it could catch on, and it did. I didn't, you don't think that it's going to be a big hit, but, uh, but that's what happened. But it was more adult. It was more adult, but it, but yet you could, but it was on at 3.30 in the afternoon. I had to rush home from school every day, you know, as a teacher, yeah. to get to it. But it was on at 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. I never saw it being anything that the kids could have. Uh, well, we were we were cognizant that kids were going to watch it, so we didn't want to uh, make them fearful uh, or crazy. <laughs> no, we did good. We did really good. Well, we got a, you know, that show actually got a lot of two-year-olds. Uh, uh, because it was a quiet show, and for some reason, uh, the demographics did well with two-year-olds. I don't understand it, but but we did. Uh, we it, it was a sort of appeal to a fourteen. It appealed to the teenager in us. So, but uh, and you know, with the with the uh, with these uh, movies, um, we. Continue to push the envelope and sort of, it's sort of we're sort of making them for the fans, you know. Yeah. And uh, and that too is an older audience. So I've all all my life I've wanted to I've wanted to make an R-rated animated show of some sort. And finally, we did the Killing Joke, and I finally got my R R, R rating. <laughs> And uh, I, I, that's, that's when I knew I could stop. <laughs> What's the craziest pitch that you've ever made? The craziest pitch of these movies? Uh, yeah, or any of the animated projects in general. I'll tell you, a, a, the most successful pitch I ever made was I pitched Static Shock in one sentence. I held up a, a uh, picture of the first comic book cover of the first comic book and I said uh, this is Chris Rock at the age of 15 and they said okay we don't have to hear anymore let's it, tell me to wind up he said we don't have to hear anymore you got it so anyway so um, I think I have, no go ask uh, just uh, out of the Batman and series what would you say is like your prized episode or your favorite there's many that I like in that. You know, everybody points to Heart of Gold, which I, I like, and Perchance to Dream, which is a real good, which is, I like because it's a story that you could only tell with Batman. Uh, but the other day I saw the first ventriloquist story, just by chance it was playing on TV, and uh, it really is one of the most beautiful episodes. And the second play face, and she's going to make me go. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thank, Thank you. you. James Tucker. Talking is hard. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, all these interviews are going to be in done with sign language, so... Okay, all right, you know. good. Oh, subtitles well. Yeah. Interpretive dance, as you Yeah, there you go. Hello. How did you get involved with the, um, the animation? How'd you come in general, yes. or in general, just and, oh, and that's and too long a story, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, but my first gig was uh, on a working on Animaniacs. Um, I didn't realize Yeah, I was uh, there was a studio in Chicago that did a, about 10 episodes of Animaniacs, and at the time, it was the only American studio producing episodic animation. It's called Star Tunes. And uh, I actually had just moved there and I saw an article about this little animation studio and I went, maybe I should call them up. I draw. So I co-called them. Now, never in a million years would this ever happen in real life anymore, but oh my, I don't know. But I co-called them and they said, I said, I can draw. Can I come in? And it and they said, sure, just bring your portfolio. Well, I didn't have a portfolio. So that night, I basically created my portfolio. I drew like crazy through the night, <laughs> took it in. And, you know, at the time, if I had known they just needed someone who had hands, they would have hired me anyway because they were desperate. But anyway, they saw I could draw and they hired me and took a chance and they... I started the ground up, you know, assisting in betweening, and within a year I was animating because it was just a small studio in it. And so it was just very lucky. I happened to be moving to Chicago. They happened to be there. They happened to be working on a Warner Brothers show. And so through that show, most of the people who worked there ended up migrating out to California and working for the actual Warner Brothers studio. So, you know, people who worked on Duck Dodgers, um, everything. We there's a lot of us have ended up working on a lot of a lot of Warner Brothers content. What's one of your favorite um, like characters to animate? Um, well, Batman is what got me into superheroes. So, I, I he's my default. He's not the most interesting a, a answer, but. Like, why is he fun to... Um, well, he's just my favorite character. He's, the, you know, going back to the Adam West show. I mean, he was the gateway drug to get me into all this. And, uh, you know, he's one of those characters that no matter what version you see of him, it clicks with you. I don't... He's a... a you know, God bless Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Because... Whatever it is about Batman, he just clicks with so many people. And in, in every version, no matter what version you've seen, there's something about it that clicks. So, he was mine. Going back in animation technology 15, 20 years ago, what's the biggest difference between then and now with mostly everything being Um. Well, they still animate by hand, our cartoons, but the coloring, you know, the actual coloring is done digitally, whereas it used to be they'd have to paint actual individual drawing cells. Um, from a pre-production standpoint, digitally we actually do the storyboards digitally, whereas in the past you had draw them and you'd end up with storyboards like that thick. Now you do it all digitally, and you can literally almost animate it in digitally as you're doing the storyboard so you, it gives you a little more freedom 
um, I won't say it's easier because with the, even with technology, it creates new issues and problems. But it's just different. So I mean, a lot. I actually animated as a as a upper comer I was an animator. I did animate. Whereas a lot of people are getting in the business now probably haven't animated. So they, there's there's some information you need. I think helps you as a in any other job in animation. That if you've animated, you kind of understand everything else a little better. And even if you're a storyboard artist, if you're a storyboard artist who hasn't animated, you don't quite understand what you're asking people to do overseas. So if you have this big elaborate action set piece thing that was hard to draw in still pictures, it's going to be twice as hard to draw for an animator overseas who's probably not getting paid as much as we are. And it's just, you, you, you learn to be more responsible when you've animated. But anyway, that's another topic. Yeah. Has there ever been a piece of fan feedback that's changed how you approach a character or changed how you approach hmm. a project? Fan feedback. Um, I gauge it based on, well, A, if it's something that is informed, meaning they understand what they're looking at. Because a lot of times fans, quite frankly, speak out of their ass. And, uh <laughs> And it's easy to do. I mean, in the old days, you used to have to write a letter and hope someone printed it. And, you know, you had to... You had, now you just hit a button. It's it's out there in the world. So I gauge... If I think it's an informed opinion and I have to agree with it, then, yeah. Um, I can't think of any specific instance. But, you know, we... We're our own worst critics. There's nothing anyone can say to us that's not going to make us... Um, that's going to be worse than what we say in our own heads about, you know, nothing's ever perfect for us. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if, 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 if it's an informed opinion that, that it's like, oh, didn't think about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm open to that. Anyone is. There's, a, there's a book that I just finished, Batman and the Rise of the Culture. Great book. I just, I finished that a few finished months it. ago, too. Yeah. Do, you, do you agree with this assessment? I agreed with a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the same book. It's the the Cape Crusade. Was that the book? Yeah. Uh, it came out by Glenn Weldon. Yeah, yeah, it came yeah. Out in 2016, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I agreed with a lot of his uh, conclusions. So. <laughs> yeah. You run out of questions for you? No, I mean, I was just taking a breath. He's the celebrity here. Everyone knows him. I got you already. Okay. Anything else? So what's next? What's next out for you outside of this? Well, we've announced. Um, we're doing the death. We're going back to the death of Superman. Well, and we're. We got a. We're doing. We're retelling that story um, with all the characters that got cut out of the previous one. They're going to be a two-parter. It's a two-parter. Um, so you know that was something I wasn't looking forward to at first because you know Bruce had done it, but then once once it became a two-parter and I realized we'd be able to get to these new characters who haven't been in the continuity before, I was I was intrigued because. Um, that's the incontinuity titles I do. That the main reason I enjoy doing them is to be able to, to bring in these side characters and these less known characters. So 
Um, I think it'll be, for fans of the original story, I think it'll be a little more to the experience they were expecting. And we're doing a Suicide Squad. And this one, well, I can't say that. Anyway. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Jim Creed. So are we going to do an unboxing? Okay. Would you like to do an unboxing? I think yeah. we should. Yeah. Okay, well, I rolled oh, off. Oh, oh my gosh, I spilled food on my new shirt. My wife's going to kill me. <laughs> this meeting is over. <laughs> Why don't you go wash oh that gosh. off? I will oh watch gosh, the box. Is... No, you can't watch the box. <laughs> you can use my hat to raffle off. Okay, so this okay. is the this is the box. Well, uh, and, it, and I have the best hands, so that's why I'm, I'm QVCing it. It opens like the Star Trek communicator, like you might think, and uh, and it's like a coffee table book. I'm so glad you actually wanted the actual unboxing. So you ready? Okay, hold on. So it's all the kind of it's it's like the cover art, but sometimes it's alternate takes of the cover art or you know alternate ideas, and then the. Each each page has two slots for the for the uh, the CDs, DVDs, and uh, and so there's there's obviously there's the 30 movies, and then there are discs that have the shorts, the discs that have extra featurettes, and uh, and these are so cool, and they were so they were so it's really gorgeous, and they were smart enough not to put the DVDs in, so I wouldn't try to sell them, at the, and and use them like as cash to, to barter with you know with stuff like for original art or something. It was too expensive for me anyway. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Um, so you can get this as a digital download, but I think it would be. Something you want to have yeah, I think this is something you want on your shelf money. since we don't own books anymore. We might as well have this, you know. I own a lot of books. Well, yeah, I know, but we're an unusual group, you know. I, have, I also have eight-track tapes, but that, you know, what are you going to do? And there's a collective market for them. Is there, there, gen- there generally is a collective market for them. I just heard that that, uh, that no one makes VHSs anymore. VHS, the players, so like those are super valuable now. Yeah. Uh, Oh, that's gorgeous. I know, it's crazy. Look at that Wonder Woman. It's amazing. Oh. Look at that black man. How does he see out of that thing? <laughs> Not very well. How much is Well, Batman doesn't have to see. He senses, he just knows. Because he, he already knew. He's three steps ahead, so he can do it with his eyes closed. Sonar. How much is this? is... It is under $300. It is $299.99. So don't feel like you have to spend $300 on it. Because it's under that. How much is on Amazon? <laughs> on Amazon, it's through the roof. Through the roof. <laughs> but for, you probably have Amazon Prime, and they'll send it to you for free. And there how, you go. how far back? Do, do, is this just like the beginning, like Superman Doomsday of yeah, your it, current series? Or are we going all the way back to Mask of the Phantasm and Sub-Zero? No, no, it's not going that far back. It's just, the, it's just that current it's run. It's 10th anniversary, so... So it's ten years. It goes ten years back. Um, but you know what? There's a lot of good stuff on here that you're going to want to see. Of course. Oh, and the back. The back. It. I, I, you could say it's empty, or you could say it's serene. You know, it, it's, it has a calming purple, uh, and then it has the uh, the logo. Oh, I'm getting a walk. You can hear I'm a little hoarse. Uh, and you're my last table. Is there, what else can I uh, inform you on and pretend I know the answer to when actually I'm just bluffing What's away? going to be in the next 10 years set? <sighs> Nothing but goodness. Uh, there's, I, I, there, I have to tell you that it's... Um, 
just kind of being recently invited onto this team, it is a real thrill to see the process of of the, how the decision making goes and. And I really think we're going to go up from here. I think that this 10 years, you know, as everything in here, I think, has quality. But um, as we were just discussing at some of the other tables, that some of it is a primer. There, before, it was like people like Batman. Who is Batman exactly? You know, and, and now they know. And now you can now you can do Justice League Dark. And, people, and they might have a moment of, well, who's Zatanna? But now you're going to know. And now you're going to know who's Con- who Constantine is. And now you're going to mm. know who Etrigan is. And all of all of these characters who before seemed really obscure, somehow it's, it's there's been a, a weird, miraculous turn. And they're all sort of in the public consciousness. I mean, not everybody, but it seems like a lot. It's easier. It's a, a, a teen Titans movie is an easier sell than it was 10 years ago. So I think we're going to get to delve into comic book stories that you didn't think you were going to get because they're not straight on Batman stories. Not that we're not going to do those, but um, but there's a lot of new stuff too. So it's a pretty cool time to be a fan and to be a whatever it is I am, a semi-professional. There's also something finally appearing in the Batman Harley Quinn. Oh, yeah! Were there issues with his legal rights from the little cartoon? From no, the I was Batman? afraid that was going to happen. Like, we really wanted to have that scene in, and it's pretty funny. Does that, does that mean that there might be more Swamp Thing in the future? Oh, yeah, and Swamp Thing's in, I mean, Swamp Thing's even in our uh, 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 Justice League action cartoon. It, it, he's, uh, it's Mark Hamill, as a matter of fact. Um, but all of those characters, I mean, unless there's some really specific outstanding legal issue everybody's fair game now so your favorite comic obscure comic book character your favorite deep cut there's no reason not to expect to see them except that it is a animation boom time and they're all they're literally not enough teams to do all the shows we want to do so they're hiring <laughs> well, I don't do the hiring. <laughs> I'm just a writer. Just <laughs> uh, No, it's true, though. That, that there's a lot of work going on, but also Warner Brothers really only takes the best people. They're really snooty about it. I mean, snooty is the wrong word. Can you cut out snooty? <laughs> Can you make I it? They do want. They do really look for the best, and uh, but fortunately, there's enough work that people are breaking in and getting seasoned, and then and then moving on to us. And I'm being called away. No, Thank no, you for this meeting. Is your me. last one? Yeah. You talked to everybody. I, I talked to everybody twice. You talked to me. <laughs> but I was wrapping up. It was like such a smooth wrap. Up. A nice wrap up there. I, I sounded. I was making that noise. It was like you know. It was like the phone noise that some of your friends don't know when you go. Okay. I have a friend who can't recognize that. Is I'm getting tired of being on the phone now. I just, you know. For for what? For the encore. Oh, for the encore. I have a little. I, I do a little number. I came up with a little song. I thought you'd like. Do you think that the, um, the next ten years? Movies, you know. I can't, I can't, uh... Well, well no, what I'm, what I'm saying, not that. The idea that the comics, you know, the, the comics, the animation, the movies, there's been a tendency for it to get a little dark at DC. And do you think, do you guys think that there might be some bit more of a balance in that? Where do you think you go with that? Well, I think that there will be a lot more room for a lot of different flavors. I, I think that the fact that uh, I'm part of the team now would indicate that they're not afraid to do jokes. Um, 
uh, you know, they're, I would say they're, they're always, I try to put in more jokes and then they cut a lot of them out. Um, but the fact that I try to put more in means that some will stay in <laughs> and that some of the, um, but even, even, um, Bruce's last movie, the, uh, Batman Harley Quinn, it, it, it certainly was a lighter take so for some people much too light or a little too edgy in its, in its humor. But, um, I think it shows a willingness to go outside the, the, the grim and gray box and, and I think we do grim really well. I think we do serious super well. But I think that there's also going to be room for fun. And, uh, and certainly, like, on the TV side, doing a Teen Titans Go and Justice League action, it's, it's to brighten it up so that, you know, so, so we can invite younger viewers in and they get to know these characters and uh, so that you... That there'll be an audience to tell all these different stories too, whether whether they're grim or whether they're a little lighter. If I could, if I could just say one the thing, I fell in love with the new Fifty Two Harley I think I found that the time I just found Terry Yeah. And I think that was the perfect balance, and I'd, I'd love to see. I, I think it'd be so cool if that kind of balance could be maintained across the line. Well, I certainly would like to see uh, a lot of different tones reflected in these movies, and I think hopefully we can make keep making them. And the more we make, the more likely it is you're going to see that balance. Do you think that we'll ever get a couple of these animated movies like Basket the Phantasm was in theaters? Um, I believe so. Sometimes they've been doing these phantom... Uh, Fathom events. Fathom. Thank you very much. I said phantom events. <laughs> I, maybe I was thinking of the phantom stranger, but I wasn't. <laughs> it was just a... Uh, but, uh, yes, I think we, I, we would like to keep doing them because they're, they're a great way to get the word out on these. So uh, we have some coming up. I hope they do it with Gotham by Gaslight, but I don't know if they're going to do it yet. Um, so, uh, because it's really fun to go to the movie theater and see people reacting to your film. Because you know what that you hear? It's a really genuine reaction. Whenever you want to finish your film. I'm going to rest my voice now. That's a good idea. And, uh, but it was, it, was, uh, it was lovely to be over here. Thank you. Jason O'Mara. Hello there, this is a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, I assure you. Hi. Hi. I was wondering, um, like, I noticed, like, every Batman actor and voicer, they bring some uh, new value to Bruce Wayne to the table. I was wondering, like, what, uh, what a characteristic of your voice do you think you bring out in Bruce Wayne? It's impossible for me to know. I mean, no, because I, I, all I have really is, is my approach and my process. Uh, when I, when I, when I get an opportunity to play the character, so I don't really. Um, don't really know what I would bring as opposed to anybody else. All I can do is sort of be as truthful and honest as I can be and let the character and story affect me um, and, uh, and and let that be the thing that distinguishes him. I'd also trust the writers um, who in particular with this version of the character came up with a terrific storyline. Um, well, in a sense they didn't come up with it but they, they you know, borrowed it and and changed it and retrofitted it for for the animated movies from the comic book so um, uh, I think that's what really sets sets my version of the character apart from from the others I think there are nine different versions of Batman in this box set and uh, you know, six of them would be mine so 
um, six, six of the movies would be mine. But only, you know. So that basically means I, I've just one small corner of this universe, and, and that my version of Batman can coexist with these other versions. And I think that's what really this box set says: is like, look how expanded this universe is. Look how many different versions of the same character we can have. I don't think, I don't think there's anything like that. Anything else like that out there? Do you have a favorite line that you've done as Batman? I think it's probably I have a butler. <laughs> If you know the context of what I'm talking about. You know, so. Are you a lifelong Batman fan? Uh, yes, I think I can safely say that. I had uh, the measles when I was five, my grandparents' house, and I remember watching the Adam West Batman movie and uh, just so entertained. That really stayed with me. Um, and then I would watch the, the, the series as well a little later on. And then got too cool for school in my teens and the Tim Burton Batman movies came out and I thought they were cool because yeah. then I'd understood what noir was film noir and I would go around and say these Batman movies are film noir by the way <laughs> and um, I thought Michael Keaton did a great version of it and then kind of forgot about it I'm also a Star Wars fan so <laughs> Star Wars would always pull my attention and then uh, you know different versions of the movies would come out that, that sort of franchise got you know, run into the ground as we know famously <laughs> and the Chris Nolan movies came out and you know, became a fan again and then so to get a chance to, to play it myself was uh, was, was, was huge you know just um, very very fortunate very grateful that I could uh, I, want to do a live action of course I would yeah of course I would yeah. <laughs> it's just again it's like you know it's been done so many times it's, it's, a, it's a tall order it's tough you know and he's so beloved, everybody's got a thing to say about your version of Batman. So you gotta just, you know, try to wear the pressure very lightly. If you had a chance to do any particular Batman story, what would you want to voice Batman in the game? In a storyline? I don't think, I mean, it's tough to say because I've got to, I've got to play him in so many different storylines as well as having his own storyline of, of being a father. Um, and I also get to, you know, just to seek dark, it's like a whole other thing. It's the same but different, and, and same with Justice League and you know, Throne of Atlantis, so, which are, Justice League Throne of Atlantis is on this box set, um, Justice League Dark is not, but um, yeah, I feel like I'm getting to play all the stories I, I want to play, honestly, you know. I, I'm a sucker for the original, you know, core villains. So um, that would always be a thrill to, to play a scene with, you know, Joker or Riddler or, you know, the new 52 Batman is trying to expand the universe. So I'm not sure I'm going to get a chance to do that. We'll see. Have you ever read the old comics in the old back in the day? Uh, I mean, I read them. I would have read the ones in the 70s. You never, you never went no, I never really went back. back. No, I mean I'm aware of them. My, one of my best friends did a, did his college thesis on Batman, uh, on the Dark Knight specifically. He became a, a production designer in the, in the UK and Ireland. Um, so he was like my best buddy. So I, I would get a lot through him through osmosis. But I can't say I ever like collected or sat down and read one of the originals from the 40s or 50s. So I'm going to also I'm going to also assume that you've never seen the, God help us the movie series from the 40s. 
I mean, I've seen them on YouTube, but I didn't. I, I never saw them at a formative age or anything. So they wouldn't have had any impact on it. No, I mean they weren't. They weren't great. But, no, they uh, weren't. Although we got the skinny Batman from the first one. That's true. That's true. I was, Did you have a question? Yes. Yeah, sure. I was going to say, you know, reflecting back on the different versions of Batman, uh, the different stories you've been able to tell, yeah. is there any specific piece of fan feedback that's changed how you've interpreted um, a scene or a character? Other than Jason Amara sucks? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Social media is so kind. Bring back Kevin Conroy. <laughs> Um, that, that inform no not not really it's honestly it's um, I mean it when I say it's kind of a personal journey you know like you have it's the only way you can you can bring your own thing and uh, if you if you listen to anybody including another version of the character too much you won't you won't bring you know you've no shot at bringing your own personal um, inimitable version of the character so um so honestly, I try to, I do try to stay away from that stuff. And by the way, if you don't like my version, you'll like another version. And there's like nine different versions on the disc, so it's it's all good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Being a oh, oh, sorry, you uh, Being a face actor as well as voice actor, how would you feel about I'm a face actor? To, uh... I'm a face actor. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all with my face. <laughs> how would you feel about transitioning into a uh, live actor? Yeah, sure. We were just talking about that earlier. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, of course. How would I? How would I say no to that? How would anyone say no to that? Um, and I've heard, I've heard the cape and cowl is getting a little more comfortable to wear. So yeah, sure. <laughs> Where do yeah, I Michael sign up? Keaton couldn't turn his head. No, I know. We were just saying that. The you other have to day. like watch like, the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw, I actually saw and talked to one of the guys who who helped uh, design the Ben Affleck suit, and uh, they've got more movement than ever yeah. before so that's quite a small world so yeah I played a, a superhero um, in another universe recently in uh, live action and, and so uh, I got to dip a toe in the superhero costume design world that'll blow your socks off that's amazing Agents, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> huh? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. yes but in designing the costume I got to meet the guys who design oh, nice. all the costumes right so you get to see Spider-Man next to Batman do you um, want to take one with you or something? Or? Yeah, of course. Uh, no, it's like, <laughs> it's in this highly secret place in Burbank mm -hmm. that you would never Burbank, find and never you. suspect. <laughs> That's I'm all looking. I'll take. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So give you Bruce Tim yeah. for a fast four or five minutes. Sure. Good, thank you. Thanks, guys. Oh <laughs> Head for the green room. Sorry. Ah. Bruce Tim. Bruce Tim. We're good buddies. How are you doing? Hello. Hello, hello. What's up? How's it going? So, this is your first coming? ten years of DC Nine. movies, yeah. and you know, I hope to many more decades in the future. Um, what are some projects, you know, that um, maybe didn't get off the ground in the first ten years that we might, you know, see for the next batch? Are we Batgirl Year One is one that a lot of us are hoping for. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one I can honestly say is not on the horizon at the moment. I would love for that to happen, but we'll see. Maybe someday. Um, most of the other stuff, if it's on the horizon, I can't talk about it. <laughs> Gary, Gary will shoot me. So, so no Red Rain. We'll take the bullet just for the story. Red Rain Batman is an interesting idea. Uh, it's Here's the thing about that. Uh, we're just dipping our toes into the Elseworlds um, waters with Gotham by Gaslight, 
which comes out early next year. If it does really well, I'm sure there'll be a lot more interest in the home video in exploring other Elseworlds versions of the characters. I would personally love to do that. Um, not just with Batman, but like with some of the other characters. You know, Superman, Speeding Bullets was a really good graphic novel. Uh, Red Sun, things like that. So, um, you know, hopefully, we'll see. Um, two questions, I'll make them out real quick. Um, are you coming back to comics at all anytime soon? And uh, what do you think about, uh, how do you feel about Bill Finger finally getting credit for Batman? I think it's awesome that Bill Finger's getting credit. I think that's really cool. Um, I, I will be honest with you, I did not realize quite how much input he had over the years. I always knew he was important, that he yep. did certain things, um, but until that, you know, all that stuff you know, came out in the press, I didn't even realize quite how much he did yeah. that Bob Kane didn't do. Yeah. So I think it's only fair that, that Bill Finger's getting credit and his family's getting, you know, some residuals or whatever. Um, so that's all good. Uh, and will I be doing more comic stuff? Uh, probably not much more than just, like, covers and pinups and stuff here and there. Uh, what uh, what are some of like your favorite uh, morals and values that Batman brings to the world? Morals and values? Yeah. Oh my god! Uh, I don't. I, you know, hmm. you can pick one more moral or value. You know, Batman's a he's an interesting guy. Uh, I don't know about values so much, except that I mean, he's everything in his life is he, it's all about the mission. He's he's devoted his life to fighting crime. That means he's weaponized everything in his life. He's got this huge fortune which he was, you know, you know, fortunate to, to inherit. So it's like, great, I can I can use that on like vehicles and stuff that'll help me fight crime. You know, it's like, oh, he meets Commissioner Gordon. It's like, oh, great, I could really use having an ally in the police department. That, that's going to help me out in my war on crime. He's got this 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 guy who who raised him and bathes him and 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 feeds him and makes sure that he you know gets to bed on time. It's like, great, I, I need that guy in my war on crime. All of his proteges, yeah, the, the people say, oh, they're, they're surrogate children. No, they're soldiers. He's weaponized them, you know. So it's it's not. I don't really think in terms of Batman and like morals and values. It's like everything everything in his life is about fighting crime. So. And that's like good and bad, you know. So I have, I have a question for you. The same yeah. thing that I asked earlier. I have to ask it again. Um, did you guys know how good the animated series be? Did we know how good it was going to be? Did you Did you know how much it's going to be revered by Batman people uh, and, uh, and animation people? Uh, the The immodest answer is that I knew it was going to be a hit. But that's only because at the time that it came out, the, the world was in a different space media-wise. There wasn't a glut of like cable stations and, and streaming services and DVDs and things like that. And there wasn't a whole lot of superhero movies and stuff. So um, we came out at a time coming off of the first Tim Burton movie, which was a huge, huge success. Um, it was like people they forget that it was like Batmania all over again so I knew that the show was probably going to be a hit regardless whether it was a good show or not I knew it was a good show personally myself from watching the show I was very proud of it but did I know it was going to be a show that we would be talking about 25 years later I had no idea that, that uh, the, the teaser the one that you showed yeah. to get it sold I mean that was fantastic thank you alright uh, the Batman Harley Quinn movie, the the Nightwing and Harley Quinn scene, um, mm. caused a lot of stir online. Can you talk about you know what went into the planning of all that? No, we just something we just kind of just threw together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thought it might be fun to do. Nightwing thought it was fun too. Apparently, I'm sure he did. 
one fun thing that happened during this roundtable, which I didn't get on record, was um, in there was kind of a period where because of the rotating nature of these things, we didn't have anyone at our table for a little while. And Gary came over to kind of check on us and how we were doing. And I jokingly did like a mock interview with him, like, so how long you been with us? What's going on? And. Gary's, like I said, he's kind of been a supporting character in this convention saga that the Batman universe has been doing. I mean, he goes all the way back to, you know, when Dustin and Apple were doing these things. You know, uh, Dustin and Apple did a Comic-Con uh, before I was going in 2009. And um, when I was going with them in 2010, Gary was there. And he's just always been at these things. So, like, so it was interesting to kind of get his backstory. Like, he really, like unloaded about you know his history and like the dark side of working in the medical field and how he didn't like some of the things people were doing because it was immoral and just the joy that he gets of like some of the stuff that he worked with and working um you know at disney and how they named a character after him gender swapped on kim possible so that, that was fun afterwards i decided to go to the boom studios panel for the power rangers comic it's being written by former nightwing writer and a classmate of dustin's kyle higgins david yost and walter jones which were the original black and blue rangers were there i was a big big power ranger fan in elementary school so I thought this might be fun, and when I was at Dragon Con, there was something like this, but I didn't go to it because I was tired. David Yost was very touched by a lot of what the fans told him, like about how far they came to see him, and I saw him shed a few tears a few times. That was very, very sweet. Uh, I was also surprised to see just how invested Walter Jones was in a comic book about a character that he hasn't played in decades. This wasn't like, you know, fake stuff. Like, it was all really genuine, the emotions from them. When it was time to get up to the mic for questions, I got up to the mic because I wanted to ask Kyle Higgins if we could do a crossover with uh, the original Zoo Ranger, which is like what Power Ranger was based on since we were doing alternate universes in the comic. When I was interrupted by Jason David Frank, who played the Green Ranger slash White Ranger, he crashed the party. He had a signing to go to, but he wanted to say hi to his former Rangers and all of his fans. I got a fist bump from him, and I got one from the other Rangers too, and Kyle Higgins gave me a comic sadly he said that there won't be a zoo ranger crossover but it was still a great experience afterwards i walked to Times square to meet gerard delator gerard's one of the panelists on clone saga chronicles another show that i do uh with donovan um and he does a spider girl podcast called mayday mondays he and i have known each other for close to a decade i usually see him when i go to new york he offered his guest room to me for the duration of the convention after dinner, we took the subway back to Brooklyn, which is still a novelty experience for me, and played some new and old Jurassic Park games before bed. I got to experience what things are like for Stella, usually at San Diego Comic-Con, but you should start just taking a shot every time I compare this to San Diego, but usually at San Diego Comic-Con, Stella handles the DC comic interviews while Donovan and I split up for other assignments or recreation stuff. 
For Stella, this involves lots of waiting around the DC booth, sometimes for hours, with no guarantee that she'll even get the interview she was scheduled for. I had a taste of that, but luckily it didn't go that badly. DC sent me a list of interview choices, and I checked off a bunch of them that were Batman-related, and then just other ones I liked. And the only one that was available was James Tynion and Freddie Williams uh, as a duo promoting Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles crossover, the sequel one. Nothing else. Um, well, you know, which, hey, don't get me wrong. Both of those are great creators, and that is a great series. So, like, it's not like, oh, not this. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I would have liked more. So I did take matters into my own hands. But for now, here is the talk that I did with Tynion and Williams on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Batman. These are such okay. tall tables, or I'm yeah. sorry, tall seats. All right, so uh, Kawabunga, we're here with James Tynion and uh, Freddie. Well, you guys both have like numbers after your oh, yeah. name, so like you know. Yeah, he's he's too ahead of me though. I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> well, you're both sequels, and which is great because we're dealing with sequels too. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, and Batman too. Uh, tell us how that all came about. Oh man. Uh, well, first I wouldn't leave Danny Dio's front porch. I just kept crying. I just wouldn't leave. No, um, I think we we both really wanted to do it and expressed interest uh, from you know from even halfway through the first series that we really wanted to and they were just cool enough to, to let us you know yeah no I mean we we started uh, throwing ideas back and forth together like like Freddie was saying about around issue three where we started realizing okay now we have to wrap this one up but we have more ideas and we have more things we want to keep doing and uh, so yeah it, it, it was something that we let DC and IDW know pretty pretty straightforward that like we want to come back um, and uh, when when the series was uh, uh, like made such a big impact uh, last year that's when they were just like you know what we want you guys to come back and uh, so uh, first uh, Freddie needed to go and finish the He-Man Thundercats crossover uh, and then we, we just dove right into this uh, and it's really exciting yeah, yeah. and then let me just say something real quick though is that James basically had within about uh, I don't know two emails he basically had the entire plot of the second uh, the second story fully fleshed or not fully fleshed out but, but mostly fleshed out like he just had it clicking in his brain straight away so very impressive <laughs> and I've heard lots of stories you know over the decades about when you're dealing with you know two different properties two different companies you know there's a lot of you know each you know company like will have certain requests or veto something like what were some of the challenges or some of the surprises in dealing with all that coordination of the Batman and, you know, offices and the Turtles' offices. Honestly, I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things where we, you know, from other people doing other uh, crossovers with other companies, I've heard the horror stories of working with licensors and all of that. But in working with IDW and Nickelodeon, we have had, like, we've, we've really, uh, we really haven't had any issues. I know in the first, uh, there, in the first uh, Turtles run, there was a scene where uh, Mikey's riding his skateboard down uh, the railing in Wayne Man and uh, he knocks over Alfred and I originally had him be like he's just like oh he's concerned about the pizza and Nickelodeon had a note like Mikey would be concerned that he knocked somebody over and yeah. he would be concerned for Alfred's <laughs> well-being too as well as the pizza and like so and 
and it was just like that's a totally fair note but that is the most like that is the most heavy note that we got yeah. really in the first season yeah, I think I literally had like two small art changes which is unheard of any any of the normal series that I work with with just DC editors I usually have more than that just because <laughs> something I misinterpreted something or something got changed at the last minute but IDW and Nickelodeon have been a, a dream to work with and the DC offices as always are great I mean, and you were able to play with, you know, things like, uh, you know, Krang, the Foot Clan, you know, Shredder, Casey Jones. Was there anything that was off the table? Uh, not really. I mean, we, uh, it, the only, like, the only stuff in building the second one, there was also uh, the Batman TMNT Adventures uh, series that 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 did some some really cool uh, moments of its own. And uh, as we were building the second one, we needed to make sure we didn't hit any of those same beats and all that. But that's really the only like, and that even that that wasn't like them saying you can't do this. It, it was more of a like, oh, you probably like want to go do like something a bit more like you know go in a more unique direction. And that's like. You know, that's a good note. <laughs> so Yeah, it's totally fair. Just that you don't want to retread any of that. Even though that's not in the same continuity as us, we just want to make sure we're not touching on any of those same plot points. And that's yeah. a testament that this was so successful that they said, let's do, like, an animated adventures, you know, spinoff oh, yeah. of yeah. it. And, and it's and, great, too. I, oh, like, yeah. I like the animated I, I love it. Um, I yeah. gave it to um, an 11-year-old, uh, the, the, my friend's son, who, like, doesn't read comics, and he, like, ate it up and, like, was <laughs> laughing out loud a bunch of times. And there's also a rumored film. Do you know anything about that? Or I seen the rumor online that's yeah, that, it. yeah it would be awesome yeah, love <laughs> it, maybe yeah. if we just keep on repeating the rumor like yeah. somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. will like say you know what yeah let, let, let's do this It'll you know manifest. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll talk to gary over in animation later today <laughs> like i mean that thing would sell like gangbusters yeah, somebody so. sent me the link and was like is this true and i was like i hope so like that was my response <laughs> i don't know <laughs> uh so we're going to be dealing with bane in the sequel so you know how does uh bane figure into all of this oh boy uh i mean bane sort of good Basically, the the setup for the series has uh, Donnie believe, uh, like terrified that he is not he can't fight on the same level as his brothers, but he can outthink everyone. But he and his brothers are just like lean into your strength, that, like and develop your intelligence and all of that. You don't need to be the strongest fighter as well. Uh, but Donnie, a few months ago, met Batman, and Batman is the smartest guy in the room and the best fighter in the room. Yeah. And so he believe, he know he wants to go train with Batman and figure out how. How, how to be best of both worlds, how, how to have, be, have the strength of mind and strength of body. And when he teleports himself into back over to Gotham City, accidentally he, he stumbles in right at the moment that Batman and Robin are about to take down Bane. And Bane gets zapped over to the Turtles' New York oh. City. Uh, and uh, so we have uh, Bane, like one of the most terrifying members of Batman's rogues gallery, uh, believing that Batman's trapped him in, in, in New York City as a kind of prison, and we know what happens when Bane's trapped in a prison. He doesn't let the prison break him; he breaks the prison. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we basically uh, we get the start of Bane taking over the Foot Clan, and a lot of crazy stuff happens from there. Yeah, it's super big adventure, great, great stuff. I'm really excited to be drawn in. So, with Bane taking over the Foot Clan, um, is he going to get any pushback from their previous leader? Well, we, like we're building out of the, the the last run, which had Shredder defeated. So, mm-hmm. Shredder has been taken off the table, and right when we enter the, this world, there is going to be uh, there's a kind of Foot Clan civil war where there are different factions of the Foot Clan run by different. Uh, you know, different sub-bosses in, 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 that, in the series <laughs> mythology, right. and then, you know, when that when that happens, Bane's going to be able to come in and 
like really sweep full control. Yeah, and and he through sheer force of will, he's able to uh, to unify sections of the Foot Clan and uh, basically start to take power. And we saw in the first one, you know, how the turtles, you know, played into the world of Gotham City and the contrast here. It sounds like we're going to be in, you know, the turtle universe for most of this. So how does Batman and uh, members of the Batman family, you know, how do they deal with this world and what are some of the contrasts there? I mean, visually, the, uh, something that I wanted to play up was that there was... Uh, visually, something that I wanted to play up the contrast with is the, the magnitude and the epicness of the Batcave that the Turtles got to visit and uh, how in love they were with how awesome and, and spectacle the, the spectacle of it. But then whenever Batman and, and some of the Bat family go back to the Turtle Lair, which is, you know, it's underground, it's in this dark sewer and stuff... Um, you know, the, the turtles might feel a little self-conscious about that because of the, the the contrast of where they see where he comes from. Like, he's a billionaire, and then he, you know, is now stuck in their sewer is how they see it. But, uh, you know, that's not his attitude. He doesn't look down upon that. He looks at it with, like, look how much you've done with what you have. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Batman, Change Me, Ninja Turtles, uh, Part 2, Issue 1. When's that being released? Uh, December. Yeah, the first two issues will come out in December. December. All right, looking forward to it. I really wanted to talk to James Tynion about Detective Comics because of all the crazy stuff that's been happening with Lonely Place of Living. I asked DC if I can do a Detective Comics question for just him at the end of the Turtles interview. Uh, but they did me one better and said, actually, you know what? Even though we didn't think you'd be able to, we you can do a one-on-one with James Tynion during an open slot later. So I was able to ask my Detective Comics questions. Um, at this point, part two of Lonely Place of Living was not out yet, but I had read a press preview that um, DC had given the Batman universe where Tim had asked who Connor was, Connor Kent's Superboy, which blew my mind. This book wasn't available yet, so I made sure that it was okay to ask the question and just, you know, under the agreements that I would embargo the interview and not release it till that issue was out. So I embargoed it until release day. DC let me, and I was pleased. Um, here's the James Tanyan interview. We got the sun directly yeah. on us here, you know, like it's a shame we're not Kryptonians. So, uh, uh, so James Tanyan, Detective Comics, and we're currently in the middle of Lonely Place of Living, which, like, if you're a Tim Drake fan and not reading that, oh, my gosh, you after you, uh, um, I just got to say, you know, as a Tim Drake fan, part one really meant a lot to me because, you know, to bring back that classic origin and, like, to recreate those panels, you know, that was... Uh, uh, just something, you know. Uh, so talk about a little bit about, you know, the genesis of that and um, just the discussions that, I don't know if any discussions had to happen to get permission to bring back the classic origin or if you just did it and everyone was like, yeah, cool, you do you. <laughs> um, it was one of those things that uh, so much of the ethos of Rebirth is sort of going back and making sure the versions of these characters that are existing on the page are the versions that people back home, that the fans of the characters know and love. Like, and, uh, you know, going back to the beginning of Rebirth, you had a moment like uh, like the, the new Red Hood of the Outlaw series started with... Uh, like, you know, a reaffirmation of Jason stealing the wheels off the Batmobile. Like, and you had, like, okay, these characters, especially the Robins, those, their origin moments are the the ones that really shape their personality 
for the entire run. And uh, Tim was had a different origin for a bit that didn't speak as well to uh, the core core of the character. And now we have, but so what? It was imperative for me to kind of find a way to bring bring it back. And uh, Jeff Johns, uh, when when we when I went in to talk about uh, the story we were going to build in Lonely Place of Living uh, with Jeff Johns, like he he was very you know very much on board with what we wanted to do. And. There is a moment, you know, and, and this is embargoed until part two comes out, so, you know, yeah. don't worry. Um, there's a moment in part two that, as an old Teen Titans, you know, uh, the Mike McCone, Jeff Johns run, and Peter David fan of Tim and Connor's relationship, just, even though Tim doesn't remember him, that, like, moment of, like, you know, the Batman of tomorrow saying, apologize to Connor, and Tim saying, who the hell is Connor? I was like, oh, my gosh, like... Yeah. Somebody remembers him. So is, was that just, you know, kind of a moment for that story, or is anything going to come out of that? Well, I mean, you're going to have to keep on reading, but for right here and right now, like, it's particularly in Detective Comic, which is much more about Batman's life, uh, uh, Tim Drake's, like, life in Gotham City and his connection to the Gotham characters, I still wanted to point to the fact that there is something missing that, that Tim's still reaching out for, but he doesn't doesn't quite have, and it's uh, and, and it like you know the, it's in the title. It's the lo- lonely place of living. It is the fact that he he had these really close relationships that have now been taken away from him, and uh, you know due to the the nature of the changes in the timeline, and uh, you know we're gonna see him uh, struggle with that a bit and learn a bit more about that as time goes on. But in this moment it is more uh it's more a means to point to like okay that you know this dark batman that tim becomes is is a is this dark figure that comes out of loneliness it comes out of isolation which is the same thing like in the cruel irony of what bat what tim saw like bruce wayne batman missing uh all those years ago uh, but because tim is alone he sort of falls all the way into the dark because no one caught him when he caught as he caught bruce and on the themes of loneliness and people catching each other um i've been noticing you know a budding friendship possibly more between cassandra kane and basil carlo is um am i reading too much into that or uh, it is it is definitely friendship like okay. she's definitely like 15 years old and he is definitely in his oh. mid-30s um <laughs> But uh, it is something where both of them see each other as, uh, like, at at their core, they kind of believe themselves to be monsters. Like, uh, Cass, even now, hasn't been able to get over the fact that she she killed someone once. Like, because she was built to be an assassin, and she completed her first job. And that broke her in, in a real way. Like, she was built to be this heartless killing machine. She was built to be a weapon. Uh, but it, she, like, that she still believes she is atoning for that one moment. Um, and, uh, and Basil, like, he succumbed to being this monstrous figure that everyone saw him to, uh, to be after the accident that turned him into Clayface. And we see all of these things. We, in each other, they sort of see this acknowledgement that, like, they're being given the second chance that they're not sure they deserve. Uh, and we saw that in the in the two-parter uh, with Anarchy, uh, 
like uh, uh, last month where you know she where like Basil kind of collapses in the Belfry and it's just like this is this is who I am I'm this horrible thing it's like what am I and she's like same as me like and that they they have a very powerful bond and connection but it is it is definitely like you know a deeply powerful friendship oh yes um i heard a rumor that um you know as in pre-flashpoint you know bruce had adopted cassandra you know before batman r.i.p i heard that you were sniffing around trying to see if uh, we can restore that is there any truth to that um i mean i i would definitely like each of those those types of moments like need like trying to think of the best way way to answer this like that was a very powerful moment in pre-flashpoint continuity but it was also one of those moments where um like it never like because it happened after an era that where cassandra was already kind of like fading into the yeah fading out of the universe that it never really got um like wasn't explored as much it wasn't as, explored, as it could have and it also and therefore it like there's something about it that just like it was an acknowledgement to the fans of the importance of Cassandra while like Cassandra was kind of becoming less important and it's something that I don't want to do uh like I don't want to fall into that same trap uh but I also like I it is very important to me to establish firmly how important uh like Bruce is to Cassandra and Cassandra is to Bruce um and that's something that I am very very eager to explore uh like upcoming this spring uh in particular in Detective Comics okay and um, obviously, over in Tom King's Batman, you know, Batman um, just made um, a very big change to his, you know, lifestyle. Um, are we going to be seeing the reaction of the Batman family to that in uh, Detective? Uh, honestly, that story is like Tom. Tom is going full bore in that story in the same way that like we we see all of the Belfry characters. Like, uh, you know, it, there there might be small touches here and there, but this is like really we're. Uh, these are stories that are happening in conjunction with each other, but so much of, you know, like, uh, if, if Tom's Batman is Batman in the cave, this is Batman in the Belfry. Like, this is, this is his, like, uh, day job, <laughs> in a way. Uh, so, uh, like, it, it's a little less about his family life, which is also why we don't see characters like Damien as much in Detective Comics. And are going to make going to be any changes to the makeup of the team? We know that Stephanie left. Um, it looked like in Birds of Prey she might be coming back. I don't know if that was just a continuity mistake, because in you see the Belfry team in Birds of Prey in a, like a flooded room, and Stephanie's with them. So either that takes place in the past, or there might be changes, or it's a continuity mistake. But you know, any new characters coming in or characters phasing out, I know you can't reveal too much of what's ahead. But yes, and the arc after Lonely Place of Living is called Fall of the Batman. So. Okay. Uh, check that one out. <laughs> okay. Anything, anything in particular about Fall of the Batman we can tease? Um, I would say that thematically it's a sequel to uh, The Victim Syndicate. Uh, it is also, uh, it's the, it's, you know, it's Tim Drake coming back into the fold and Tim is trying to recapture that uh, core optimism that he had right at the beginning of the program, but he is deeply shaken by the events of Lonely Place of Living. So, uh, you know, this is going to be a, uh, 
you know, a, a really uh, dangerous and frightening time uh, in in the Batman family, and it also in this issue in particular, in uh, 966, we have uh, you know hints at something that Batwoman does that yeah. uh, breaks up the family, and uh, we're going to be seeing what that is. All right. Well, looking forward to that, James Tynion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And thank you so much for a lonely place to live in. Thank you. I... Once this was done, I noticed that Tom King was doing interviews with War of Jokes and Riddles over and Batman now engaged. I wanted to speak to him. DC told me no spots were open, but I told them I would wait. Kind of like airplane standby where you wait and if there's something open, they get you in. I do this with the press rooms at conventions a lot. So, you know, in case someone didn't show up. And this was my stellar moment because I waited for a while and they told me there's just no slots. Everyone's here. It's not going to happen. And, you know, they weren't being rude. They weren't like, get out of here. You're not wanted. They were just like, look, we, we don't want you to waste your time. We don't think this is going to work. But I was like, oh, I'll wait. What's the worst that could happen? And eventually he finished up and I asked them, look, you know, he's, he's over there. He's alone. Is there any harm in, you know, just uh, letting me do a few questions with him while he's on his way out? And Tom said it was OK and DC said it was OK. So here's that interview. Yeah, yeah we got on the Hey, uh, Josh, Batman Universe. We talked uh, Comic Con the first night. Uh, oh. Yeah, in the, the top four. Nice Remember to that? see you again. Yeah, great, yeah. great time. Um, so we'll yeah, do uh, some Batman shit. I know. I'm yeah. Into oh it. God, lots of Batman shit. Yeah, it. yeah. So we'll do three questions quickly because I think that they gotta right. cart you out here. Right. So War of Joker and Riddles, you know, over and uh, did you read boys, the, whole thing? the jo- Oh yeah, boys, the Joker's hand sore after all of that. So um, and was it shocking enough? Was it? I, I, I did a big build up to it, so I, w- I was afraid. I was not expecting that because I was like curious. I was like, okay, well, what was so wrong that Batman did? I was like, is it because all those people died? But then I saw the ending. I'm like, hmm, okay. Yeah, it okay. Wasn't, it wasn't about that he tried to kill somebody because uh, it was uh, it was if the Joker had yeah, not put true, his hand true there. True Batman fans knows those... he's tried to kill people before. Like, Bob Kane had him killing people. Dude, Jim Starlin in, oh, no. in Night of the Beast, he locks those guys in the basement, you know? KGP's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Starvation. Yeah, Starvation. So, like, to me, the shock of it was that the Joker saved him. Yeah. That's the shock of it. Well, that and, connection he, and he has to look at the fact that if the Joker had not done that, yeah. then, like, you know, you know, what would... And, of course, the Joker loves that because that's, you know, one of the ultimate jokes. Now, one of the big things coming out of that storyline is, you know, we get an answer to the marriage proposal. One thing that I'm curious about is, you know, the bridge between um, the initial cliffhanger of him proposing her on the rooftop to, you know, um, did she... How did they go from there to, like, you know... <laughs> to the bedroom? Could, because I'm thinking she couldn't have said no because then they wouldn't have, you know, uh, had, you know, uh, had that moment in War of Joke and Riddles. So, like, did she already say yes and then she wanted a more traditional emotional asking? Or, I guess, how, how is that bridged in your mind? In my mind, I mean, the, the best answer here... I'll say the bad, I'll say the bad, the bad answer. The, the good answer is... It has to exist in the mind of the reader. The reader has to decide. Okay. Well, what's not on the page is in your brain. That's the whole point of comics, right? Comics are things that happen in the gutters. You, your imagination makes the movement. Like, we're just drawing little moments, and you're put, you're filling in all the shit around. It's like slowed-down animation, but you, you, you're, instead of your brain doing it automatically, your imagination has to do it. And, and so the answer is the story is what you made. You make it to be in the moments. That's the good answer. The bad answer is what I'm going to tell you what I think happened. Uh, I, I think she hesitated. I, I think she said, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> he's, he's like, I'm... You know, she knows Batman better than anybody else. And she's like, 
this is not you. You're not someone who proposes to somebody. You're someone who broods and who fights crime. I'm a criminal. Right now she's wanted for 237 murders. The last time they saw each other, she snuck out of the house. And she's like, and I haven't seen you since then. You get down on one knee and you propose to me. So I think she hesitated. And then he said, and then in that hesitation moment, he, he, he decided, I have to tell you something. The confession began. And then that, and, 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 and they sort of moved it to a, a different spot. And ended up in the okay. okay. That's now, how I see it. Now, are we she gonna, hesitates, he fills in the space. Are we going to get the reaction to the Batman family on this? Like, Damien, you know, is he going to feel about having a potential cat burglar for a stepmother and stuff like that? Are we going to see any of that uh, fall back? Yeah, it's in the next issue. Okay. Yeah. The, 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 the next uh, three issues... The next... The next 17 inches of something are, are called the rules of engagement. It's sort of like... Did you say 7 or 17? 17. 17? Yeah. Holy dude. Or more, yeah. <laughs> so I have a 100-year plan. I have a 100-issue plan. A 100-year? Oh, man. You're going you're gonna to be on the title yeah. longer than Kirby on Fantastic Four. No, um... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really... No, it's, it's a 100-issue plan. We're a third of the way through. We're at 33. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was always marked as about, nice. at about a third. We get to the, we get to the proposal. Okay. Um, so it, the, the next big arc on Batman is called I had a lie in previews I said it was called like the dream of me or something we made up a title but it's actually called the rules of engagement and it's and it's it, it, and it, it starts with the reaction of the family the next issue you've got Jason Duke uh, Dick and Damien finding out also Ace finds out but he's cool with it my <laughs> <laughs> cat no <laughs> and um, and meanwhile uh, Batman Batman goes off to do something utterly crazy, which uh, I'm gonna spoil some shit. But why don't even if I spoil some? Dude, stuff. but do it, yes. <laughs> well, he so he run he he. The, if, if you read my Batman, we set it up back in issue 13 that Holly Robinson, who actually killed the people, she fled in, into the Middle East to sort of get away, and she ends up with Talia Al Ghul, and so you have engaged Batman confronting the mother of his child. And that's what the next arc is. Wow, nice, nice. Okay. And um, Gotham Girl, you know, she figured in early into your run, and Batman's talking to her about, you know, kind of where he is in his life at the beginning of, you know, the issue where he proposes to And she's been off the table for a little while. Are we going to, you know, bring her back into the fold? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, she's named after my daughter. Her name's Claire Clover. I was like, you named your daughter Gotham Girl? No. Like, <laughs> no, her real name is Claire Clover. My, daughter, my, real, my daughter's name is Claire King. And I, I have a David Finch Gotham Girl page that I bought from him and saw up above her. But, so she's, she's, like, on a personal level, she means a ton to me as a character. And I, I, I think the big mystery of that, which I purposely didn't solve and is part of this 100-issue plan, is where did Gotham Girl get her powers from? Like, well, who, who could give someone the powers of Superman? And the answer to that is going to drive a lot of what happens in Batman over the next over the next bunch of issues. Okay. Yeah. Rules of engagement. Looking forward to it. Tom King. Uh, hope you get that hundred issue plan because uh, we're enjoying the ride so far. Dude, the only reason I get to write this book is because of the fans of, of because of you and your fans. That's the only reason I get to be on this book and I get the pleasure of writing Batman. And just thank you for reading. It means everything to me. All right. Thank you. Once the interview was over, I sent it to Dustin saying that we had to post it ASAP because we had the exclusive about, you know, Talia coming back and, you know, the next arcs and stuff and some of the plans. And I said, let's post this now because tomorrow's the Batman comics panel and Tom King will probably just like 
reveal all this there anyway. So if we do it today, then we have the exclusive. And Dustin posted it. And thanks for the spoiler alert. Uh, Tom did reveal um, everything the next day as I thought he would, but I'm still happy that we got it first. Once that was over, I had a choice between Marvel's Spider-Man panel or the Gotham by Gaslight press junket. I decided to skip Spider-Man because even though Spider-Man is very near and dear to my heart and, you know, I, I always like to keep up with what's going on with him. I have a rocky relationship with the series as of late, and I always feel like a press junket is more intimate than going to a panel. So at this press junket, it was producer Bruce Tim, director Sam Liu, and writer Jim Krieg. And this is for Batman Gotham by Gaslight. Director Sam Liu, Gotham by Gaslight. Hey guys. Hello, hello. So, who did you have to, you know, like, uh, kill to get to, to get the director spot on this project? Because <laughs> this is one that, you know, a lot of people have been wanting to do for a while, so. Did they pitch you or did you pitch them? Um, you know, I'm sort of like a, uh, a studio director, you know? It's, it's like, I, uh, I go from, like, you know, the project to project. Currently, I'm, I'm the only director that they have. Um, so, um, you know, again, I, I work well with both Bruce and, uh, and James, and so I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, they, they choose me, you know, and they, they want me to work on their projects. So, um, you know, it was, uh, I mean, there's, there's a, loosely there, like before every project or whatever, they, they ask me if I want to work on this project or not and stuff like that. So again, the, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm lucky that way. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of fighting involved. It was just sort of like, you know, do you want to work on this? It's like, yeah, heck yeah. And so, went. How long has this project gone from, okay, the green light, we're going to go till today? How long has it been? Because uh, we finished, I think, post on this actually already. So, I mean, it's, um, again, and we make a lot of these things uh, a year, you know. Um, and so, I, I, this... I, I think it's been completed for almost like at least six months. Yeah. So, is it, is it spaced out because a lot of it is timing, marketing, timing. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it, it, again, it's like like they they sort of, you know, there's the creative element of it, and then they sort of order basically how many they want, you know, home video wants to do, and like you know, sometimes they have an idea about something, and you know, like what what they think might be kind of good, and they want to release it by a certain time, and. So that's that's a lot of sort of the more the behind the scenes stuff. So you've been pretty busy because there's <laughs> your name hurt. Yeah, your I'm. On a bunch I'm, of I'm probably gonna take the next one off just because I. I think I've done the last nine out of ten, in a row, <laughs> or eight. No, eight out of ten in a row. So I did one, and then Jay Oliva did one, and then I've done basically the last eight. So I'm thoroughly fried at this point. <laughs> yeah. So how'd you make the jump from? Um, Drawing for image. Oh, that's, that's a little longish of a story, but it's more of a personal kind of thing. I mean, because I think it's like you know most people, artists in life. You know, there's a there's a thing that you. I'll try to make this quick. I'm sorry if it bores you guys, but you know, it's like you you, you go into you know college thinking like, oh, I, I like to draw. So what can I do that will pay me to draw? You know, uh, I've always liked comics. Um, I never thought that I would like animation. Um, I went into comics, I was too slow. Um, and so, because comics is purely freelance, right? It's like you basically do a page a day, you don't get, you don't do a page, you don't get paid that day, basically. So, um, I was too slow. 
Um, I got into animation on sort of a whim from a like a it was, it was this bit of advice. I had a conversation with the art, art, this art director at um, Rhythm and Hughes, which, which is now def- defunct, you know. Um, and he was saying how, because I had an offer, you know, doing animation. And so he said that, it, it, like, as an artist, I would recommend for any artist to do animation for at least two years because you're going to learn a lot. Because you're going to have to draw everything, basically. It'll increase your speed. So I did it more to get back into comics. But once I sort of got into animation, um, and, I, and again, here's this is the sort of like weird philosophical kind of I guess thing is just that uh, I think like as people you you go in thinking you want one thing and you don't know so uh, you know as a life kind of thing I always recommend people just go out and do stuff because you never know you might run into the thing actually that you because again I never animation was never on my radar but when I got into animation you know I did this sort of stuff and then I realized it was more about things that I actually was enjoyed which is storytelling right because so afterwards. So that's how I got out of to answer your question immediately. I'm sorry, I'm going no, off my cool. own story. It's cool. Um, was like I jumped out of uh, comics because um, you know I was lucky enough to sort of get into image at the time, you know, because it was doing the boom. Right. Um, but I was too slow to really capitalize on any of it, and so I got into animation on a whim to increase my speed. And so the continuation is sort of like so I I learned it. I've, I realized I really like the sort of like you know, character building of it and telling a story and really getting to sort of like dig into um, the psychology of characters and things like that. Um, so, so after doing animation for about five years, um, I got a, and, you know, I went to video games because I got this offer to do character designs, you know, and again, as, as a kid, that's always a dream. But, so even when I was doing that, I did that for about two years and, and even when I was doing it, there was something that wasn't as fulfilling as when I was in animation. And I, that's when I think when it realized, because even during that time too, I had gotten like an offer to do like a cover here, here and there or something like that for comics. And I remember like, you know, having this open deadline and I, I remember specifically about like roughing it and having a good time, you know, the cover, transferring it up to the board, but then having to clean it up. I remember just coming home after a full day of work and just looking up sitting on my drawing board looking at this thing that I have to tighten up and shade and all that kind of stuff when you're, when you're penciling for comics and I, I couldn't get myself to do it like I, it literally took me like a month and every day I would come, come from my work look at it and just I'd rather do something else and that, that's when it really dawned on me that you know comics isn't for me you know it's not it's not fun for me so uh, but again it's, it's different for different people you know but for me and again that was my sort of that's cool. journey that's cool. I suppose Destiny took you on to your itch. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, 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 I look at it as that. You know, again, for me personally, my own sort of thing. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you, you've done Batman: The Killing Joke, and I've done Gotham by Gaslight. Uh-huh. Like, what's <laughs> next on your dream Batman checklist? <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, I don't know. It's it's hard because like like after a while, you know. I mean, there's the sort of fan element of it, and but I've I've kind of either it's been done or I've already done sort of like the the stories that affected me when I was a sh- like a kid, you know. And yeah, Gotham, I guess, like was a big one sort of stylistically. Um, and so, but at the end of the day, a lot of these these things are just because through working on series and these DTVs and stuff like that, I feel like I've done a lot of stories. And there's only so many stories of the hero, I think you know, the journey of the hero that you can sort of tell. And you go through a lot of them when you're going through, like, series, obviously. Um, so, um, so it's weird, because, again, like, right now, I, you know, there is a fan element, obviously very certain ones are, are, are but I've, I've gone through, I think, most of them. So right now, most of it, most of the time when I'm working on something, it's, 
I'm just I'm just more interested in the story of it. Like, what's you know, given how we've adapted it, or given sort of like you know what's in front of me, is like how do I make this as a complete piece interesting? You know, given what these things are, you know, because there's a lot of fan things. I know a lot of fans get pissed off of because it's like, oh, what about the thing that happened in like issue whatever from the 70s or something like that? I'm not concerned as much about that. I'm concerned about what's what's the story in front of me and how does it start, how does it end, and give, and everything that we're introducing. How is that hopefully a complete, you know, satisfying meal? Is is there a comic story though that uh, that you'd like to do in the future, or are you just open to anything right now? I mean, there's there's. Um, I don't know if there's a specific story per se. You know, I mean, I always say that I'd love to do like a Sandman story. I don't know how that would really pan out because it's it's a drama, and I think that most people that watch what we do every time we do sort of deviate from something a little bit different. I think that you know, there's a you know, uh, obviously it's 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 a bit large group, so it, it's a it's a generalization of a percentage of it. You know, but I think most of the people that pick up these DTVs, they're more into sort of like they expect hardcore action. You know what I mean? Like badass fight scenes. You know drama and all that kind of stuff so I'm always curious if I you know if I did Sandman kind of thing like I think that's great as a fan but I don't know if <laughs> you know the fan base that's already sort of like you know that we have is going to appreciate that because it's going to be really slow obviously you know it's, it's going to be like a long drawn out kind of thing so um, adapting Mike Minolo's distinct style obviously would was a challenge for an animated film. Yeah. Uh, is it, I'm curious, is it Jeff Masuda? Because it looks very similar to his style. I, you know, I said the same thing uh, when, when I... We didn't start... We didn't go to Jeff Masuda, you know, but Jeff, Jeff is a good friend of mine. And, uh, and you know, I worked on the Batman, you know, when he was the lead designer of it. Um, and... I remember telling Bruce when we were going through the animation when it came back, I was just like, it looks like Masuda to me. He's like, really? He's like, I don't know, I don't, I don't think so. You know, but... but I, but I'm glad you said that because I, I totally see it as well. But, um, but, it, but we weren't trying to sort of be Jeff Matsuda, if that makes sense. You know, it was a uh, the character designer is this this, um, this talented artist named Stephen Choi. Um, but I think you know it was from Bruce that it's difficult because it's animation, and again, it's not we don't do it here, right? So it's hard to get exact styles. And so uh, we try to do sort of something that's not exactly, you know, um, Magnolia, but sort of in the vein, hopefully the spirit of it, um, to get hopefully a better quality kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's, there's way too many blacks. It's hard to animate just black shapes. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So there's 77 years now, I guess, of, of canon, that canon, but of stories to mind for Batman. Uh -huh. Does that stuff work in today's world? I mean, could you take uh, Batman versus the Mad Monk from 1939 and make it work, or want to make it work in today's world? I think you could, but it would have to be rewritten. You know what I mean? Because even things like adapting, you know, um, the hard thing about adapting, especially like like these, I don't know, like legacy or known stories, like Year One, Year One especially, right? Because Year One is not Batman at his peak, and it's not doing. It's about him discovering right. things, right? But that has been mined by like every other type right, of form of like right, movie, right. video game story. So it's like when you, because even though that's the origin of it, if you play it, everybody's gonna be bored. Because it's like, what is it really? It's just him fighting Falcone and his his yeah. nephew. You know what I mean? It's not. But you know what I was thinking? But, I was thinking that okay, you know, Elseworld. I right. Mean, it's fantastic. It's Batman in 1989. Right. I love the book when I read it. Uh -huh. I'm still, I have it in my collection. Uh -huh. Um, but here's the thing. 
1931. Yeah, I think if we did like a sort of a set, uh, like a throwback a, as a, a yeah, as a period piece, would maybe, that yeah. work? Possibly, yeah. Which I said would be something you guys would consider, <laughs> or do you think not? It might be too specific, you know, because a lot of it ha is, has to deal with because we make these as one-offs. They're like movies, right? It's like a new and you know, obviously you've heard through like history, like the movie industries, right? They only produce so many a year, and so much and and. A, percentage of them have to be profitable in order for the studio to continue so there's a lot of these niche pieces that are might be kind of cool as concept as art pieces but if the, if the, the, the audience doesn't buy these things then the, the, the company goes down well, that's what I'm like, asking like, could it work in today's world that's what I'm getting at yeah um, I think it would be a hard stuff I do too and it's yeah. a shame yeah yeah I agree because yeah. those stories I mean when I do film more and more yeah. You know, those stories, which works today. Yeah. Some of those early stories are from the Yeah. Yeah. That's just my yeah. <laughs> All right. Good to finish. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Loading. Writer Jim yeah, I'm well. It's been a long. It's been right. a while. So yesterday, you, what are you spending? It's been exactly 24 hours. Yesterday, you brought us this big thing to unbox. And I got nothing. Today. I got this cup of coffee. I'll share are it with anybody. Yes, we're gonna unbox it. Let's see what's inside. Mmm. So DC box. When it, I wish I had something. When it came to you know Batman Harley Quinn the last movie, obviously you know when you're writing the dialogue, you're drawing from more of a blank slate than this, which has you know a comic book to lift the dialogue from. So what's that type of version like what's it like you know being a writer for something like this versus an original story well what I would say about that is uh, that the the source material uh, Brian and Mike's graphic novel is fantastic and it's evocative and it's a fantastic mood it's also very short and if we just adapted that it would be a 12 minute movie and you would go oh okay you know that was super super close to the original but uh, and sometimes you think you want that give me give me exactly what I read in the comic book and then you see it and it's like well that was exactly what it was in the comic book and this is what I think would whet your appetite but really at the end of that 12 minutes you go gosh I wish it was a whole movie and so we've we've anticipated your desire for more and provided you with 72 minutes of of, of uh, a Victorian Gotham City, Jack the Ripper, and uh, a Sherlock Holmes-like Batman. So what kind of research did you have to do, if any, for a period piece like this? I know uh, we, we all did, the whole team. Um, on the animation side, they they Googled everything. I mean, th this is a team that's never... They had to make, you know, 72 different kinds of women's hats. They had to do bustles. They had to do... Uh, there are no cars in this Gotham City. There are only carriages and horses. They had to draw all those. They had to draw. They had to learn men's suits. What what does an affluent man wear? What is what a, if you're what's a workman wear? And it, it was a colossal amount of work. And you would think, oh, they must have been miserable. And nothing could be further from the truth. I, I, they were all engaged and excited because they like this piece. They love the story, and and it was a challenge. They were they were interested in it. it. Sometimes sometimes everybody just gets excited at the same time, and it becomes more than the sum of its parts. Uh, as for me, I I I'm a lifelong Sherlock Holmes fan, so I try to you know take yes. take his <laughs> take his Batman's identity as the world's greatest detective and you know, marry it to the the world's 
first consulting detective. Uh, that's, that's the movie you should do. With, 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 adapt the comics with Batman and Sherlock Holmes got together. Oh. That would be fantastic. Um, I'm open to doing it, and we're, we're going to hopefully do some more Elseworld, so uh, I'm maybe we will. Any other I, DC characters making any DC characters making the surprise uh, appearance as opposed to the ones that were from the source material? All I will tell you, if, well, first of all, yes, uh, and I would think that some of the fun of this movie is going to be watching the characters appear in Victorian London and then going, "Oh, that's." And and then, and sometimes you're going to go, oh, that's perfect. That's exactly who they would be in Victorian London. And sometimes they get, you're going to go, what are you nuts? You know, because but that's part of the fun. So, uh, so hopefully, uh, I'm not going to spoil them all because uh, right. part of the fun is them coming up and you recognizing them. You know. I do remember from the trailer uh, the Robin reference, Dickie Boy, Jason Todd. Well, I don't know anything about that. Uh, yes, yes, the, they they do appear as the Baker Street Irregulars. Uh, I mean in. Not so many words, but um, but yes, all all of those Holmesian things have an antecedent. And then I also researched a little bit of uh, of uh, Jack the Ripper, which was I didn't go delve too deeply because it's really flipping disturbing. <laughs> but I tried to put in like the way he would bait the newspapers with letters, and um, uh, also there's uh, I, I read a bunch of them. Um, uh, there are, is a history of Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper literature, and uh, some are really good and some not so much, but they uh, they helped set a mood, you know? They think they might have found it. Hmm? They think they might have found it. I think they often <laughs> think that, though. They thought that since the, like, the, the, since the murder was happening, so well, we know, we, you know... It's the diary thing. It's been documented as being legit. Well, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that the actual Jack the Ripper is probably not the same one that's in Gotham City. When it comes to tone, is this going to have uh, a similar double tone that Batman and Harley Quinn had? That you <laughs> we don't know what the rating on this is yet, and uh, it, but I think by nature of the subject matter, it is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it is certainly more adult in nature, and because of the grim nature of the crimes, um, I would say on the mood wheel, it's probably on the opposite side of Harley, Batman and Harley Quinn. Um, you're, I don't think you can... Uh, I can promise you that the amount of flatulence humor is <laughs> dialed way down. There... <laughs> I I, I'm slide. sorry. To, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> Come on. My Gaslight. They write the what a layup. <laughs> Writing like something like Detective and Dark and like gritty. Like, what do you think that um, like enhances uh, like about the viewer? What can a viewer benefit from watching things like this? Well, I think that. Um, for one, it's a mystery, so I, I will ask you, and when you see it, I'm sure you'll all see it early, don't spoil the ending. You know, it's not, uh, it's not the crying game, but, uh, but uh, there is fun in, in being surprised. And uh, it's a legitimate mystery. I tried to, you know, Agatha Christie talks about a fair play mystery where the clues are all there, so you should be able to figure out who's behind it. So, hopefully, it will engage you in that way, and, and that you're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. At the same time, you're enjoying the emotional journey of, of Bruce Wayne and, and Selina, and uh, and 
as for the actual, there also there's an element of horror to it as well. It's like sort of like a horror movie, and, and you're supposed to thrill to it and and um, and be scared, you know, just like a, a regular thriller. And I think I think that way you're being engaged mentally and emotionally and then viscerally. And I just made that up. That's not bad. I should, I should teach a class. <laughs> By the way, Brave and the Bold has a Sherlock Holmes and Batman episode. I know. That's melching. I'm Steve melching right now. And that's a good one. What's the difference between working in the comic adaptations uh, classic mm -hmm. new ones? You mean doing origin, totally original and, and adaptations? Yeah, no. New, 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 uh, new comics and classic comics. Oh, well, you know what? I don't think they're really that different at all. I mean, what we try to... It's a, it's a strange thing, but... You know, when we adapt, even whether whether they're classics, whether it's like Court of Owls, which is Scott Snyder and it's new, or whether you're doing Judas Contract and it's 30 years old, or, um, what you do is you, you go through the books and you say... You don't adapt them beat by beat. They don't, they don't um, pace out the same way in a comic book as they do in a movie. It, it, it's clunky because of the format and how they end, and then everyone's a cliffhanger, and you're waiting a month, and then somebody gets fired off the book, or somebody says they don't like the direction of it. It, it isn't a totally cohesive story. So what we try to do is figure out what people like about it or what we liked about it. Like, what what's the image that comes to the surface? What what are the things that we like and how do we form those things into a story with a, with a strong beginning, middle, and end? So I think it's kind of the same. It's just a matter of the level of familiarity with the material. Travis Langley is a psychologist at the Tennessee State University and he's done a lot of books on superheroes, Batman, Wonder Woman, etc. He, um, he thinks that... Um, I did an interview with him, and one of the, okay. and one of the things he said was that, uh, you know, Batman's got like, and I, I was talking about this was saying, Batman's got like 77 years of, of, of canon, not canon, but of stories behind it. Yes. And that to mine those stories could be, you know, use some of those stories. I mean, going back far, what, back back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Be, like, incredible. Like, I mentioned to him, imagine doing a film, a film noir version of, Batman versus the Monk set in 1931. I was just gonna say Mad Monk, you know. But, yeah, uh, there's absolutely no reason not to do all those. I think yeah. it's a it, this it's a it's a huge treasure trove of material, yeah. and uh, and I hope to stick around long enough to mine the best ones of it. <laughs> it would be awesome. Um, uh, all right, I have to go do the rest of the gauntlet. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Make me sound smarter and younger. <laughs> Definitely one. And cool. <laughs> and yeah, Bruce Tim. Uh, I got like a bit of a romance question. Um, so a romance question? I, oh dear. <laughs> I love um, what you did with Wonder Woman and Batman. That's amazing. Uh, but this one will have Selena. On yeah. What are your favorite aspects of both those relationships? Um, you know, I don't. <sighs> We never really got too deep into the Wonder Woman and Batman thing in, in Justice League. It was just something that we thought it'd be interesting to kind of explore. And then and the more we kind of got into it, we kind of went, yeah, maybe they're not really soulmates, you know? It's like they, they, they kind of make sense as a, on, a, on a flirtatious level, but I don't know that they're really, you know, meant for the long haul. Um, the, I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know if Bruce Wayne's meant for the long haul with anybody, but um, he's, he's, he's got a lot of issues. 
but uh, uh, but with Bruce Wayne and Selena in this movie, um, one of the things that we we embraced obviously the original comic that uh, that uh, Brian August, Augustine and uh, Mike Mignola did. Um, but beyond just the the Jack the Ripper story, we were also looking at, at other things from that era, like the Sherlock Holmes stories that we really enjoyed. And so um, when we decided to bring Selena Kyle into the story, we were both Jim and I were both really um, influenced by uh, the Irena Adler character from the you know uh, the, the Sherlock Holmes story. So um, so she has a little bit of Irena Adler's DNA in her. Um, so she's an actress slash adventurous. Um, and it just kind of made fun, or it, it kind of made sense to kind of team them up, not just as allies, but also you know romantically within the scope of the movie. Um, so there's definitely some sparks that fly between them in, in an interesting kind of way. The Earth Two Batman did marry Selena Kyle, and lived with, and they were married for 20 years. They were married for 20 years. And you're in Brave and the Bold. I forget the issue number. I have it. Huh. I forget the issue number. They married it. And, you know, they were married until they killed off the Earth 2 Batman. Oh, Earth 2 Batman. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course, of course. Yes, yes, yes. I forgot about that. So that worked? I guess. So, um... Uh, this features Bruce Greenwood as uh, Batman. He worked with them uh, at uh, Batman Under the Red Hood. Yeah. Uh, Bruce's decision, uh, cast him as their hesitance, cast him again, or what do you think he does new with his Batman um, versus the other one? You know, uh, I hate to say it, but we have like a, a, a whole closet full of dependable Batman actors, you know, with Kevin Conroy and people like like Brian, Green, uh, Brian Greenwood. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of... Um, It, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like one less thing to worry about when you're making a movie. You know, when we use somebody like Brian, because we've worked with him before, and he's he's a fabulously talented actor, and we know that he gets Batman. So it's like, uh, you know, whenever we stunt cast one of these movies, if we, if we cast somebody new, um, especially with somebody that we've never worked with before, there's always that little bit of a gamble. You know, we don't know if the person's actually going to be good in the part or not. Um, so, you know, casting somebody like Kevin or Bruce, it's like, okay, it's one less thing to worry about. We've got this big, complicated production. That's, that's one thing that's like, check off the box. So, um, so I, I was, I'm kind of stealing one of my Patriots questions from earlier. Uh, the, the, the joke was, every time we asked what was next, the, they would be gotten by Gaslight. So what's next? <laughs> what's next? That was, that was sort of the default answer was always Gotham by Gaslight. Oh, I now see. That we have Gotham by Gaslight. <laughs> well, uh, in else worlds. Uh, well, we're not actually allowed to talk about anything that hasn't been um, announced yet, publicity-wise. But uh, in terms of else worlds stories. Um, we don't know if we're going to do any more, frankly. Uh, it really depends on how, how you know, the, good the, the fan response is, you know, both critically and monetarily, frankly. So if it does really, really well, it gets like it definitely gives us a lot more um, uh, leverage with the home video people who say, "Hey, you know, it worked once, so let's try it again." Uh, there's a tons of really good Elseworlds stories. One of my favorites is Superman Red Sun. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. If everybody buys, you know, multiple copies and gifts them to their their family and friends, <laughs> maybe it'll happen. It was always like that was James Tucker's like go-to answer. Like, what, what's your favorite part? Gotham by Gaslight. What's your favorite part of Gotham by Gaslight? Oh, so, so I stole his. How did you pry this from his hands? <laughs> he was too busy. He was busy with his own line of movies, so it was like you know. And I outrank him. So <laughs> longevity, age before beauty. <laughs>
DC Animated Universe uh, took over 10 years and it was a great success. People in Brazil love the shows right. since Batman Animated to GLU. And uh, how, how it goes to, to an end? It was a, a public question or it was a company question? Oh, oh the, 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 um, yeah. the, the DC Animated Series, the, the TV series? Um, it just, I think it just, it just kind of kind of naturally came to its end. Um, Cartoon Network didn't want to re renew it for another season, and honestly, we were a little bit tired and exhausted too. So it's like, you know, if we had taken a year off, we probably could have come back and do do some more. But at the time, it was just like, yeah, I'm ready for something now. There was so. more JNU uh, seasons planned. No, there was nothing more planned. No, in fact, even that last season was we didn't we didn't have any plan for that at all. We had, we had finished up this, the previous season. Which we, with what we thought was like a pretty good end of the series, we thought that was the end. And they said, "Oh yeah, we'll come back for one more season." We went, "Great! Now what do we do?" <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we were kind of like running on fumes at that point. So when, when the show ended, it was just kind of like, "Yeah, I think we're ready to move on." Awesome! Thanks. So, it, it seems to me that uh, this is sort of a question I was discussed yesterday. There's like, there's usually like two movies or so in continuity, and then one sort of like one off a year, just about something uh, like that. About, yeah, it's about the ratio. Yeah. Um, is it, is it more fun to do the one-offs, or, or do you enjoy doing the continuity? Of, well, the, con the question from yesterday. Yeah, the continuity question, uh, the, the movies, those are, all, those, those are all James. He's doing all of those, so I, I have nothing to do with them. So even if I would want to, he would say, no, these are mine. So, uh, so it just kind of so turns out. So you took off them by gaslight yeah, from exactly. his revenge. Yeah, no, 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 it's all good. Um, it's just, it's just literally, I just happened to be in the place, right, in the right place, at the right time to be doing the, the one-offs. So, you know, and he's done some one-offs as well, but most of the movies he does are, are in his own established continuity. Bouncing off the Sure. Did I always want to do this movie? Uh, yeah, ever since we first um, started doing these uh, direct-to-video movies. Um, and they're, they're most of them based on existing properties or existing graphic novels or, or series. Um, this has always been on my shortlist. It's way, it's always been way up there, just because it's so unique. Um, I love the art style. I love the idea that it's it's a period piece that takes place in Victorian days. Um, it, it, nothing wrong with with the modern world or superheroes and stuff, but it's it's nice to do something that's a little bit different than you know muscle suits in, you know, modern metropolis and, and Gotham City, you know, so uh, uh, I've always been a, a big fan of, like, horror movies, the, you know, un universal horror movies in the 1930s and 40s, and the Hammer films from the 50s and 60s, um, has been a big influence on my, my, my aesthetic, so uh, getting to, like, kind of combine my love of superheroes and horror movies in, in one package, it was kind of like a dream, dream job. So. What's it like not having an Andrea Romano uh, you know, I it's it, it it's 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 on one hand it's a drag because I, I really enjoy working with her and she's a great person just to hang out with and be with, um, but uh, you know, um, fortunately we we found a really good uh, uh, casting director named Wes Gleason who who we've been doing the last couple of movies with and uh, you know he's he's great to work with as well, um, but uh, but yeah, Andrea was awesome and. Um, you know, so it's, it's it's a bummer that she's retiring under the circumstances that she is, um, and I wish her nothing but the best. And hopefully, you know, this this thing that she's got is temporary, and she'll be back on her feet. And... So combining that thriller with uh, with superheroes, like, what was like your favorite part of doing something like that? Um, 
Well, fortunately, we when we first started doing the, the, the film, we told the home video people, we said, you know, this is a there's a possibility that this movie, because it deals with a, a basically a famous serial killer in Gotham City, uh, that if we stay true to the comic and to the time period and the historical events, uh, there is a possibility that this movie could put us in like R-rated category, you know, territory. And so we just wanted to make sure that they were okay with that and uncomfortable with that. And they said, yeah, if it, if it goes that way, that's fine. At, at the moment, the movie hasn't been rated by the MPAA, so we don't know if it's going to be R-rated or PG-13. It could probably go either way. But um, so it was just nice to know that we had that option if we needed to. So we didn't have to like uh, um, tone any of the stuff down. I mean, it's it's not. I, I'll be honest with you. It's not a, a, an out and out gore fest. I mean, there is blood, and there are there are, there are a couple murder scenes that are like, Ugh. Um, but uh, um, <laughs> but it's not. It's you know, it's tastefully done, but it definitely gets the point across that you know, something horrible is happening. Out there. Was just telling um, Samu that the character designs remind me very much of Jeff Matsuda styles. That's also, interesting. Yes, like, the same thing. So I was curious, um, adapting like you obviously can't try to do this distinct style for animation. So I'm curious how did, what you guys went about not so much aping the style, but doing something. Yeah, it was tricky because we uh, of, of all the different artists, comic book artists that I think their styles could adapt to animation. I think Mike's could adapt pretty well. I mean, there was actually a, a short that was done about like, 8 to 10 years ago called The Amazing Screw on Head, which is really, really well done. It's a really good um, adaptation of his, his art and his style. Um, but it's it's tricky. There, one thing about Mike's style is that um, it's the way he shadows his characters and the way the characters are colored. You'll notice there's not a lot of gradations and shadows on his characters. There's His, his, his stuff is very high con. It's like you know, a brightly lit character with really deep shadows, which is just like a big black area. Doing solid black shadows in animation is really, really tricky. Um, not only that, but another thing about Mike's style that we thought would be a little bit difficult to translate directly is that he has a tendency to shoot his film or, all, or shoot his comics as if he's shooting like a stage play. Everything's kind of like at eye level. Everything moves left to right. He doesn't do a lot of like dynamic, you know, forced perspective shots or tilted, you know, camera camera angles, which is like modern cinema is all about, you know, dynamics. So I'd have to like kind of teach my crew how to like, you know, story, you know, tell their story in a more, you know, Mike Mignola kind of way, and I think it would have just taken a lot more time than we had available to us. So we decided not to make it look exactly like a Mike Mignola comic, um, and we kind of did like a hybrid of certain elements of his style with a more animation-friendly style. Once that was over, I was done. And it was still mid-afternoon. Usually in San Diego, take a shot. We don't finish until dinner time or later each day. So I did like that even though this was a busy convention, the schedule was a lot more relaxed. And after looking around the con floor some, I decided I wanted to do some exploring for New York City. Trump Tower was within walking distance, and I decided to visit it out of a historical curiosity. Um, you know, it's I'm not going to get too much into politics here, but just, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, just because of how prominent, you know, that place has been and as a landmark and now as a part of history, I was just really curious to go over there and see it. So I walked over there and, you know, enjoyed looking at the New York streets. Uh, there was a few vendors that I was like, oh, let me try and buy something. But it was cash only the whole way. And... um 
most other places were kind of in a cashless society. I just had cards on me, so I didn't really buy anything. Now, since the first family wasn't in town, the security was not as heavy, but it still existed. There was armed guards with like heavy armor and guns standing outside, and when I went in, I had to put my stuff through an x-ray machine, but otherwise, it wasn't that hard to get in. Now, I know that when Melania and Baron were living there a few months ago, it was uh, would have been I, I read that it took hours to get in. Uh, the place is accessible to the public or a few restaurants and shops on the first few floors. Not much to really do. And like, you know, once you go in there, you're kind of done after like 15 minutes. But it's interesting to see for its historical significance. Uh, I took a selfie and I tagged my location on Facebook with the caption that I had a meeting with the big guy. My grandmother freaked out. I had to call her. Afterwards, I took the subway back to Brooklyn, which, you know, I still like love doing like I'm such a tourist. I'm like, I'm on a subway in New York. And I did some light exploring through the Brooklyn streets before heading back to Gerard's for some more old school Sega Genesis. about rivers is you can't step in the same river twice the water's always changing always flowing but people i guess can't live like that we all must pay a price to be safe we lose our chance of ever knowing what's around the river bend waiting just around the river Just around the river bend For me Coming for me I feel it there beyond those trees Or right behind these waterfalls Can I ignore that sound of distant drumming For a handsome sturdy husband Who builds handsome sturdy walls And never dreams that something might be coming Just around the river just around the river bend, I look once more. Just around the river bend, beyond the shore, somewhere past the sea, don't know what for. Why do all my dreams extend just around the river bend? Just around the river bend. Should I choose the smoothest course? Steady as the beating drum Should I marry Coco Wong? Is all my dreaming When I got off of the subway on Saturday, I couldn't cross the street. There was a Korean pride parade. A bunch of angry pedestrians were trying to navigate their way with no luck. And I actually felt really, really bad for the uh, parading Koreans because they had smiles on their face. They were waving to the people, but the people, you know, just cared about the fact that they were inconvenienced. They were really mad and there was just so many blocks closed off and we couldn't cross the street. 
um, they were trying to navigate no look and I wound up bumping into while I was trying to figure out how to get to the other side to get to the convention I bumped into Gary Mariano of all people we worked together to try and find a way across we chatted a bit and it was really odd to be teaming up with him on the New York streets you know of all places I teased him because he was wearing a plain black t-shirt instead of his usual party guy outfits to which he turned around revealing a picture of the beach on the back so um, but after that we split up he wanted to go shopping because this was a day that he didn't have to run any press rooms Saturday was an odd day for me because there was only one thing on my agenda that I was had confirmed there was a few things I had that I wanted to do which I'll get into but I went to the Batman DC Comics panel. I had reserved press seating thanks to DC. I asked them for um, a press pass for the panel the previous day when I was doing the interviews at the booth, and they said sure and gave me a wristband. Anyone who says which like it helps you get into the room early and you know and there's reserved seating. Anyone that says that a press pass doesn't get you anything is not using it the right way. You have to you know work your connections and you know ask for things and do research, track people down. I sat next to a CBR reporter who was live blogging the panel and, um, um, I had already read the preview copy for Lonely Place of Living. She had not. So when she, like, when James Tynion dropped the thing that there was going to be a Connor Kent reference in the upcoming issue, she gasped. And, like, you know, I saw her, like, OMG on Twitter and stuff. It was, it was fun. And, you know, and uh, this isn't me looking down on her or laughing at her or anything like that because I had that same reaction, too, initially. Connor Kent is a really special character in all of our hearts. And I'm glad that his absence is being addressed. And I'm glad that. The room had a good reaction to it. Um, so I live streamed the panel for TBU's Twitter. I love live streaming more than live blogging. When I did the first few Comic Cons, I did some live blogs for Crawl Space, but um, I didn't have personal hotspot like I do now. So it was difficult because I was using convention center Wi Fi, which would go in and out. And you had to type really, really fast. You know, sometimes faster than what they were saying. And it was not a relaxing experience. Um, so with live streaming, I can relax a bit more, but my hand would feel better with a tripod. But, you know, maybe something that I'll invest in in the future. The panel was hosted by Jason Inman, who's the host of DC All Access. There's a slight six degrees of connection between him and us. He co-hosts a show called Geek History Lesson with his fiance Ashley Victoria Robinson. And Ashley went to film school with... Um, Kevin Cushing, who was on Spider-Man Crawl Space with Donovan and Stella and I. Um, and she was even on the inaugural episode of Comic Book Film Review, another show that Donovan, Stella, and I did. Ashley also has a connection to Brad Douglas, um, his co-worker, and she actually visited his office, which is something that Donovan, Stella, or I have never done. Just a fun interesting piece of trivia so consider jason a podcasting second cousin by marriage um, anyway here's that panel james tynan the fourth tom king scott snyder and hey. Tully hamner all right so we're gonna dip a little bit into batman and the signal now, this is a brand new book that is coming out. Uh, first off, I want to talk to Cully, because the signal, Duke, he's getting a new costume in this book, and I want to talk about what did, how long did it take you to come up with a new design? Uh, you know, I, was, I was riffing off what, uh, what Greg came up with, so like, some of that's baked in. I don't think any of our mics are on. Yours is. So, 
As well, there's a duke uh, jumping up and down in the back of the room. Yeah. All right, I think we have, I think we have power. Are we have power now? We got it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was kind of riffing off of what uh, Greg Capullo did. I mean, some of it was sort of baked in, like, you know, the colors were kind of already established. I didn't want to change that. I wanted it to look like what we knew Duke to have been, you know, so far. And all I wanted to do really was kind of slick it up and, and kind of make it look young and, and uh, you know, kind of play with the aspect of, of, the, of daytime Gotham. So, you know, that's why you have this sort of reversed out bat symbol on his chest. It's, it's kind of reflective so it can pick up light. And, and, you know, possibly confuse an enemy or something like that. And it was just, uh, you know, I've done a lot of these costume designs and, and you know, this one excited me. This was a, a really cool thing to get involved with. Uh, can we have the Duke uh, run up here real quick just so the whole audience can see this? Come up here, come up here. Do, do, do some poses. Look at this. I love that guy. Don't quit your day job, please. <laughs> now, Tony, let's talk about what is it like, and is it intimidating at all to be co-writing this book with Scott Snyder? What is the process? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Damn straight. I would uh, it is a pleasure to work with Scott. Um, I, I came out of the, the DC Writers Workshop, the Talent Development Workshop, and so it, it was like, uh, I mean, it was really akin to, like, you know, Duke training with Batman. This is exactly what it was like for me, you know? Months of, of training with Scott Snyder, uh, getting uh, lots and lots of notes. Uh, <laughs> that's still happening today. That's still happening. <laughs> uh, but it's a pleasure. No, it's... it's um, this is the dream team. It's working with the dream team right now. Nice. So Scott, now this is a series that is often uh, this is born out of Dark Days, The Forge, and the casting. Um, how much is this book going to tie back into both of those one-shots? Uh, well, we wanted it to be self-standing. It's got a mythology that sort of ties into a lot of that stuff. But first of all, I just wanted to say thank you guys uh, for coming out. This room is amazing. Uh, and I was thinking about it this week. Like this week, you had Sean's first issue for White Knight. You've got amazing, you got amazing stuff from James with the Lonely Place of Living right here, right? You've got this guy doing amazing Batman right now. Tom King. Now War War of Jones. I've told him like three times. I don't know. <laughs> you got War of Jokes and Riddles, right? The proposal, all that amazing stuff. We did All Star, and now we're doing. It's like I really feel like as a, as a fan of the character, it's the best time to be a Batman fan, and that comes back to you guys being so supportive of what we do. So thank you so much. You guys are Gotham. It's true. You're the best fans in the world. Serious to all of us, not not yeah. like to everybody here. Um, so with the signal, I mean. For me, the idea was, you know, I, I was, we wanted to find a good place for Duke because we didn't want him to take the mantle of Nightwing or Robin, and those were options, by the way, like, of, of doing that stuff. Instead, we wanted him to find some place really organic, and about a year and a half ago or so, I was talking to Jeff Johns and James, um, and uh, we were talking about, like, where could he land? What, what fits his personality? And we came up with this idea that he would be the hero by day. And we said, if we're going to do that, you know, it would give him tremendous independence, it would fit what he did with We Are Robin, and it would give us a, a, a kind of way of 
creating an entirely new Gotham City. So for us, Gotham by day is the place where like new threats grow. All the young threats come out a day, and by, t by nighttime they're mature, Batman takes them on. But he comes to Duke and he's like, I can't take care of everything all the time. You know the city better than I do in this area, this particular way. I want you to, to be my guy during the day. Um, and so what Tony uh, came up with, when, when I was sort of playing around with the idea, he came into the class and he was an incredible writer from Go. Um, he came in and started pitching stuff like, well, what if all these young characters are starting to develop, these, these meta characters, and Duke doesn't know why, they're like him, right? And what if we create a Juvie Arkham? I was like, oh, Juvie Arkham. <laughs> I was like, right, I'll do that, man, that sounds fun, you know? And uh, what he, we really, and, and then Cully came in and started designing the stuff and talking about what if we make the city different by day in terms of Bruce is working on a project called Gotham Proper that extends buildings up by glass, you know, so they're super tall and then gives these, this housing to people that work for the city and it becomes part of this big mystery and what if we give them a cop instead of Gordon who quit the night shift and comes on by day because they fought Mr. Freeze and it was just great. It was like so much fun to create a completely different neighborhood and all credit to these two guys. I mean, at this point, you know, I had such a great time writing Batman with Greg and it's such a joy to watch what Tom and James and everybody's doing with this stuff. And I have my own plans, you know, I, I, I'll tease later like what I'm doing with Sean after this and give you some heads up on some of that story if I get a chance to spoil it, because why not, right? We're all here. It's not like it's being videotaped. It's not like it's gonna get out of this room, right? But point being, um, it really is, it's, it's a thrill and an honor to be able to stay young as a writer by seeing people come in with such fresh ideas, such energy. It's why I love teaching, it's why I love doing the series, and the fact that you guys have been supportive of Cosplay Duke and been out there saying we're willing to give these things a chance, it means a lot, you know, because because you don't get those opportunities very often. And when you guys come out and say, listen, we'll give it a shot, and that's what we're asking, is like, thank you for the support. I believe in this book deeply. Everything good about it is them. Everything you don't like is me. Ultimately, 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 and it's a really good- 100%, I, I can it is. totally confirm. True of your run, true of everybody's run, everything's me. But it's, no, I-, I You're so I, repetitive. Why do you make me keep saying that over and over again? I, well, I can, I, can say it. I can say it because I know there's very little bad about it because I'm, they did it. I'm really proud of it. And ultimately, uh, you know, the point is you guys make it a really fertile um, playground for us right now. And giving a book like this a chance and going out and supporting it full force says to retailers, says to people, we want new concepts and we want new things that, that, that are cut from whole cloth, that give new characters a place. And it means a lot to us that you guys have shown, shown us such support. I can tell you, it's, it's going to be really, really good. So I'm very, very proud of what these guys are doing. And honestly, it is, it is an honor to work with Scott. Like, you, can't, you can't ask for a better teacher and co-writer. I mean, this guy's a legend. Well, right? You. No, I'm going to back you up on that. I'm going to back you up on that. I will say, it's been, a, it's been amazing watching Tony bust through the way he has, because he's really brought it on this. You guys are going to really love this. You're going to be surprised at how great this is. But also, I mean, I've been wanting to work with this guy for a while. And, you know, just, just riffing with, on the phone with story ideas with both of these guys is just an amazing experience. I've been at this a long time, and I rarely have, like, such an awesome, you know, kind of a, like, a, like a, an experience just talking story with these guys. All I do is talk on the phone. Everybody on this panel will tell you. I'm like a high school girl, you know, with like a cord wrapped around my finger. And I'm like, I'm just like, I'm like, well, what if he fights another monster? All right, by, by, by raise of hands on the panel, by raise of hands, how many people on this panel have been called by Scott Snyder about a Batman story? Okay. And by the way, wait, 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 no, no, like, like today, today or like yes, now today.
today. I do. I run everything by them, and the funniest thing is, I'm always like, "You guys need to share stuff with me," and none of them do. I get like nothing, get like nothing back. I would imagine they're all looking at their phones, being like, "We can't go." That's actually not true. I shared some Batman ideas with you, and you're like, "Well, I did that last year. I'm gonna do that." What you just said next, so I just stopped telling you. I just did. That's why you never heard about White Knight until it's too late. It's funny, my wife, Scott calls it past 11, my wife's like, don't answer, it's never a short phone my phone. Five hours later, a new Batman story is born. Okay. All right, let's move on to Tom King. Uh, Batman 32 came out this week. Uh, is everybody out there like the War of Jokes and Riddles by around, uh, let's hear the applause. Okay. Someone said, hell yeah. <laughs> you fucking nerds. Now, Tom, this has been a flashback story for you, but this has also been a story about Catwoman and Batman. And I have to ask, of course, the story all began with Batman asking Catwoman a very important question. And uh, now we know the answer to that question. But was there ever any debate about what her answer would be? Or did you know right away what Catwoman's answer would be? No, I, I was, I, I was like, should I say hell yes? Because yeah, that would be, it would be totally, no, uh, no, yeah, I knew, I knew from day one. This was all the, yeah. If you look back at my Batman number ones, when they asked me, do you want to be on Batman? And I, I was like, what's the central relationship? Because I'm going to try to do 100 issues, you know? What's going to be the central driving force of the whole 100 issues? And I was like, it's going to be Batman Catwoman. And that's why if you see Batman number one, the, the alternative covers they make you buy, there's a ton of Catwomans on them. Because that was the one thing I gave them ahead of time. I was like, it's going to be Catwoman. This is about that relationship. This is about that love. Um, and now you're finally seeing it. We're a third of the way through, and you're at the engagement. And it just goes all happy and pleasant from here on out, man. <laughs> it's just 77 issues of flowers and roses. It's like, I saw it's like Batman in an apron, like flipping paint. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. the cook. <laughs> now you He's wearing a Superman apron. It's really degrading. <laughs> now, Tom, you once told me that you came up with the idea for the War of Jokes and Riddles like a long time ago. Uh, when you came up with this idea several years ago, did you also have the ending always in place as well? Uh, no, I, I used to, I was an annoying wannabe writer, and I used to send pitches um, to the, 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 the editor of, of uh, the edit Batman at the time, went, I, I, I did a story for him, and he's like, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks, which is, as a writer, like, what your whole life is. So, um, uh, he, he said, but keep in touch, and what he meant was, like, go away forever, but, <laughs> uh, well, well, I didn't hear that, because I'm not... A smart man. So I was. I, I would send him a pitch every single week, a Batman pitch, just because I was like, oh, by keep in touch, he probably means keep pitching him forever. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I'm sure as soon as they hit his inbox, he's like, oh, that fucker again, nerd. Um, and uh, one of the pitches was the War of Jokes and Riddles, because you know I was an unknown writer, so why not pitch an entire event that changes the history of Batman? I'm sure it's like, yeah, you're the man. Um, so that's where it started, with an empty pitch to, a, to an annoyed editor. And now it actually exists in the book, man. That's a dream come true. Stores. <laughs> uh, speaking of stuff you can buy in stores, you also have an upcoming storyline in Batman called The Rules of Engagement with the amazing Joelle Jones. 
Tell us a little yes. bit about this story because I'm excited because anytime Batman's on a horse, it means business. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I lied. I'm so I lied. Okay, I'm sorry. We have to do these things called previews. You guys know what that is? That's a deep cut. So, like in the comic industry, we have to tell people what our books are about like six months in advance. And I couldn't tell you that they were going to get engaged, so I made up this whole fake story that is called like the way we were or some BS, and I put it in the previews. So I, I'm sorry. I'm just apologizing for lying. It's actually called Rules of Engagement. It's going to be the next 17 issues. At least that's up to issue, thir- up to issue 50. And, uh, and it's an, an exploration of what it means that we're in this sort of new status quo that you've never seen in 78 years of Batman, that Batman's engaged. And we start off... I'm going to spoil... Can I spoil it? You guys Please do. All right. So I... So, okay. So, you know how, like, when you're a, when you're a writer... Does anyone here want to be a writer or, like, a creative person? You get like an image in your head that you want to write when you get something. So as soon as I saw, um, I was like, Catwoman and Batman are engaged. The next thing I saw in my head was Catwoman and Talia in a sword fight in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, well, I need need, like someone who can draw like the baddest ass violin, you know, blood flowing everywhere stuff. And so I got Joelle Jones, who's just the perfect man. She draws violence like a dance. And... uh, (laughs) So, anyways, pretend I didn't tell you that because that's a spoiler. But yeah, this is about Batman going into the desert to sort of solve that mystery about the 237 murders, and what he finds at the end of his journey is a, a Talia al Ghul, and and and, and it, it gets awkward. <laughs> now I have to ask, what is Damien Catwoman's future stepson going to think about this engagement? Do you guys know Damien? He is cool and collected. <laughs> He's like, what? Oh, that, that happened? Totally fine. He's automatically like, hi, mom. Yeah, he's like, hi, mom. <laughs> I'm glad I'm finally in a functional family. Now that my step, half-stepmother is a known criminal, <laughs> and my mother cloned me to kill me, I'm going to call my therapist. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it, the next arc is all about Damien's reaction and how it, it, it drives him even a little bit more crazy. Nice. All right, well, let's talk to Mr. Sean Murphy up here. Uh, there was a series that came out this week, Batman White Knight, number one. If you guys haven't read this series, uh, seriously, one of the best comic books I've read this year. The art's amazing, the story's so energetic and fresh, and it generally just surprised me at ever, every turn. Now. Where did the idea of making the Joker basically a good guy, sort of, come from? Well, uh, I was a big Batman animated series fan, and uh, I... My my basis of Batman came from Tim Burton movies and that cartoon, pretty much. And uh, as much as I love Joker, I always thought he would be more of a villain if he was cured of his uh, insanity or his imbalance, whatever it is Joker has. Um, so I thought, well, what if he was cured and he was more of a smooth Don Draper type? And uh, what if he was actually um, uh, going after Batman in legal ways and using social media against him? And what's Batman going to do, like tweet back or block Joker? Is it like hashtag Batman sucks? Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it kind of came from that. I know a lot of, some stories have cured Joker before, but I really wanted to follow it down even further road and kind of dissect what it means for you know modern society and modern headlines. But... I also wanted to draw a lot of Batmobiles, so by the last issue, there's like a fleet, spoilers, of flat Batmobiles, um, you know, fixing Gotham and putting it back to the way it should be. 
Now, you like cars, you like Batmobiles. I have to ask, are we going to see the Joker-mobile in the story? Oh, man. Do you guys want to see a Joker-mobile? I don't like that. Well, too bad, because I didn't do one. <laughs> but it's not too late. Maybe I can... What a tease! Maybe an issue eight. Yeah, maybe an issue eight, I can throw something in there. They get to redraw the series, you guys. All right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, in this series, we also see that Harley Quinn is going to be quite different. I also, you, you, had, you did this amazing design of Nightwing and Batgirl. And as a big Nightwing fan, I have to ask, is Nightwing going to show up more in this story, or is this primarily just Batman Joker? No, it's more about, it's about the family, too. Uh, you know, Batgirl, Nightwing being Bruce's, uh, you know, trying to ground him in some way. You know, Nightwing, my Nightwing is more of like, the angry young version of Bruce that's about to, that could go off the edge as well. And Batgirl is the one who's balanced and realistic, and she's sort of the heart of the story. Um, and uh, for the, yeah, for the costume designs, I kind of went with the Cameron Stewart um, uh, one that he did, which I thought was really successful, just tweaked it a bit. And uh, Nightwing is just the animated series Nightwing with a motorcycle jacket, so there's nothing <laughs> brilliant there. I think I was tired, and I'm like, motorcycle jacket, done. <laughs> and then Scott called, and he's like, do you want to talk about Batman? Voice. <laughs> <laughs> he literally, he drew a book. The, what, the, um, what's it called again? Oh, so my sketchbook, I did. <laughs> Under the uh, Hood. It's called Under the Hood, and I did a story of Scott and I uh, as two characters driving around New York just talking about stuff like me, like, oh, here's how you draw this, here's how you draw that. I'm just totally abusing our friendship to help me sell more units of my, my sketchbook. Except the, the whole time, all I'm trying to get him to do is talk and draw Batman yeah. in the thing, like as we drive around and eventually I steal the script and start writing Batman into it, so you see Batman driving up. It's great. Yeah, it's literally, it's like a total. I had Scott take some uh, selfies of himself on the side, and I had to capture the snide brow kind of up like this. <laughs> the snide brow, I like that. I should do a variant cover of that. And as you turn the cover, the eyebrow goes up and down. <laughs> it's like lenticular. Yeah. yeah. One of those. Not creepy at all. <laughs> now, Sean, final question about this. Does Batman White Knight have a definite conclusion, or could you see this idea going into further series? Like, do you have a trilogy idea for Batman the White Knight? I do. Um, I hope the sales look really great. The reception's been amazing. So I know Scott already kissed your ass and said thank you, but I'm going to do it again. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, so, uh, yeah, I definitely have an idea for a sequel. I'm already talking to DC about it, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Is it could be called uh, Nightwing the Blue Boy? <laughs> That's a great title. Well, not anymore. Steal it. Nail it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk to uh, James Tynan IV oh, right boy. now. <laughs> Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're letting me do it again? Yeah. <laughs> I still can't believe that this is a real thing. Like, honestly, every time, like... Like, someone comes up to get it signed, they put it in front of me, and they're just like... And I'm just like... I thought it was like a fever dream that couldn't possibly be real. Like, I grew up with the Turtles, and uh, and with Batman, and I've, I've had so much fun playing in, uh, in Gotham City. Uh, but being able to sort of, in the first volume, bring the Turtles into Gotham City, and just like, unleashing them and Shredder and the Foot Clan was a lot of fun, and then, uh, oh yeah, look look at that. Look at that amazing Freddie Williams art. It is just stunning. Uh, like, I, I don't know, it's, in the second volume, if it, the first volume was, let's bring uh, the Turtles to Gotham City, and now we're going to bring Gotham City to the Turtles. Uh, so, we're going to see uh, 
basically Batman, Robin, and Bane arrive in uh, the Turtles New York City right in the midst of a kind of civil war in the Foot Clan. Uh, there are all these different rival factions and Bane is going to take over all of them and inject them all with venom and uh, then unleash them upon the city. Uh, yeah, I just uh, wrote a scene where Bane takes over the Empire, uh, the Statue of Liberty, and the, pulls the Bane mask down over the face. <laughs> like, I'm just having, like, you have to go over the top fun with these. But like, oh yeah, there's some more. Yeah. Uh, so we've got, and we've, you can see in there too, um, finally also getting to be able to play with uh, Bebop and Rocksteady, who are two of my favorite turtle villains. And uh, they're already really, really, really strong guys, so imagine them plus Venom. That's going to be uh, really rough for our heroes. Uh, so yeah, it's a story uh, about family and the, mean, the real meaning of strength, and uh, because at the end of the day, all Batman stories are about family, and uh, all turtle stories are about family. A lot of people ask me, like, how can you, you know, mash these two worlds up? But really, at the end of the day, they have that common, that core theme. And it's not like Batman is any more realistic than the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's not, like, like, they're both inherently silly, but they have these, like, incredibly powerful, emotionally driven stories that can just go wild and over the top. Like, we've got, like, there's a castle where they put all of the, like, crazy supervillains in the middle of, like, a major metropolitan area. It's like, they're, like, Gotham City is ludicrous. And, and it's amazing. And, uh, you know, and so is the Turtles New York City because it's got robots, aliens, and ninjas all, like, you know, down every alleyway, even though New York City doesn't have alleyways. Like, it's great. <laughs> like, I love it. Is uh, James, is there a face-off between Raphael and Batman? Because they're both kind of broody. Oh yeah, no, that, that was in the first issue there. They, they, things got very heated because he, all the other turtles were like super into, they got into the Batcave and they were like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> Raphael's like, this guy's messed up. <laughs> that coin is stupid. <laughs> now James, I have to ask, what are our odds of seeing the turtle blimp in this series? Oh boy. Uh... Well, now, now, now there's a much higher. 100%? <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> James, let's also talk about Detective Comics because you've been doing this amazing Tim Drake story. Now, yeah. as we've seen in this story, there, I mean, there's some amazing um, Easter eggs to Superman the movie right there. That's looking at this art right there. And then this is Tim Drake finally escaping from his death prison of Mr. Oz. What has it been like working knee-deep in basically the mystery of DC Rebirth? Oh boy. Um, I mean, it's been a tremendous honor. Like, honestly, uh, this is a book that was always near and dear to my heart, and the fact that we were kind of, uh, that when Jeff br brought me in, uh, right when the series was in development, uh, to say, like, okay, like, he, like, we are going to take Tim Drake off the table. Uh, but to tie him into this larger thread of the, re the mystery around Rebirth and everything that's been leading up into Doomsday Clock. And uh, I remember I was just like, I was so excited that, that Detective Comics got to play in that playground. Um, 
because, like, I mean, Detective, I, like, normally it kind of sits off in its own little corner and tells smaller stories, and, uh, you know, but one of the... But one of the issues going into Rebirth was the fact that, you know, we were going to have All-Star Batman, we were going to have Batman coming out twice a month. Detective Comics needed to be something different. Um, so we did something different with it. We did a team book. We did basically, you know, X-Men starring the Bat family. It's great. Um, and uh, honestly, this was this has been my dream book my entire life. And the idea that not only was it important to me, but it was important to the kind of larger meta story of the DC Universe uh, was really powerful. But I said, I remember in that room, I said to Jeff, like, Jeff, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to do this and to plug this in, but when we do the story that brings Tim Drake back, I want that story. I want to be the one who writes that story. And he said, yeah, and he was good on his word. And this is the story that I really started building then. Um, a Lonely Place of Living uh, taps right into the heart of who Tim Drake is as a character and why he is my favorite character, not just of the Bat family, but in all the entire DC you saw in the, the bits of art that we showed, like, part of that was uh, reaffirming his classic origin from Lonely Place of Dying, uh, because that origin is the one that, that set the entire, uh, that set the character in motion, that everything that Tim became, the way that he put, puts the whole world on, carries the whole world on his shoulders, was evident in his first appearances, so getting, being able to see little flashes of those iconic moments from that original series uh, sort of set things in motion, and then to go, uh, you know, this is a story that also involves uh, the entire Bat family and, uh, you know, doomsday fighting, and, like, it's, it's a crazy, crazy story uh, that plays between the future and the pre present. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, there, there's a lot to come, and I wish I could hint at more, but the next issue to Please hint at least that one, just hint, give us a small hint. Oh, boy. Um, They're all going for it. Come on, uh, right here. Yeah, tell Tom at least. Mike was pretty. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. People who people have one of the biggest questions that people uh, have been asking me uh, since we started setting everything in motion is the question of where is Connor Kent. Um, and uh, that's a question that's also going to be raised in uh, an upcoming issue. So. Uh, Check out 966. 966, all right. Uh, Marguerite Bennett. Let's, oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's time to talk a little bit about Batwoman. Uh, first off, everybody's loving the book. I want to ask you, what is it about Batwoman that makes her distinct from every other member of the Bat family for you? Because she's a screw-up. <laughs> Starts with us. Um, no, um, you know, I, my, my gateway drug into comics was Batman the Animated Series when I was five years old. And people always asked me when I was a kid, you know, what was my favorite superheroine? You know, did I love Batgirl best? Did I like Supergirl best? Did I like Wonder Woman? And I loved Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn and Catwoman because they didn't have to be these aspirational, perfect heroines. They got to be themselves. They got to be human. They got to be flawed. They got to be anti-heroes or just straight-up villains. And I really loved Kate Kane because she didn't feel like a paragon. She didn't feel like a role model. She felt complete. She felt human and flawed and, you know, sometimes did terrible things and had to pay for them and, you know, screwed up her missions and had to own her failures. And so that was always the thing that I loved best from her. Nice. Now, in a, the recent arc, you brought in the Scarecrow. And I want to ask you, why did you choose the Scarecrow out of all of Batman's Rose Gallery to face off against Batwoman? Oh, goodness. Um, 
Well, part of it is that just in that, that same vein that Kate was so flawed and so human, and you know, that, you know, she's entranced by the symbol of the bat because it's larger than life, it's better than human. You know, you can lose your identity inside, but the bat symbol can always be perfect and you're never gonna live up. And well, Scarecrow was this villain that, you know, just by the, the, the virtue of the fear toxin, there's nothing that you get to hold back. There's no secret that you get to keep that it won't find and just dredge out of the mud of your psyche and bring up to the surface. And it's, you know, this, um, just in that idea of, um, okay, you know, psychedelic, we associate, you know, with like, like drug trips at this point, but psychedelic means soul revealing. And so it was the idea that you've been lying to yourself, you know, who do you think you are? What do you think you can do? You know, your mother's dead, your sister's mad, your father deceived and betrayed you. Who do you think you can save? What are you? And so it was just this wonderful idea. I like your scarecrow, Brad. That's good. Thanks. Sitting right next to you and giving your energy. No, so it was just this wonderful opportunity. The places that she's built her armor were not places that were meant for villains like him. But, you know, she was so good. You know, she was so relentless and ruthless. She had all of this black ops paramilitary training. You know, became this international woman of mystery. But, you know, this is something that she, she carries around in the back of her brain at all times. And it's finally something that she has to own. That, you know, you have to own the damage that you've done to others. You have to own the damage in your own story. And if you don't acknowledge it, if you don't make it part of who you are, it's going to rot inside you and eat you alive. Batman rogues that you would love to face off against Batwoman? I am currently like making my case that they get to show up, so I should probably keep my mind lips sealed. <laughs> all right, all right. All right, let's talk again back to the man who has called everybody on this panel because he just finished a series <laughs> called All Star Batman. Now, Scott, talk about what it was like for you wrapping this series. Well, you know, All-Star was a series that I wanted to do to sort of take a break from the, the sort of mainstream Batman because working with Greg was such a thrill ride. I mean, and doing Metal Now, you can see we were planning to come back and, and do this kind of big event. But Batman has its own pressures. I mean, the health of the line is, is often judged by how that book does. And luckily we have somebody like Tom who's doing such a great... No, he's, he's killing it. Killing it commercially, killing it story-wise. Um, but there's a lot of pressure. It's hard because you know you have to keep topping yourself. You have to keep everything selling really well. And I love that challenge deeply. But when I came off it with Greg, the idea I'm was so very worried right now. <laughs> I'm like incredibly stressed. <laughs> no, but when I came off it with Greg, I mean the feeling was I wanted to try and do a more prismatic approach and and look at all the villains I loved through new lenses. I wanted to do Two Face and the Penguin and. Great White and Black Mask and Ivy and you know uh, KG Beast and all these characters and all these this whole mythos I love just through different um, different directions uh, and work with different artists that you know would challenge me in new ways. So it was such a joy and it was also a place I could go and have a treat like a treehouse outside of the kind of grind of the main line. And you know I never expected it to be anything that that um, you know. Uh, uh, sold the way it did and the fact that you guys were supportive of it and kept it you know up there really meant a lot um and now i mean you know uh closing it off with Raphael, i, lo I love this last arc um we're keeping it going i mean i can tease if i if we're all playing Please like do. a spoiler game or whatever um you know uh i'm gonna be doing the next story with sean murphy after he's done uh, with uh, white knight 
Yeah, I'm really excited. It's a story. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Can you tell us what it's called? What? Can you tell us what it's called? Yeah, well, I, they're gonna kill us. Do that. Okay, we, Dan, it's, it's gonna be called. Room. It's okay. It's you, called last, last Night. And then what it's gonna be is, it's, I want it to be like my last Batman story for a long time. So it's, I know, I know, but it, well, I, I'm writing other things and stuff with Batman in it and all that stuff too at times, so it's not like I'm not going to be doing any Batman, but, you know, the last sort of pure Batman meditation or thought in a while, so, um, Batman is in wonder, I was teasing him last night, we were out of Korean food at like two in the morning, and I was like, you know, it's like, you know, your ex-girlfriend is dating your friend, Batman being the ex-girlfriend, <laughs> I was like, he's very needy. And, and like, you know, he's treating her so well, or whatever, and I was like, I was, it was, it was late. <laughs> but, it was. I literally, I was over shambling back to the hotel. But, um... You think we're lame now. At two in the morning, we do not get less lame. <laughs> you get nerdier. I go full nerd <laughs> two in the morning. But, um, no, I've been, I've been wanting to do this story with Sean for, what, like three years? Four years? Yeah. Um, and it imagines a distant, not a, a distant distant, but a future uh, about 20, 25 years in the future where Batman suddenly wakes up and he's young. He kind of crawls out. The opening images are him crawling out of the sands of Gotham and looking around and seeing this blasted place with deathstroke birds and all this crazy stuff. He doesn't know what it is. And the last thing he remembers is saying, yes, father, I shall become a bat. And he wakes up and here he is. And he wakes up and the Joker's head is chained to his belt and it's alive, and it talks to him. <laughs> it's like, you gotta move, kid. And uh, it's literally my favorite thing. It's got warrior, old Wonder Woman, baby Superman. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's like my lone wolf and cub Batman, like out of control. It's like the last thing I wanted to say about Batman, what he means to me and all of that. So Sean and I have been working on it together for quite a while, and, and I'm honored that he, he would do it with me, but we've been literally talking about it since I was on first arcs of Batman. Because I'll tell you this, like Grant Morrison, who's huge influence and, and huge um, inspiration, uh, and um, I can't, we're, we're going to be doing a little bit of stuff too, which I can't announce, but I'm very excited with his involvement with some metal stuff coming up also. Um, he, uh, uh, when I first started on Batman, I was really scared. I mean, that's, you're terrified. You know, I remember telling my wife, like, I think I'm just going to call in sick. And she was like, all year, <laughs> you know, your contract's all year. And I was like, oh, because I didn't know it was going to be Batman number one. And it's terrifying, you know, he, we, we talk a lot about this stuff. Um, but Grant was like, what you gotta do is make a birth and a death. Once you make a birth for him, like an origin in your head, that's yours, a death for him, he's yours, you own him, it's your version. And so I did that early on, and so this is, not his death, but it's sort of the end. It's the end of the Bruce that I have done with Greg. It doesn't mean I wouldn't go back and explore it in different ways in the future, I don't want to be that guy that's like, you know. But for a while, it means this is, this is the one I want to do to say this is the closing story of this for now. I love I'm it. so excited to go ahead. I love that everyone out on the internet now is going to speculate about Scott's thoughts about Superman since he's now a baby. <laughs> I just think I make everybody a baby now. I love it. <laughs> baby Dark Side was my favorite thing I've ever done. I can't you know, like, it, was, it was such a fight. With editorial because they were like, that is so stupid and silly. And I was like, it is not. These guys look because I called them oh, yeah. late at night. And I'm like, this baby star is stupid. It is not stupid. You know what I mean? Like, right? 
Right? Yeah. It's not stupid? Uh, uh, wait, it's not stupid, right? Like, it was like those calls? No, and then he's pretending that that's one call, but it was actually like three calls. I was like, it's not stupid. It's not stupid. It's not stupid, is it? Like, it was just a progression over the course of the day. Well, the thing, the last thing I'll say, again, I'll, and I'll shut up. I'm sorry to be fun, but... You know, I think the thing that, that unites us in terms of what we do on Batman right now, also the DCU, is that we actually really enjoy working together, all of us, you know, and we're friends. Like, and, and I respect what these guys do, and a few of them, you know, I was lucky enough to get to teach. And when you see people that came up under you writing better than you could and doing a better job than you could, there's no greater honor than that. And looking at the DCU, our job is to make it feel, I think, our initiative at least this year, and we, we're trying to do it with metal and challengers and all the kind of stuff we're talking about, is to make it feel like, oh, you thought you knew the DCU? You thought you knew what would happen with Batman or Detective? But even on a cosmic level, you thought you knew it ended at the source wall, at the multiverse? Well, Grant, all of us were showing you, and Neil, all of us, it's way bigger and scarier and more wondrous than you ever thought. There are beings beyond the anti-monitor and the monitor and all of it that you don't even know that are coming in huge, huge ways. So that's, we want you to feel like, oh, you know how we know the universe and we think you get used to it and you feel like solar system, whatever, but it's tiny. What we know is like a grain of sand and, you know, in the, in the beach of what's out there. And we want the DCU to feel that, like that to you, where you love the stories being told, it honors the classic stuff, but we're constantly blasting off into new, new areas, bringing you new villains, new stories. So all the stuff we're talking about in terms of what I want to do with Sean, but also, you know, what he's doing, he's doing what she's doing, all of it, is to make you feel coming out of metal and going forward, the DCU is just ever expanding and exciting in that regard. Well, real quick, I want everyone to ask a question, come line up behind these two microphones. Uh, there are some exclusives that you can find at the DC booth that we're going to show up here on the screen. Uh, make sure you pick up those. Uh, convention variant for Batman number 32. And uh, I believe we have some other, uh, there's a Batman the White Knight variant, I believe, as well. Yes, there is. Yes, it's very cool. You make sure you want to get him to sign it. But before we get to your questions, I want to ask, and this is for anybody on the panel, you guys have talked about Scott calling you late at night and various things like that. Um, do you have any stories about how a phone call or a collaboration has helped you come up with a new idea, if it's specifically from Scott or not from Scott or whatever? Oh boy. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to answer that question for me because, I mean, uh, like, it's no secret that Scott and I have been working closely my, my entire career. Like, he was my teacher uh, back at Sarah Lawrence. He was my, like, he, you know, I was his writing assistant for a while and then we started co-writing together and then uh, so on, uh, like, onwards and upwards. So, like, honestly, so many of my ideas have the imprint. What, my favorite one, going back to Batman Turtles, was I laid out my whole story and Scott was the one that's just like, you need, like, he pointed at Arkham Asylum, was like, you need to escalate it here. And then he was just like, and then he was just like, what if you, like, like, just brought the mutagen into the Arkham inmates? And then I was just like, oh, yes. So that was, uh, that, like, I'll, I'll give you the credit where, like, where it's due because that was the absolute right move and one of the coolest things in that series. I literally, like, wait around for them to call me and ask me things because I use them so much. When the other night, Josh Williams had called me about The Flash, and he just texted me. It was, like, 1230 at night, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, I'm up. Finally! Like, I was. When we walked through all this Flash War stuff, I was so grateful because these guys helped me so much. Yes. 
Uh, real quick before we get to the questions, because everybody that left, I want to I want to kind of get back at them for leaving this awesome, awesome panel. Uh, does anyone on the panel Does anyone else on the panel uh, have a tiny spoiler that they can give everybody that decided to stay? <laughs> or something, something that can make everybody like, what? I, I wrote this book, uh, Batman and Elmer Fudd, which is... Uh, <laughs> but I did it with Lee Weeks, uh, who's, who drew it, and he's, he's drawn like Mazza Kelly, like year one, the best Batman you've ever seen. Well, we're getting back together for Batman Annual number one, and I, I haven't told anybody this, but it's the story of Catwoman and Batman's first kiss, and their last. So that's not anywhere. And it's, it's, it, to me, it's as good as Fudd Batman. It's, it's, it's beautiful and heartwarming, and it'll break your heart and make you laugh. That is a great sentence. <laughs> and now you all got to know that they didn't. Okay, let's start right here. Uh, please say your name, where you're from, and ask a question. Uh, name's Wally from the Bronx. Uh, two quick questions for Margaret. Uh, first question, you mentioned um, Batwoman being, you know, troubled character and whatnot. In Detective Comics, every female character in that's beyond damaged and troubled. Would you do a book about any of them in the future? I would love to, okay. I would absolutely. And second point question is, why is there not another Sirens book? From you, specifically. Does, would someone like one? I have some pictures lying around. Oh. <laughs> Can I do your covers? Would you? Yeah. I think you just greenlit the book right there. Yeah. All right, let's go to this gentleman right over here. Hi, Ray from Geek Dad, and I just want to say this is probably one of my favorite Batman eras ever, and I think the main reason for that is because it feels like the Batman family is back in a way it never has been before, and I think that may have been that may have been missing in some ways from the new Two. So. And it feels like everyone is coming together with, between Scott Snyder showing us just how deep Batman and Alfred's father-son relationship goes, and Tom King exploring Batman and Catwoman, of course, James Tinian exploring the Bat-Kids, and Marguerite showing us a little more of the fact that Batman and Batwoman are family, blood. So I was wondering, based on that, is there any chance we're going to see... Cassandra Kane become more a part of the Bat family again. She was adopted by Bruce Wayne in the old continuity, and I think a lot of us would love to see that again. Uh, Cassandra Kane is one of my all-time favorite characters. That's why I fought to bring her back in uh, Batman and Robin Eternal. That's why I uh, made sure she was part of the core cast of uh, Detective Comics right from the beginning. Uh, the journey we're taking her on, like I wanna, I I, I want to. Build like I want to rebuild all of those classic classic bonds and all of that, and I think you can see that there uh, with new you know new twists and turns. But uh, I want Cassandra Kane to feel as important to the universe as she does to me, and clearly to you and a lot of us. So uh, yeah, no, keep on reading. Thank you. All right, let's go to the gentleman right here. Uh, hi, Max from Sydney, Australia. Uh, question for James. You started off Detective Comics with a very strong core cast. You've expanded it out slowly, adding in people like Azrael uh, Batwing. And do you have any plans or anyone else you want to bring into the fold in at the book's cast? Yes. <laughs> anyone you oh, might want to mention? Uh, honestly, one of the... 
One thing I'd say is that, and this has been something that's been uh, pointed at uh, a bit, is like from the very beginning of Detective Comics, I wanted to focus on the characters that weren't appearing in multiple titles and all that, so I could really own the cast. I didn't want uh, them to feel, I didn't want what was happening in the, this book to feel like the third most important thing happening to Dick Grayson that week. Um, like, so, but uh, the core Bat family, the, the Robin, the core Robins and Batgirl are, uh, are core to the Batman mythos, and uh, in the next few arcs, they are going to be playing a larger part. Thank you. Let's go to the gentleman over here. Uh, name's Raheem, I'm from uh, Long Island, so first off, I want to thank you, Scott, so much for New Thomas, that character means so much to me. Sorry that the fandom didn't appreciate him in the beginning. So I have a two-pronged uh, question. First, Tony, um, all the core Bat Robins, like, they all have a special characteristic that goes and set them apart. Dick's the most uh, acrobatic, uh, uh, Jason's the sharpshooter. Is there going to be a trait that we're going to see Duke with in the signal that he's going to go and say, like, this is his thing. And second question, Tom King, you started the biggest nerd fight during the summer with the whole Batman fighting list, so I want to put you guys on the hot seat, and I want to see your take on that list. So I would start uh, here when it, when, in regards to Duke. Um, there's, there's a real opportunity with Batman and the signal for us to explore Duke's, I think, angst when it comes to finding his own place in the Bat family. Um, but for those of you who read Dark Days, right, we know that Duke is also a potential metahuman, right? Uh, so there's also an opportunity for us to explore what it's like for Batman to have the opportunity to train, get on the, on the ground floor of developing a potential metahuman. Um, so, so that's one distinction that I also think about. Uh, when it comes to Batman and the Signal. Uh, also, Duke, um, how would I say this? I think uh, if you're talking about Duke's traits, he's not a Robin. I mean, and I don't think he ever will be. I mean, he, he was a part of a group of autonomous Robins, right? Um, but now he's, he's kind of, you know, on his own trajectory. And I think he has more of a mentorship, um, you know, mentee-mentorship relationship with Bruce, not the father and son relationship that we've seen with other Robins. So. And then your second question was, Tom, if I correct me on Twitter, it was, who is the best fighter of the Batman family? Correct? All right, so instead of getting, <laughs> instead, such a okay, all right, instead of having the panel give you the entire list. Let's play who would win on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just, can I tell you the that Sure, go. So we were, we were at a bat, we were at a retreat. Uh, Scott James was there. Um, and, and and it was late at night again. It was two in the morning. I told you we, we do not get less lame. Uh, and we were playing who would win, and we were just lining them up, and uh, and, and we were like, oh man, yeah, Cassandra would beat Tim, and da, da, da. And, and then and then at the, at the, we were arguing who would like be at the top of the pyramid, and we named different people. And then Scott came over and be like, so Cassandra would win, and we like, yeah. And Scott be like, yeah. And then she tears off her mask, and it's Batman. <laughs> I left. I left for part of it and came back. It was in that hotel. I remember. Cause that's so. That's true. That's what. I don't think you get a better answer than that. All right. Let's hear your question, sir. Hi, I'm uh, Will Outfit. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, lifelong Batman fan. Your books are the highlight of my Wednesdays. Um, my question is for all of you. Uh, after the massacre in Vegas last weekend, has there been any discussion uh, for a? benefit book like Love is Love or using Batman as a direct commentary on gun, uh, gun control? 
question. I mean, I think, you know, it's really, with Love is Love and, and, and that stuff, it's really up to, to DC. I mean, all of us are always, you know, pretty active in trying to, to, to give support in that regard. And, you know, it's hard with a character like Batman, I'll let you guys speak to it. But, you know, he, he's, he, I think he gets, it gets politicized in ways that become uncomfortable. He's a character who genuinely hates guns and doesn't use guns, um, you know, on his own. That's the panel, you know, the Frank Miller panel, this is the weapon of the enemy. It doesn't mean that everybody that writes Batman is anti-gun and not gun owners and, or anything like that. But when we get into those discussions about what our characters would do, it, I just, you know, it, it really, um, it's one of those things where I feel like our personal passions are the things we express on social media, you know, in that way and the way that we go out and, and talk about it. And you can do stories, like we've done ones on Batman that I think, you know, touched on some of that stuff and I've seen, you know, other writers um, address things that I think are are personal to them or, or topical in that regard, but you know it's it, it's really um, it's a difficult spot. I mean, I was writing Joker when some of that stuff happened with people dressing like the Joker and and shooting up theaters, and you become very aware very quickly of how careful you have to be with these characters, just in terms of keeping them true to core and speaking about the things you're passionate about, and yet also not giving them such elasticity that they can be used or co-opted by things that are ugly. You know, I don't know. I would say if that's a book that you really care, and that's for everybody in this room, it's a book or an issue that you really care about, um, make sure DC knows. Because Love is Love came from Eisner, a winner now, Mark and Draco, and uh, uh, that's where that came from. So if that's a book that you think is really important, uh, make sure DC knows it. Okay, thank you. Hi, Brad from the Jersey Shore, and this one goes out to any of the Gotham gods up there. Um, the, rogue, the Rogue Gallery. Over the years, we've had so many villains, we've explored them so well. Do you feel like there's still villains out there that have a lot of depth to their personality to be explored still? And what can we do with that? Yes. Like, I think every... Like, all of these characters have... Like, honestly, the, the biggest surprise for me over the last year has been uh, finding the heart at the center of Clayface. Um, Clayface is quickly... Like, it, honestly, the, the decision to put him in detective was... Uh, you know, it wasn't out of, like, great pa passion at the beginning. It was like, oh, this is a fun idea. Like, it was kind of added on, and he quickly became the emotional heart of the book. Um, and uh, and one of the stories I'm most excited about, uh, in January I'm going to do uh, the, the first uh, Detective Comics annual uh, in Rebirth, and it's going to tell uh, the, you know... the. Like, Clayface has a dozen origins in different eras and all of that, and I'm taking the best pieces from all of them, and I am making the Ur origin, like, and folding in, like, you, you'll understand, what, like, what the, where the other origins fit into that, that one, but uh, it's uh, going to be have art by Eddie Barrows and... Uh, you know, honestly, the, like, you, yes, there, there are always new depths you can find to the, to the villains. All right, real quick, Scott Snyder has to say goodbye, but the other one, the creators are going to stick around because he's being pulled off right now. Do you go? Yes, apparently you've been told to go. Go to your room, Scott. Oh. All right. You have to go to another room. Oh, I'm sorry. Everyone give a round of applause to Scott Snyder, please. So I can just talk and swear as I go. Just, just give everybody a call. We'll be okay. So my question was actually for Scott. So I'm going to actually direct it towards Sean, which is that your 
upcoming collaboration. Um, at one point, they announced, Dana Dio announced earlier this summer that DC will be producing some evergreen books. Is that going to be a miniseries or is yours going to be a graphic novel? Sorry, can you I didn't hear what you said? Dana Dio had announced that DC was going to start doing more evergreen, kind of original graphic novel. Yeah. Concepts. Is, is your book going to be a graphic novel or is it a miniseries? Uh, it's going to be uh, somewhat of a mix. Um, I'm not fully informed of what's going on, but my impression is it might be a 48 pages, maybe larger format to make it more special to let the arts expand. I know there's a set of these that are probably will be announced before San Diego. Um, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say, <laughs> but uh, they're going to do a whole new format which is going to make these sort of stand out. Um, so I, I hope you guys are really excited about that. Awesome. And everyone, thank you for doing Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I believe you will have the final question, sir. Oh, I can hear you. Keep going. Thanks for putting the spotlight on me. A lot of pressure. Pun intended, Batman has a dynamic family and he also has one of the greatest rose gallery in all of town. everybody agree? Yes. We all agree. <laughs> Alright, so just in case everybody didn't hear that, he asked, what is Batman's greatest ally and villain? Himself. I'm cheating. Himself? Because I believe that, sorry. Ooh. I think we're learning some dark, dark things about Margarita. <laughs> I think you just won this panel. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, who who is Batman's greatest ally? Alfred. <laughs> I would say his uh, greatest villain. I mean, it's it's the Joker. It's just like the the Joker is just the like he he is the devil like staring into Batman's soul, and he is he becomes exactly what Batman fears could be he could become. Uh, yeah, I'll give a different answer. I think his same his his greatest ally villain the same person. It's the person who killed his parents. That's exactly what I was going to say. Right, like that's where he gets his strength from. That's his, that's his greatest strength. That's what makes him the, uh, the the hero you want to be in a dark alley. Is that he has the pain to never quit because he's had the greatest pain. He's not going back. But it's also he has to live with that. So, who's the greatest ally, Tom? It's the same. It's the same. The villain. That's it. The, Batman doesn't exist without that pain. When you when you you guys know the the things that happen to you in your life, which were horrible, which are terrible, which are hard. Those are the things that give you strength later, right? When you're in the, those moments again, because you know you went through it, right? Because you know you had that in you. Man. You don't deny it. It's part of you, and that's what Batman has. That's his strength. Tony. It's interesting. Um, um, when I think allies, I had this discussion with someone yesterday. Um, who's who's Batman's greatest ally? And it's, that's a hard question for me to answer because I think it's a it's a network of of people that if you remove one, he actually doesn't function. So if you if we could say it's Alfred, we could say uh, it's Leslie, we could say it's Commissioner Gordon, we could say. But I but I I feel like. It's, it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint one person. I, I'm leaning towards Alfred, but um, I'd stick with that for now. That network uh, is my answer. And then villain. Um, I'm going to agree with James and say it's, it's the Joker. Because also for the signal, 
uh, for Duke Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm hoping in the future that I'll have an opportunity to write is the eventual showdown between the Signal and the Joker because he has two parents that are still alive who are infected with Joker, uh, Joker venom. Nice. So, Sean, another the Joker for me. Nice. Sean, I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer. I think, greatest ally, you might say the Batmobile. <laughs> you know, I was going to say that. You're right, yeah. <laughs> Trusty, reliable piece of hardware called the Batmobile. <laughs> uh, I was also going to say maybe his greatest ally, as much as he is annoyed by him, might be Superman. Mm. No? It's, I know, I know. We'll go, are you going to forget I said that? <laughs> Too late. It's on the internet now. Do you have a choice for uh, greatest villain to look with him? Sorry? Greatest villain. Oh, I'm going to steal Marguerite's answer and say himself. Himself. I like it. All right, everybody. Uh, please give a round of applause for our amazing Batman creators. And if you want to follow them through the con, go check out the DC Comics Twitter and the DC All Access app if you want to get any comic books signed by them. Thank you for coming. Once the panel was over, I went to the press area to try and get to Hulu's Jack Ryan press hour. I received an invitation for it um, weeks ago in email, but I didn't follow up on it in time. So when I finally did, I was waitlisted. But I showed up anyway. I wanted to see if I can get in because John Krasinski was going to be playing Jack Ryan and doing interviews. I'm a huge Office fan. I loved him as Jim Halpert. He was almost Captain America. And some of the kids who I work with back in Florida, they love The Office and John Krasinski. So I always try and do at least like one or two celebrity interviews at these cons that I could kind of show the kids, you know, for some respect points. Despite my best efforts, there was no room for me. But I later learned why that wasn't such a bad thing. More on that in a little bit. I walked over to the Hammerstein Ballroom afterwards, which was an off-site location where they were doing some of the press events and panels for the bigger TV shows. I wanted to go to the Orville press thing, um, which I'm actually... Orville is um, kind of a Star Trek homage slash almost parody, but it's almost not even worth it to say parody. It's not like Spaceballs or any or Galaxy Quest. Like It plays it straight, but in a funny way. Um, and it comes on right after Gotham, and I didn't think I'd enjoy it. I thought that it would just be a stupid Seth MacFarlane show, but it's actually been really good. Um, I didn't have an invitation for this one, but I was able to learn when and where it was, and I got put on the wait list, but alas, it wasn't meant to be. And that was another one where I was like, well, you know, if I get a picture with Seth MacFarlane, I could show the kids at home. They'll be like, you got to meet Stewie. Um, Now, later that day, I learned that John Krasinski did not show up to the Hulu Jack Ryan thing. He was downstairs on the con floor taking pictures and stuff, but he didn't bother to show up for the press thing, so... Not so sad that I missed that one now. And apparently Seth MacFarlane canceled the Orville, his Orville uh, appearance at the last minute. And he had kind of attended via Skype uh, the panel. I don't think he did anything for the press. So it was just the other cast members. So again, as much as I love the show and would have liked to have seen the other cast, um, it wasn't so bad that I missed those ones either. Because for Jack Ryan and the Orville, the two people who I wanted to see, MacFarlane and Krasinski, they didn't even show up. So not, not so bad. Once again, I was done earlier in the day, so another New York podcasting friend of mine, Greg Bashinsky, who does uh, Spectacular Radio, and he's also on Clone Saga Chronicles with us, uh, he was in town, so I met up with him, and we got together with Gerard. We visited Greenwich Village, had some pizza, had a nice walk and chat. Gerard and I bid him adieu and got on our subway to Brooklyn, but not before I realized that I left my badge in Greg's car. <gasps> 
And um, I know when this happens at San Diego and other places, I could just go to registration, print off another pass. But I've heard that this is harder for New York. And I had an early morning um, press thing on Sunday. And was I going to have time? Lots of questions. So what was I going to do? Because Greg was hours and hours and hours away before I was able to get in touch with him about this. And uh I wasn't going to make him drive all the way back from my badge, so to be continued. Good evening, all you gentlemen, mobsters, creeps, and crooks. Men in tights come after you, and still you're off the hook. For those who scare and terrorize, it's the dawn of a brand new day. Green strong that little thing. New Beatles deeds are really sweet. But who will bring him out of his shed? Flash your spores, they finish last. Too bad sometimes he's just too fast. While all the boys can always save the day, no one does it better. When you're shooting straight Hey, I'm just saying Aquaman's always courageous His little fish, less outrageous Plastic man can't expand Becomes funny in our hands While all the boys can keep you posted Check out that utility belt Sure can make a girl's heart melt He's always right there for the save I'd like to see his secret cave While Batman does things in his special Greg and his brother were going to the convention on Sunday. They were going to hoof it in the morning to try and get me my badge before the Batman vs. Two-Face press event. I wasn't sure that they'd make it on time, and I didn't want them to rush in traffic, and I kind of felt guilty. So, um, I mean, they were going over there every anyway, but they didn't have to wake up early for me, so I figured I'd try and show up early enough to see if I could just reprint my badge just in case so I wouldn't miss the press thing. I figured it would be an annoying line and it would slow me down. And I also heard rumors about them charging for replacement badges or worse, not giving them at all. 
Uh, so I wasn't sure what to expect when I left Gerard's apartment. I said goodbye to him. It was a bit emotional because he was facing some major life changes, and this might possibly be the last time I see him in that apartment. It was also the first, but every time we've Skyped and everything, you know, for the last almost decade, he that place has been his home. So, you know, I was feeling for him. And as of this recording, those decisions have been made, and he's currently packing up to move. Gerard, if you're listening, good luck on your Texas adventure, and we'll definitely meet again. When I got off of the Brooklyn subway, it was pouring, pouring hard. In Florida, rain is so inconsistent that we usually just wait it out and it disappears after a few minutes sometimes. This was lasting a while, though, and I waited and waited. There was a man aggressively selling umbrellas. Umbrella, $5! Umbrella, $5! And those umbrellas were starting to look good. Uh, I was on a very tight budget, though, and even $5 sometimes makes a difference. I considered this, but I didn't want to be dragging around a wet umbrella all day, especially because my flight was that night, and I packed light so I wouldn't have to check any bags. I don't mind getting a little wet, but this was going to be a long walk, and all of my electronic possessions were in this backpack, and it wasn't exactly a heavily padded backpack, and I didn't want to be a a wet puddle for these press appointments with William Shatner and friends. I found some other New York Comic Con goers who were in a similar predicament and offered to split an Uber with them, which, you know, was a little cheaper than five bucks, but was still good. We found one and crammed in. One Uber driver, our Uber driver got into a fender bender on the way to the con. Just like a small minor like collision. I mean, we were okay. We kept on going, but I kind of rolled my eyes. Yes, Donovan, there is Uber drama at every convention. Once we arrived, the rain stopped, or at least it wasn't affecting that particular geographic area. Greg showed up and saved the day by giving me the badge I had left in his car. Thank you, Greg. I went to the Javits Center press room for Batman vs. Two-Face. It was 10 a.m., and unfortunately, this overlapped with the screening of the movie. Usually at SDCC, we go to the press hour, and then we go to the screening afterwards, which has its disadvantages because, you know, uh, like... I'd prefer seeing the movie first so we can actually ask the people about certain things. You know, it's weird to ask the people about a movie that we're about to see. Um, But, you know, at least then we get to see the movie. Unfortunately, William Shatner's schedule was such that this was the only way to do it. We also had a late press room thing with Gary that night, you know, or like at the end of the convention that day, which I'll get to. So one reporter teased him that we were beginning the day and ending the day with these Gary Mariano press rooms. The talent here was William Shatner, Burt Ward, supervising producer and co-writer James Tucker, producer and co-writer Michael Jelinek, and director. Rick Morales. Another rude reporter encounter happened here. There is certain etiquette during these press encounters. If you show up late or you have to change tables, you go as invisible as possible. Donovan and Stella and I have had these experiences where tables have had to be like combined mid-session. We discreetly join the other table. We whisper to someone who's not, you know, asking a question at the moment, like another reporter, like, hey, can we scoot in here or something like that? And uh, we just blend in, and then when it's our turn to talk, we talk, but we don't announce, hey, guys, we're here. So during the first interview with, uh, I think it was Michael Janellick, a reporter came up while Michael was mid-sentence answering a question, and he said that he needed a spot at the table. Just He's in the middle of talking. He's like, hey, I need a spot at this table. 
He didn't go to the other side and whisper to someone who wasn't speaking or wait for Michael to stop talking. He rudely interrupted the whole thing. Luckily, Michael Jelinek took it in stride, stopped the interview, and helped the guy find a seat. Unfortunately, Michael wound up sitting him next to him, which that was the spot that I was in. But now, you know, there was somebody in between me and the talent. And I try and show up at these tables early, kind of selfishly, because I like to be able to sit next to the people and take selfies and send it at home. So part of me was a little salty about losing my my proximity that would have put me right next to Shatner and Ward. Now I was one person away from them instead of directly next to him. But I also couldn't believe the nerve of this guy. Either way, it was a fun time. I've interviewed Shatner a few times before at SDCC, and he's always funny. He's a, he age changed me, which brought some laughs. The Burt Ward section of this has a gap because my phone rang. Nobody heard it ring. It was on silent, but, you know, like, so, like, nobody knew what what happened, actually. Everything went on as normal, but someone tried to call me, and it stopped the recorder. I should have put it on airplane mode. Whatever. But (laughs) it's, um, I put it on do not disturb after that. It slipped my mind, unfortunately. Either way, a fun session, and Bert was a great guy. The stuff he said about future projects and even possibly becoming Nightwing was real intriguing. And obviously, you know, it was really sad doing this without Adam West, but, uh, you know, there was a positive energy in this room, and I'm glad about that. Michael Delamick, writer and producer, Batman Two-Face. J-E-L-E-N-I-C. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Oh, nice. You got you got two choices right there: water, yeah. coffee, and well, two choices, which is good for Two Face. So you know, <laughs> uh, you're paying attention. <laughs> I try to, that and sp- you know, when on the subject of paying attention and Two Face, you know, what sources, you know, like versions of Two Face, did you use or like as inspiration, you know, for this um, Batman '66 William Shatner Two Face? Uh, well, we definitely before we started this project, James Tucker, who's who's the real sort of comic book historian. I wrote, wrote the movie with him. He pulled uh, probably five or six classic Two-Face stories. I think Dick Spring ones. Um, I think we reference specifically um, there's, this, there's a set piece that takes place inside a, a, a billiard museum and that that's definitely from the comics in there. I think there's uh, also a little bit of the plot that, that we're, we're pulling from from various you know um, pre like 66 um uh, comics, because you know, so the the first movie had that really sort of Adam West feel. We were trying to go into a different direction with this to like expand it, and, and James is calling it um, campy noir. Another seat. Is there another seat? Yes. Uh, uh, that table. Oh, do you want it? Yeah, if there is. I mean, the, they told me take it. They didn't say be part of these streets. Okay, we'll get you another seat. <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> Edit that part out. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> To wrap it up, yeah. yes. Like everybody went crazy when Comic Con announced last year at Comic Con, so it's a little bittersweet coming here this year without Adam. So yeah, I mean, like really the the, the reason I did this project because I'm I'm pretty busy with my day job working on Teen Titans Go, but I wanted to do a movie with like Adam West and William Shatner. <laughs> And like one of the, I mean, I mean these, I like Comic Con is here because of those two guys. I think in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but 
one of the highlights of this project for me was was getting to spend a whole day with Adam and like he was in great shape last year. He was so much yeah. energy, yeah. so much like he was walking the floor, doing all sorts of crazy things and so I think we were all like shocked that that he's not here now. So, um, but it's, it's I think it's it's great for him that he's going to get to go out as as Batman and playing him like such an important character. To... Was this supposed to be his last animated movie with you, or um, was there like a vision to do a few more movies down the road? Uh, you know, I mean, I think we we I don't know what the plan. It always depends on how things sell and everything. But I know we we, we talked about doing like uh, Linda Carter, Adam West like team up like. Oh, yeah. Age up uh, Batman oh ten years, so it's like Batman '77 or Wonder Woman '77. So there was the, there was there were talks to just you know, but um, obviously none of that will ever happen now. Was Shatner cast before you started writing the script? Uh, I, I think we yes, basically. I mean, we we knew we wanted to do this with with him, and I think he was already locked in before. Um, so were you writing like with his voice in mind? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, it, I think uh, there's a, I want to say a Twilight Zone or something that, that he's in. Not a Twilight where, where he has this really interesting performance um, that I know James was, was pulling from and using as an inspiration for, for the stuff that he was doing in, um, in this movie. Um, where I think he plays a, a guy with sort of two sides. So you did a lot of the Brave and Bold cartoon. Yes, because I remember the name. Yes, there's an artist at my show has the same last name as you, Nicole. But anyway, okay. Um, that was always done like the Batman '66 campy thing with the outrageous stuff that you have with Aquaman. So you've been working on this for a while. Is this just to come into your lap? Were you guys always thinking like, if we ever had the chance? to do a 66 that we already have a lot of good jokes and stuff I mean, yeah you guys had some good comedy you and melching Steve yeah, melching yeah. Did a lot. i know him but. yeah so james and i did brave and the bold and yeah. you know i mean james james was a kid when that was um, when 66 was was out and that was really like his his sort of forming influence but when we were doing that show yeah like the 66 show was sort of like not so cool with the comic book community okay. um like we wanted to do more direct like when we were developing that show it's yeah. like they said do not use the word camp and I do not no, I'm no. like this is not influenced by the 66 because they, they, they had like a sort of for, for comic book fans a, yeah. a different connotation but I mean that's what we were doing and, and you know so by the, I think the end of our run like that sort of you know fun take on Batman but him not being so so pretty all the time um, I think people started accepting that more and so I think it was nice to see like the comic book community sort of embrace the sort of Adam West version um, you know by by the end there so but yeah I mean we we really that was really a major influence you know along with like Dick Sprang and Jack Kirby for, yeah. for Brave and Bold was there anything that surprised you about um, Shatner's take on, on Two-Face and kind of what he brought to the table that you hadn't originally expected or planned for I mean I think I wasn't necessarily expecting anything, so I just—I I, I mean, you—you you hear, oh, William Shatner's going to play Two Face, and you know it's going to be interesting. Right. So, uh, and that's what he did. It, it's a pretty, pretty fun take, and you know, I know he played around with a couple voices, different types of voices when we recorded, but I think the one we ended up with it was was, was pretty cool. Did you, did you have a plan B in case Shat wasn't doing it? <laughs> we do it. Uh, I don't think we would have done it without him. Oh, okay. So. Okay. I think we would have done something else. Um, we probably would have done another movie, but I don't think we would have done a Two-Face necessarily. I mean, he's like perfect casting for, yeah, for this role. Like, just such a, you know, that, like of that 66 era, if you could have cast somebody, he would have been great. Did he have trouble stepping into the role of a villain instead of being the hero? Did get, like... I think it's probably fun for him. I mean, yeah. he's, you know, 
yeah, I mean, it, it was great. I mean, really, no problems at all. He just instantly nailed it. Did everyone uh, record separately for this? Yeah, just, just, yeah, yeah. And and they're sort of, you know, these are long scripts, so it's it's easier just to, to get them in on it. Although it would have been great to get everybody in the same room because we had some great people in this. Do you have a favorite line? Man, what was some, I was watching it yesterday. I think some of, uh, I don't know if it's not necessarily a, a Shatner line, but um, there's a couple lines uh, that James wrote in this that I, I that where he, he's like telling um, Robin, it's like, I haven't told you this in a long time, but go to your room. Like, yeah. just that, that, that sort of relationship that they have. It's like, like he really pushes that sort of odd, you know, dynamic that the 66 series had between Batman and Robin. So those are probably my favorite lines in it. What's your favorite thing about Two-Face just as a character? What do you really like about it? You know, I would say there's something very interesting about him visually. I think that's one of the reasons he endures. It's like that's just a, such a cool, strong design, like on a visual level. I think most of these villains that, you know, um, pop, it's because of how they look. And, you know, and then writers eventually bring in, you know, like I, like, I don't think they come to the, the table fully formed, and but you, you either visually react. So I think his, his look is, is kind of... You know, amazing, and also it's like an early version of a of a sort of a character that's uh, you know a sympathetic villain too. Right. You know, yeah. somebody who's got like two sides, and normally you know the villains would just be bad, but here you have somebody who's, who's sort of fighting with himself. So I think that was just, you know what what like ultimately Batman enemy series ended up doing with these villains. Shatner's been familiar with other performances of Two-Face, like, does, was he into the Batman? I don't know. I bet he, I don't know. I bet he's not. I mean, are there super iconic takes on the character? Probably is close to Tommy Lee Jones. I guess Tommy Lee Jones. Probably more. Last question. Is there any more iconic actors from the 60s that, in the back of your mind, you said, oh, that would have been good if we had yeah, I think we at some point we, we came up with a list. Like even like just trying to we wanted to do window cameos at one point, yeah. like oh, anything, yeah. you know. And it's just like uh, you know, but honestly, and I'm not saying because we, we were able to get him, like he's really the perfect, you know, person for the yeah. role, you know. And only my like I said earlier, my only shame is we didn't weren't able to do uh uh, a Linda Carter uh, and West Plus. I think that would have been, even as a button, you know, that we were thinking about ending this movie with. Uh, you could do Batman 89, you get Michael Keaton. I know, right? Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, right. He doesn't want to do it. He just punched me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming and following William Shatner. Good luck. Uh, I give you Rick Morales, our director. <laughs> Rick Morales, Batman vs. Two-Face director. So what was it like directing Good morning. this fantastic cast? I see it. Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> uh, come true? Really a dream come true, yeah, yeah. Um, the Adam West show was probably... Probably my my entrance into the Batman world as a kid. Um, so so yeah, being able to work with them in any capacity was mind blowing. And I mean, I think when we did the first one, 
I was work, I was doing, I was producing some Lego um, DVDs, and so I was super busy anyway. But then uh, James asked, you know, asked me to direct it, and and I was just like, yeah, of course, like I, I have to, like. <laughs> I'd be crazy to say no, you know. It's, I get to work with Adam West, and he's playing Batman. Like, yeah, no brainer. So Shatner was on board when you came. On. <laughs> What's Shatner that? Shatner was on board when you came on board, correct? Uh, well, I mean, we did the first one, and then and then oh. for this second one, oh, Shatner came on. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was an ingre- incredible casting choice, and uh, uh, his his version of Two Face is is fan- is incredible. Like, I, it's just. He, it seemed like he had, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seemed like he had thought about it, had a voice in mind, and when he came into the re- recording studio and just unleashed it, it was like, okay, yeah, that's it. <laughs> How much of the story process were you involved in? I mean, so I, I didn't work on the script. You know, James Tucker, our producer, and uh, Michael, who you just talked to, they uh, they obviously took took that part of it, but... Um, you know, when I come on, it's we're dealing with storyboards and we're visually starting to plan things out, and, and uh, that part of it always influences how the story gets told, of course, a great deal. So, um, you know, as, as much as that's concerned, yeah. The, the first movie seemed very self-aware about, like, fans' reactions and the general public's uh, reactions to the Adam West show. Is this, does this have that same tone to it? Um, th- I, this one has a much different tone than the first one, actually. Um, I think when you see it, it's uh, it's darker. I mean, I remember early on talking to James Tucker, and he's, the first thing he said to me was, "Yeah, I think uh, the next one we're we're thinking about it more as like a Batman the Animated Series type, you know, feel with the Adam West Batman." <laughs> Instead, and I was like, "That's interesting." Um, and it and it and it kind of it kind of feels like that I think, but but of course with the trappings of the Adam West Batman and there's still this campiness and all that, you know. Do you have a favorite take on Two Face outside of obviously your own? But do the movies or comics, television shows? Is there something that you kind of your north star for the character for Two Face? Yeah. Um, gosh, you know I think there's been a, a, a ton of great um, portrayals. I, a lot of this stuff, honestly, I go back to the original Batman, the animated series, and, um, um, for you know voice call. But there's been there's been so many different versions of it. Um, I mean, this what William Shatner did here. I think it sounds to my ear very classic. It's it's almost he's he started into it, and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping for. You know, you know major difficulties in this project. Uh, down the road when you did it? Not not on my end. I mean, everything, uh, this this went super smooth. I couldn't be more happy. I mean, the, the storyboard crew that I um, that I had was, was fantastic. We had a bunch of great guys that sort of understood what we were doing and were, you know, they made my job a lot easier. And uh, no, I mean, compared to the, to the first one, where's Gary? <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> um, people put me on camp. Oh, there are. Uh, uh, um, what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, it, it was just this. This one was just fun and pretty easy, actually. As a director, do you ever 
have to rein in some of the stuff because, you know, you're the god. You can make it go over the top as much as you want, but then you have to go. I know we're doing Batman. I know it's whatever we can imagine, but I have to pull it back a little bit. Did you ever come across a scene or something where you said, this is just too much, even for Batman? No. No, I think actually it was probably the opposite of that. It was actually pushing things further. Um, I think uh, a lot of the crew that that you know we work with and some of our natural instincts lie in the more kind of action oriented Batman and not necessarily the comedic campy yeah. version of it you know so on that end it was sometimes the, uh, the opposite push it more you know? yeah so this is very um, like we were talking about before uh, visually distinct character as far as you know comics really is, is easy to recognize um, mm-hmm. you know in a crowded room did you make any specific decisions as far as something you you know things you want to do within the um, you know scope of the film to emphasize some of that yeah I mean uh, I think the <laughs> pretty much this whole movie rests on that on how we shot that character it's a major story point throughout the entire thing so we did a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, talking out of the side of one uh, you know the side of his face turning his head <laughs> shooting you know different camera angles to right. talking to himself like and stuff like that kind of thing like like Gollum from yeah, yeah that type of stuff uh, that was actually the direction I gave my crew you know think about that um, so yeah yeah we did a lot of that stuff I had watched the first movie with my six-year-old, and uh, I was watching it because I grew up on the show, and, and he loves Batman. So, is that kind of your target too, to like bring everybody in, fans of the comics, fans of the old show, new generation, like you hit? I I mean, ideally, ideally, I I I would you know, ideally, I would love for it to to be accessible, um, like it was to me. You know, I I think there's so much that's done nowadays with Batman that kids can't watch that I wouldn't feel comfortable taking my kids to you know and so I think it's nice for there to be a a Batman that everybody can watch I mean definitely children you know (laughs) I had a Batman when I was a kid like why shouldn't they so do you have any favorite moments from the movie oh favorite (laughs) moment there's um favorite moments but this is funny we have this little we have this little bit <clears throat> I'll just give it away there's a there's this whole third act thing where uh, two faces spraying the city down with this uh, with this gas and, and kind of transforming people or whatever and, and we had this <clears throat> drive uh, drive-in movie theater scene and there's some action going on on the screen and and uh, and, uh, and we were like oh is it, is it you know do the, do the people get transformed when they're on the screen, even though that would not? <laughs> and we're like, you know what? It's it's Adam West Batman. Of course they do. <laughs> it's just kind of a silly thing that ended up making it into the film. <laughs> I know they didn't record together, but were Adam and William ever in the same room together to like proper discuss it? Like, yeah, unfortunately. Well, I'm sure at some point they were. Well, um, but uh, you know, but I wasn't there to see it. Unfortunately, you know. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, Adam West passing, he should have been here. And uh, I was really hoping to see those two together here, you know. Uh, but, you know. Was there any scenes that was improvised as in the movie? Improvised? 
Um, not wholly, you know, not not wholly, but I think there's probably some performance. That, well, I'll tell you one thing. Um, we've got a kind of a a transformation thing in uh, uh, in the film towards the end of the film um, that Shat that William Shatner was like, well, what if he's doing what if he's doing this and he's going back and forth and this and that and we're like. It was kind of there, but he kind of just pushed it, and and uh, and once he did his vocal take on it, we we're like, oh yeah, that's really cool. Like, and that influenced the way that we ended up handling uh, visually that that sequence in the movie. So, it's probably the closest thing to it. Is that really giving anything away potentially? If you, you know, were so lucky as to take a third kind of swing at this, is there any direction you would want to go, or anything you would, you know, want to touch on from the history of, of Batman? Um, I mean, I, I personally, without, I would love to continue to play in this world. I don't, I, I don't really see a big uh, reason to do it with without Adam West. You know, I think it brings so much to it. Um, but uh, I, I love, I love this era. I love this version of Batman and Robin, and. Um, you know, it'd be cool to do more. I don't know exactly after this where we would where we would possibly take it. You know, um, and I and I wouldn't want it to. These feel special to me. I wouldn't want it to just be a thing that just gets churned out because for what? You know. You wouldn't want another actor to come in and do an Adam West impression. Last question. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't. I mean, yeah. I just don't think there'd be a whole lot of reason for it. Give another character that you'd maybe like to take a stab at, just to, you know. Um, tons, tons of characters. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to do a Superman thing. That'd be great, you know. Um, you know, me and the guys at work, we always talk about we should, we should do an '89 one. We should, you know, Batman '89. All of a sudden, but there's no plans. There's no plans to do that. Yeah. Breaking news. That's much <laughs> talk. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, there's t- there's tons of characters that I'd love to get my hands on. Some outside of the DC universe. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, is there, I guess, do you, do you think, was there anything about Chandler's uh, role that surprised you when you came in and you were like, oh, that's a interesting direction? I think, I think originally, like, he had a, he had a, a thing that he was doing for Harvey Dent, um, for the character of Harvey Dent that, um, that was an interesting take on it, but I think we we're looking for, for something a little bit more Shatner. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of this dating thing, you know, when they uh, Yeah, fast right, that's it. <laughs> You're done. with us. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was, it was a real honor to get to see him work and uh, and interact with people. And like I was telling the other interviewers, um, usually in these recording sessions, it's, it's me, the producer, some production staff you know very very light crew <laughs> this thing was filled <laughs> there are all kinds of people there wanted to watch William Shatner work so it was it was great to be one of those people thank you get out of here kid <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> What's your name? William. Uh, oh, I know that name. It's a good name. So what made this 
a delicious role for you to play. It was delicious, wasn't it? Yeah. That's a perfect word. You masticate on that word. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. So, you, sir. so what, but what was the draw for you? What, made what was what? What was the draw for you? What made it so appealing? Oh, what was the appeal? Well, the appeal seems right there. I mean, juicy roll. Um, it was fun to. Uh, what I what I challenged myself with was to try and do uh, the voice uh, organically. I guess is a good word. Uh, so it all was one thing, rather than playing the straight voice and then using technology to do this, the, the bad guy. So I, I allowed the bad guy to emerge out of the good guy, uh, much like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And, and, and just to further that uh, concept along a little bit, uh, there are these different voices inside our heads all the time. Uh, should I eat that candy? Should I not eat that candy? Um, what was going on in uh, uh, what's his name's head in Las Vegas? He shot that window out, and he began to spray bullets. Here he was, a mild-mannered guy, uh, very much a Harvey Dent character, and all of a sudden, he's doing one of the most incredibly. I, I hate to use the word. Evil, because I don't know whether I believe that there's good and evil, but this this man who sought to terrorize and kill and maim as many people as possible, knowing that he was going to die in the end, either by the hands of the law or his own hand, what was what, what vicious, monstrous thing was going on in his head, and how you might relate that in reality to a Harvey Dent character. Is as I watched the footage that they played for me when I was in the sound booth, they played a scene where the artist had a little green hair, and then it got bigger, and then it got, then it got bigger, and it got. And seeing that, I just fell into doing the voice and then coming out of it, and doing the voice, doing uh, the uh, Two Face more and Harvey Dent, and playing back and forth as the artist did his thing. I was doing my thing as the voice. It was the most spontaneous, because I never planned it. I don't think anybody planned it. Uh, it was the most spontaneous part of that whole thing and made everything I had done uh, worthwhile because of the challenge that I had. Is it more liberating to be villainous than heroic? Yeah, no, that's all. Uh, stuff. It's all, uh, what would be a good word? It's all uh, cosmology. In, in, in reality, uh, playing a guy in love with a woman or an animal or a car <laughs> is just as much. You try to bring a truth to everything you do, so the truth of being evil, the truth of being underhanded, thank you so much, the truth of uh, being antisocial is just as valid as playing love. Uh, you go for the truth of the matter, 
and uh, both are equal in to my way of thinking. Yes. Start again. Sorry, one of the threads that kind of holds true for a lot of your characters and all kinds of media is authority. So is authority. Yeah, you're frequently mm -hmm. in charge. You're Shut up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Do you, did, do you draw on a lot of that for, you know, District Attorney Harvey Dent and Two-Face? You know, where where did you find that strength and that confidence that has to come from Two-Face? Uh, interesting question. Uh, mostly it's assumed because uh, I'm fully aware that I know nothing. <laughs> and uh, but then I'm fully aware you know nothing, so we're both on equal ground. Um, uh, so I I have no uh, I don't feel authoritative. I don't feel uh, that I uh, have the right or the expectation of ordering somebody around, unless it's my kids. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's just uh, assumed. Uh, I mean, you're, you're got, uh, you've got two cameras in your hand and a bottle of water and a T-shirt. Uh, you're an authoritative figure. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're doing. Uh, so, yeah. So you could say, "Would I move to the left, please, my cameras again. And you'd be an authority figure. What was your relationship like with Sorry? Adam? What was your relationship like with Adam yeah, I knew Adam a uh, long, long time ago. We did a, uh, a pilot together prior to Batman, prior to, to uh, Star Trek. Is that the uh, Alexander the Great project? Uh, say again? Is that the Alexander the Great? Alexander project? the Great. So I, I was playing Alexander, um, and uh, it was going to be uh, a group of soldiers in the desert fighting. Uh, that was the concept uh, led by Alexander. Um, and it didn't sell, so they made it into a. They made the pilot into a film. They shoot it as a film, and it was uh, fairly well received. Uh, and so Adam was one of the guys, and we had an opportunity to meet there. And then each of us went our way. But we would see each other, uh, like at a comic con like this, we'd be having lunch and sit at a table and talk. And I got to know him over the years, and I really admired him. Lovely, lovely, sophisticated man. Was there ever a talk um, during the 1960s of getting you onto that original show? The original show of? Uh, Batman. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, uh, quite a long time ago. How old are you? 31. Be long before you were born. <laughs> I just got age shamed by William Shatner. <laughs> yeah, you're a youth. Yes, yeah, not a bad way to start. Why do you think there's such a draw to this kind of era, um, to the '66 Batman, to kind of older, um, more kind of classic nostalgic kind of superhero genre? Well, if you're talking modern. about uh, this movie, mm -hmm. and uh, it harkens back to the comic books. And comic books are kind of fundamental. They're drawn, there's a hero, the villain. You can read a little bit. If you can read a little bit, you can read the bubbles and the, and the, and the, and the panels take you through uh, the drama. And it's quite sim simplistic. Uh, so it's it both appealing to people who want simple things or it's appealing to people who don't want to have to think too, on too many levels about this story. So the story is there. And 
it's it's a fundamental way of telling a story. I, I I've been involved in comic books for a long time. I, I had some interesting stuff uh, that I was working on that even combined movies and comic books, uh, and that's still out there. And I'm starting a couple of new comic book ideas. So I'll be around in comic books for some time to come. And they're a really interesting way of doing this. You can make them uh, more intellectual, more more uh, inviting to, to think about than, than uh, or they can be s- simple. And you can go either way or both ways different uh, different comic books, which is what uh, one of the things I'm attempting to do: make a more sophisticated comic book and make a more uh, simple one. It appeals to basic storytelling. It's the simple: the dinosaur was attacking me. I hit it on the head. You should have seen it fall mm-hmm. around the campfire. A friend of uh, Mariano Nicesa. I just had dinner with him Friday. So I just had dinner with him last night. <laughs> What did you eat? Uh, we went to wow. ravioli. We went to Tabacco. Ravioli. Yeah. His name is Nicenza for anything, for yeah, nothing. Well, Mariano. Yeah, Mariano. Italian. Yeah, too, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were talking about this because I'm working on a project like you, and he wants to embrace art, theater. He wants to make like a live action, live action uh, comic book. Yeah. And here discussing. Uh, we've been doing that for quite a while. Yeah. So, do you believe? that comics really have no age because when I was talking to him he said it appeals to children it appeals to adults and such uh, that's right yeah. uh, it, it, comic books you know it would be interesting I'm, I'm sure there are treaties in, uh, that have uh, been written about what the appeal of comic books are yeah. but certainly it's fundamental storytelling uh, and it doesn't have to be just a Batman hero and a villain uh, Two-Face it, it can be on a more sophisticated level. Last night we were talking about a comic book we want to bring out that will have an astrophysicist and a psychiatrist and yeah. a, uh, involved in it. So it can be on, a, on, on different levels. It's just that, like cartoons yeah. are to kids, comic books are to a more uh, adult audience. They're... There's not much thinking required, and it's entertaining. Yeah. It's almost, I guess that's it. It's pure entertainment. Real quick, who's a better lawyer, Denny Crane or Harvey Dent? <laughs> They're both two-faced. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, what was it like being reunited with Julie Newmar and Meriwether? Uh, it was Julie Newmar and Meriwether. Most, two of the most, when they were... Of a, they, they are of a certain age now, when, uh, and they're beautiful now. But they were unbelievable uh, at one time. While studying, um, while doing Two Face, did you ever go home in your normal life and the other voice comes out? Like... I did. <laughs> my wife locked the door, <laughs> and my dog wouldn't recognize me. You good? Everybody good? Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Every one of you. Again, busy. Holy something another. It's Bert Ward. He's stealing my line. Send it to me. I'm going to interview Bert. Again? Again. Bert, can you look over here? Sure. All right.
right. So, who would like to start? What would you I'll like? I'll start. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, me, I'm 62. You are? Okay. Uh, how does it feel? Because I was sitting in front of that TV Wednesday yes. and Thursday. That's what I how does it feel to be such a part of one of the most groundbreaking shows in the 60s? And it's still going strong, as you can see. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's amazing. You know... Some people will say, well, you know, having done the part of Robin, I mean, didn't that keep you from doing other things? And the way I look at it is this. If you have a cup that's 100% full, it could be full with 50 different projects you've done, or it could be full with maybe one project that you've done that is like one of the biggest hits in the world with a few other projects to go with it. The glass or the cup is still full. And my life has been full because of this character. And... I love Warner Brothers that they respect the character and everything they've done has been first class. Nothing, I mean, even when they re-released our series, you know, we all waited 50 years for it to be released, but when they did, they cleaned it up. They, the, the sound is magnificent. The picture is better than when we filmed it. I mean, they they have treated this first class and... This is a great movie. I don't know if you've seen it yet. This is a really good movie. Well, the, the last one was great too, Return of the Cape. Yeah, but this is going to blow you away. Well, can you talk a little about? Oh, it's going to blow you away. About how this takes it to the next level. They, uh, they, they recreated the past, so to speak, with the first one. Kind of like, let's get back into it and let's kind of, you know, but they've refined this. Now this is really the the animation is really really good the the sound the explosions the effects are good the storyline is very tight the, the the it is just everything is better i have great fight scenes i love fighting okay <laughs> and uh and and, they, and the stuff in that but really great and and genius to cast shatner i mean genius here you have the two most iconic television shows in history, Batman and Star Trek. There's nothing bigger. And you put them together with the actors working together, and it was absolute. When I heard that was it, I knew that it was going to be huge. But they made that script great. They, they worked on it. They took our suggestions, my suggestions, and uh, I think it's great. I think it is absolutely great. And I'll tell you what's also great. You know that there is a special featurette on this movie. Did you, any of you know that? What is it? What's in it? What you got? Nobody's here. No. All right. <laughs> they call me in to do a press interview. I mean, not press. Um, recorded, just kind of stuff at the time I was recording, and they interviewed me. And I thought oh, five or ten minutes. Thank you very much. It was at like almost two hours. That's a lot, right? There is a featurette, 14 minutes, on the DVD. And wait till I tell you the title. The Wonderful World of Burt Ward. (laughs) About time. I thought Disney was in it. Anyway, and what what they did, and it it is so touching and so well done, I mean, it's not like I asked to have this done. I knew nothing about it until it was already done. Even when I did that long interview, I said, just why is there so much questions and this and that? They put this together, and it ties together my relationship with Adam, 
I mean, it'll almost bring tears to your eyes. It's beautifully, sensitively done. It talks about the fact that I like to say I was the caped crusader, and now I am the canine crusader, because my wife and I operate the largest giant breed dog rescue in the world. We have doubled and tripled the lifespan of dogs. You're going to hear so much about this coming out. I mean, what's more valuable than life, right? Not, nothing to me. And and said to me, Bert, that's the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Wow. These people just... You know, and and the stuff with Adam, and the friendship, and the shots, the, the, some of the still pictures they have. Oh, I mean, they'll grab you because these are behind the scenes when you're not in front of the camera, yet in costume, some out of costume. You know what I mean? And it's very touching. This is really touching. So, this is fantastic for for me, and I'm really happy to do it. And I'm happy to help them, and everybody. And, and one thing I want to say also, the people that put this movie together are Batman fans. I mean, these aren't people that were just hired like, okay, we've got to produce this and let's try to do this. These are ones that catch me on trivia. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know that answer. And 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 every one of them I put their soul in this. This is a great movie. Period. End of story. It's a great, great movie. The first movie was so well received when it screened here last year, and then they made the announcement about the sequel, and people just lost oh, it. Right. So I was just wondering about uh, when you first found out that they were going to do the sequel, and then I knew about it ahead of time. You knew ahead of time. Okay. When I signed. You did. It was already okay. And Shatner's casting. No, I didn't. No, 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 no. I found out when I saw it myself. No, I didn't have any idea about that. Okay. So were you excited about that? I was blown away. I mean, like I said earlier, you could not have better. They couldn't have picked anybody on this planet better than William Shatner. And so is it a little bittersweet then coming here this year and bringing this wonderful project without Adam by your side? You know, the only time that it really gets me, you understand? Because you have to understand, I know Adam so well, and he always wanted people to be happy. He doesn't want anybody to be sad. This would be a, a disservice to him. He wants people to be happy. But the only time that it's a little hard on me is when I go out on these weekends, one minute, okay, signing autographs, and I'm talking, having a good time, and maybe I, I look over and I see that empty chair. That is tough. That's tough. And they they do that for a reason. It's a tribute. Right. Because all of my appearances now, all of the money, I don't ever keep a penny of it. And I never got any of it. Everything goes to our dog rescue, saving animals' lives. I don't take any money from this. And um, and even the salary that I made on this, that took nothing from it. But but it's, it was it's very touching. That's the only hard time for me, you know. And it's like, okay, but he'd want me to get back to work. And I turn around and I continue. Okay. Getting back to work. If there's an opportunity to do Robin's story, I mean, Adam's gone, we know that. But if they came to you and said, let's do one where it's a Robin solo, would you be interested? Of in course. Would you finally it? become Nightwing? Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on that I can't talk about. Okay. Oh. Nightwing movie? Your live action movie? Can't well, there's thoughts? also possibly another series. Well, as, as far as my radio fans, there's only one Batman and only one Robin yes. ever. Yeah, thank and you. that's you guys. Yeah. Well, I asked actually a similar question of Adam last year, but you are you are almost like the most iconic version of Robin. Yeah. Yeah, ever. Yeah. At least on you know on screen. There's a you know 
the, it seems like there's a push to expand that character in the movie television. Yes. What would you? What advice would you give a Robin? What is a quint, What is the quintessential thing that a Robin actor has to get? Good stuff, man. Uh, I don't see anybody else doing the role. <laughs> Ever? Like, they're they are working on a big screen Robin. No. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing, but no. I'm doing stuff. <laughs> in the first film, the first anime film, it seemed it. as though you're, you you were singled out as, yes. as still sounding exactly like you did in the sixties. Yes. What is it that, that that allows you to like instantly like project? Because when I was like, hired, they said, "Bert, we hired you for one reason: because forgetting television, if there really was a Robin, you would be it. So we just want you to be enthusiastic and be yourself." So. People keep asking, well, how do you recreate the role? How do you recreate myself? I am what I am. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much. Bad, bad time, thank same bad time. channel. Exactly. To the Batmobile. <laughs> James Tucker, producer and co-writer. That's a very talented man. Ward said that. That's awesome. It seems like you're unique at Warner Brothers Animation in that you're both the most passionate Batman 66 fan and, you know, one of the most revered, uh, uh, you know, animation directors there. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, your relationship with the show and how that's sort of, like, driven these films? Uh, well, I wouldn't be in animation if it weren't for that show. I wouldn't be an artist. I wouldn't be... I mean, I don't know what I'd be, but I don't think I'd be here if it weren't for that show. Um, and from my first day at Warner's, people knew my um, my passion for the show. So, you know, we didn't know. I didn't know that I would ever get a chance to do anything with the property. But um, I'm just glad I was around long enough to to get that shot. But uh, you know, it was pretty well known. The people at work knew. And, you know, I, they knew I had probably the most drive, passion, whatever, to do it. And so my boss, Sam Register, just the minute the idea came up to do this, the, the, the property, he asked me, so. So, for years at these press things, I'd ask you, what's your dream project? You say Gotham by Gaslight, Gotham by Gaslight. Gotham I by, did? Yeah. And then well, Gotham by Gaslight finally comes around. And I didn't do it. You're not doing it. Is that because of your love for Batman 66? Well, if I had said Batman 66, then it would have jinxed. <laughs> <laughs> so see what I... I, I yeah. Reverse jinx. <laughs> yeah. Also, if I had said Batman 66 five years ago, or, or one of that was then eight years ago, people would have thought I was crazy because it wasn't in vogue then to like Batman 66 so. and I knew Gotham by Gaslight would have been a great thing to do at the time but I did it on Brave and the Bold so I did do it <laughs> what sparked the specific film I mean was it was it more than just oh they never did Two-Face in the 66 show or, or did you guys you know after doing that first film have a have a hook or a story you wanted to tell um well we didn't know what the story was going to be once we knew we were going to do a Two-Face story once William Shatner agreed to do it um we knew pretty early we weren't going to adapt the outline from the 66 show that, that was rejected because it was rejected. Mm-hmm. The Marlon um, Ellison. Yeah. yeah. And so um, the only thing we wanted was to have something that would merit William Shatner's 
acting, you know. Um, you know, he's, you know, people who know 60s television, that before Star Trek, he was all over television playing really interesting, uh, damaged characters. So it wasn't a stretch that, you know, we'd know that he could play Two-Face. Because he's, he's played split personality characters before, he's played... You know, psychotics before, and he he does he does a great job of it. So <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of a no-brainer. Was there ever a fear that because of Shatner's stature and Kirk the hero that would overpower Adam's performance? Or when you were putting this together, you go, we got to have a balance here because we know Adam's the hero. Yeah. But Shatner's also got that legacy of being a hero as well. So you got to give each guy their their due. But yeah. you still got to edge him out. I mean, did you well, think about that? Like, Batman's got to be... Well, this is a, was a unique story in that most of the 66 stories, Batman didn't have a connection to the villain that was personal. And so, you know, there w- it was easy not to have him kind of overshadowed. In this case, the crux of their relationship is their friendship. And so, in a way, ba- uh, Adam did have to play a different... Uh, he wasn't the motivator of the plot quite as much because he was the most conflicted. In the movie, you'll see he's yeah. conflicted about, you know, Two Face is his friend. He has to trust him, but you know he's also got to deal with Two Face. And so, um, in a way, it was more of an acting challenge, I think, for Adam to kind of be more in inward yeah. and more subdued in a way. So I don't think it he's overshadowed in it. I just think it brought out another side of his Batman that a lot of fans didn't get to see with the series. Is the evilness of Two-Face because, I mean, he goes extreme. It's not it's like yeah. good and bad. It's not like the Joker with the Clown yeah. Prince. When you bring a serious villain like that into the happy, day-glow world of 66, is it, is it challenging? Because you go, this is really dark. This is a dark character. As yeah. opposed to Louis the Lilac or, you know, the Mad well, Hat and all those goofy ones that we've had. Well, as a, you know, the series evolved. Yeah. So when you watch the first season of 66, it's not that bright day glow look. It's it's kind of, it's more the Batman we know because there are a lot more nighttime scenes. Yeah. There's death. There's some things. Serious. There's some serious to it. So it's not it's not as tongue-in-cheek and overtly comedic as the right. show evolved into. So we we went kind of it's weird because Return of the Cape Crusader embraced that the campier, broader quality of the series that most people remember it for. In this movie, we go back to the the core of the series in season one where it's a little straighter and so I think it works it feels more of a it's kind of like Batman mixed with the untouchables a little bit so oh, it's, really? it has a it does have a darker tinge but there's still humor there's still you know the well, same giving too much weight does Two-Face kill anybody is it that serious because uh, we never saw that in the old show we always like I don't think anybody ever got killed. Mr. Except Freeze the killed a guy. Yeah. And the yeah. girl that uh, Jill St. John Well, think they, there's two gangsters who shot each other in the uh, Zelda the Great episode, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> See, I, I, yeah. Wow. Um, well, I'll just say this. He has guns, okay. and he's definitely trying to kill people. Any rubber bullets. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know. One of, the, one of the things that I think people take for granted about Batman is how wide of a gap his villain gallery has. Everybody remembers the Joker and the Riddler and these really iconic characters, yeah. but there's also some really weird ones that don't get enough maybe attention. Yeah. Why do you think Two-Face 
transcended and became one of the most influential Batman villains. Even though, maybe compared to some of the others, his gimmick is very, and his character is very strange. Um, well, you know, they, I guess in the 70s when they started purposely leaning toward darker themes, he was just kind of money on the table because, you know, he had an inherently darker theme that, you know, kind of got softened through the years. You know, the duality then switched to him just liking stuff that had the number two in it. You know, they softened his character a little bit. And we we acknowledge some of that in in our movie. But um, he's a great character. Um, The thing we used that I guess Betaz kind of started was the friendship aspect between Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent, which really grounds it. One more. Okay. You um, uh, are basically responsible for Adam last last performance as Batman. Um, At what point, uh, I have to ask, when he passed away, was the film totally done? Or was there still, like... Yeah. It was, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was uh, finished. It had been finished about a month. But as far as my work, yeah, uh, he had finished his recording maybe three months prior to that. Okay. So it was weird because I literally felt I had just seen him. And as someone who began his career with Batman '66, really, what, what was that like? That that it must have been an, a, a strange sense of closure and you know full circle. And- yeah. To be honest, I'm still processing it. I it, I kind of have a very slow reaction time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, in a year I may be a mess, but right now it's just uh, it's surreal to me. It hasn't sunk in. So I hope he was happy to have done it. Uh, and I, you know, I think he would be proud of how it turned out. Could there be more Batman 66 animated without him? No, no, no. no. He's, he's done. Oh, he's done. He's done. He's done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Once this was done, I went to the con floor to buy two copies of the conclusion of Batman War of Jokes and Riddles. I was doing the Gotham Press Junket later in the afternoon, and I thought it would be fun to give Cameron B. Kandova and Davi Mazows, who play Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle, copies and tell them, hey, you guys got engaged in the comic. I was surprised at some of the price gouging on the con floor and the rudeness of a few vendors. I mean, like, it was like, hey, so how much is this? And he says, price is marked. And I'm like, okay, so uh, uh, $3.99. He's like, no, 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 no. It's it's uh, it's $5. I'm like, but this says this. Price is marked. And I'm like, okay, but this is how it's m- – and it, it was a legitimate misunderstanding because of how he was marking them. But, like, he was just very aggressive at me and, like – mad as if I was trying to swindle him. I mean, whatever. It was only an extra buck, you know? So I bought the two copies. I then went to a panel um, that author Max Brooks was doing on his Minecraft book. I have a weird history with Minecraft because I've worked with kids for years. In fact, remember when I mentioned doing other conventions without Donovan and Stella? I not only attended Minecon, the Minecraft convention, in 2013, but I also hosted a panel there called A Confused Parent's Guide to Minecraft. This panel was adorable because Max had a bunch of the kids in the audience join him on stage to be official panelists. I saw a similar thing at the Minecraft panel I attended at DragonCon, and I did a similar thing when I was doing Minecon, so I guess that's a Minecraft panel thing. I sat in the back and used my laptop just discreetly to prepare some images for the Gotham Press junket. I like to show cast members comic images of themselves and get reactions. So this panel was a good time for me to just like kind of sit in the back and while I was enjoying the panel, you know, charge my phone, 
prepare things for later that day. Once the panel was over, I walked over to the Hammerstein ballroom for the Gotham panel uh, and press thing. I'm not going to include the audio here because this is already a long show, and I want you guys to go over to the Gotham Chronicle podcast to listen to it. We need the ratings if we're going to get a season five. If the NYCC episode for Gotham Chronicles is not up when you're hearing this, it should be up within the next week um, because I'm editing these both at the same time. I'm not sure how they'll get posted. The Gotham Pressling was fun, and the reporters I sat with were very professional, asked good questions. Usually I wind up kind of carrying the Gotham press tables at other places because I'm more familiar with the material than the other people. But here I had to check myself and bite my tongue because I didn't want to dominate, you know, the table unfairly. And the other reporters were also big fans and had good questions. Like I said, I'll get into the stories on the other show, but I will say that Alexander Sadiq, who plays Ray Al Ghul, is always a pleasure. He remembered a moment he had with our intern Ben during the San Diego Comic-Con press room and recorded a special message for him. One advantage to the location was that once the press room was done, we were able to walk upstairs and watch the panel in seconds. Usually the Gotham or other TV stuff is in the San Diego Hilton, and we have to walk to Hall H or Ballroom 20 to make the panel after the press thing. I usually only do the press rooms for timing reasons, so it was nice to be able to like actually attend the panel. Again, there are some things that are great about New York Comic Con that San Diego doesn't have, and vice versa. Once that was done, I walked back over to the Javits Center for the Batman 25 Years of the Animated Series press event. The convention was over, but the press event was being held after hours in the press floor. The problem was, they wouldn't let me in the building. They said the con was over. I showed them the email from Gary. I insisted that this was a real appointment that was going on upstairs. They said nothing was happening in the building. The con was closed and only exhibitors were allowed back in. I pled my case. They were insistent. I got managers involved. They were not having this. Finally, a guard got the press floor on the walkie-talkie and had them verify my story. I was able to go in, but it wasn't looking good for a while. And this is our last rude reporter story. (laughs) It's sad that there's so many. We were with a very pushy guy at this table. First, he told me to put my phone in airplane mode because the signal was interfering with his dinosaur recorder. It's a fair request, and I oblige, but he should have asked instead of condescendingly ordering me to do it. Plus, in the year 2017, I know I was not the only person at that table with a cell phone, and I doubt that everyone put theirs in airplane mode. Due to the timing issues, the press room walls were actually like literally being disassembled as because the column was closing. We had to combine tables for the very last interview with Kevin Conroy. The stressed out publicity assistant had a choice between, um, you know, changing the layout of our tables or having us all leave before talking to Kevin. She chose to change the layout. The only problem was that Mr. Pushy Reporter did not like the new layout because he didn't think his recorder could get Kevin's voice because it was a few feet away. My recorder and everyone else's had no issues. He saw me thank the publicity girl for coming up with a solution. I thanked her because she was clearly stressed out and she was trying to help us. He told me that I was wrong and this was no solution and he took it upon himself to change the layout and dictated to the poor girl what he was correcting of her mistakes. After the interviews, he turned to me and said, There, 
that wasn't, wasn't this such a better idea? I rolled my eyes and walked away. That's not to say it was a bad press room. Tara Strong, who cosplayed again, she always cosplays at these things. She was like a Tinkerbell type fairy or something this time. She's always a pleasure to see. I even got to do a brief sing along with her. Well worth it. I snuck in a back earlier one request for Stella. And even though Bruce Tim had turned it down days earlier, I had to ask Tara Strong if she would do it. I was surprised to hear that Tara Strong shipped Bruce Wayne and Barbara Gordon. We definitely differ on that one. Between NYCC and SDCC, I've actually seen Bruce Tim more times this year than I've seen my own mother, a fact that we joked about. Anyway, so this press thing will have Kevin Conroy as the voice of Batman, Tara Strong Batgirl, producer Bruce Tim, and writer-producer Alan Burnett. Wow. Bruce Tim, Batman the Animated Series Press Junket. Yeah, I've seen you more than I've seen my own mother. Wow. In the last, like, few months. Well, yeah, that's actually, sad. It's true. It's true. Okay. <laughs> Not really. You don't know my mom. Oh, okay. So, uh, diving in right away. Oh. The bat, this, is, uh, this is the 25th anniversary come up for Batman Animated. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you ever imagine when conceiving the show that it would become the definitive version of Batman to generations? <laughs> uh, no. I mean, uh, we kind of always knew... That we had a lot, but so we had we had a lot of faith in our approach to the show because it just seems kind of like it's not brain surgery. It's like you know we took we kind of cherry picked stuff from the entire um, history of Batman, both from the comics and the you know the the movies and the serials and the TV show, and we thought you know we took things and kind of messed around with them. But for the most part, we stayed really faithful to the spirit of the character and to the spirit of the comics. So um, we had a feeling that would go over really well, and so. Uh, and not only that, but back then we were coming right off of the, um, the the first Tim Burton Batman movie, which you know people have a tendency to forget, but that was huge. It was a mega movie back then. So uh, Batman was just really super hot. So we had I always had a feeling the show was probably going to be a hit, whether it was any good or not. But the fact that it's uh, it really resonated with people um, is yeah, it's, it's awesome. Did it, the style of the show kind of come together? I know you, you did the like the opening of the show first, mm-hmm. Batman. You know, well, kind of, sort of. But that that style sort of evolved like the like the bat noir style. Um. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was a con- combination of lots of different influences. It was um, one of the obvious big influences on the on the look was the uh, the old Fleischer Superman cartoons, um, which were done in the nineteen forties, and I. Um, I think in the back of my head, I always kind of thought that that, that look would have been even more appropriate to, to Batman than Superman. But yeah, the fact that it, it's, you know, I mean, if I'd had my way, I would have set the show actually in 1939 and um, made it a national period piece. But for a lot of reasons, we knew that was not, re- you know, realistic. So, but we definitely tried to um, stay true to that aesthetic, um, both in the uh, the character designs and the, and the background styling and obviously... People seem to like it. There's some yeah. rock paper. This ladies first. Ladies first. That's it. I've heard that, like you know, there's probably like a lot of saying uh, when we when you create something, when you do something. Is there anything that you always wanted to do with Batman, or a few things you wanted to do with Batman that you couldn't uh, do it? <laughs> well, the only thing really that I can think of, and it's not a big thing, it's not anything I lose sleep over, but um, I had an idea to do a bat- an episode where. Um, Batman got turned into a vampire temporarily um, with a character from the comics called Nocturna, a character that Doug Munch um, created. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't get really much past just the idea, you know, but we, we floated it past uh, Fox Kids and they just said, nope, 
<laughs> no vampires. And I said, well, what if he wasn't really a vampire? I said, no vampires. <laughs> Spider-Man so, got to do it. Yeah, but they did a really lame one, right? He had like, <laughs> he had, like the sucker <laughs> hands and stuff. Plasma. <laughs> yeah, but anyhow. Yeah, so, um, so that was fine. You know, it's like if I wasn't going to, you know, do it properly, I wasn't. I didn't want to do it. So, um, but it was that was the only thing really that I could think of. Everything else, we kind of got we kind of got to do what we wanted to do. What was it that happened with Tim Curry as the Joker? Because there's a few different mixed-up memories on that, where, like, um, Tim Curry recently said, oh, I was six, so they had to recast me, but then the kind of accepted story for a while was that his voice was too scary, and then Mark Hamill told another story that, like, nobody was feeling it, so what? Everybody's right. Everybody's right, okay. <laughs> that is that is good. Was there any of, like, the um, C, D list, D list? villains that you always wanted to try to work in there that never got a chance or, or any ideas that you had for villains that kind of reinvent them for the show no we again we kind of got to do what we wanted to do uh you know we knew going in that we were obviously going to do batman and riddler and catwoman and you know those characters but um we were really interested in doing characters that had not gotten a lot of screen time, either in the cartoons or in the in, in the, the movies at that time. So uh, you know, we were really excited to do like you know Two Face and um, reinvent Mister Freeze. You know, to take him from being you know, I mean, I, I again, not a knock on the Adam West version of the of, of the character, but um, but he was always kind of silly, you know, with the ice puns and stuff. And uh, you know, we thought we could make that show that, that character a little deeper. Um, but then also going into into um, Characters that had never really even been done before in any kind of filmic version, like like Rachel Ghoul and uh, um, uh, Scarface. You know, Scarface was a, at that time was like a really recent addition to the to the comics. But I, I always liked that character because he seemed like a classic Batman villain. It was just like such a perfect, you know, kind of twisted take on a weird gimmick. So, um, but yeah, that, we pretty much got to do what we wanted to do. How did the two partners come about? I think just organically. I think the. Probably the first one we did was the Two-Face um, story. And uh, um, I think it just, as we, as uh, Alan and the writers were breaking the story, I think they just realized, oh, hey, well, this is this is too much story to do into one episode. So um, they just kind of just did it as a two-parter, and Fox didn't say, oh, don't do this. So, you know, when, when it came about occasionally with, like, you know, the Robin's Reckoning and, and other episodes, it just seemed like if it seemed appropriate that we just went ahead and did it. So... Do you have a, I know it's, I'm sure you've answered this a thousand times over the last 25 years, but do you have a particular <laughs> episode that stands out as your personal favorite? No. <laughs> I don't. Who's your I mean, kid? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I will say, and this is my stock answer, but it's true, is uh, um, it's not the best episode or the most memorable or the deepest or whatever, but I have tons and tons of fond memories about On Leather Wings because it was the very first episode that we put into production. It was the first time we saw the characters animated. It was the first time we you know, recorded an episode with our wonderful cast. First time I heard Shirley Walker's amazing music. It all kind of came together. And I think it's a really solid episode. It kind of like... You know, it, it kind of planted the flag. It kind of did exactly what I intended to do with the show. It was it was a little bit spooky. It was a little bit fun. It was a little bit funny, and it had a lot of uh, adventure and um, and didn't talk down to kids. So you know, it was kind of like you know, it, when we first saw the episode. Because here's the thing: when we were kind of doing a lot of things that at the time were revolutionary in terms of how to style an animated show. 
you know, with like you know, painting the you know the backgrounds on black paper and the the, the kind of stylized look of the characters. Um, we had no idea if it was really going to work or not. So when we got the first episode of uh, you know um, on Leather Wings back from um, Japan. It was kind of like, oh, thank God, it actually works. <laughs> it's like this is this is going to be good. So um, I did want to just kind of circle back um, from something I didn't have a chance to ask earlier in this weekend. Okay. Um, several months back, there was a um, a story that came out about uh, surveys that Warner Brothers was sending out saying, "Would you like to see animated versions of?" Constantine or this and Watchmen was in Okay. Um, is that something that uh, those type of marketing surveys anything they ever consult with you guys on or do you float some titles to them and then they put those in it's kind of both (laughs) okay it's kind of both Uh, they will let us know certain times you know every now and then well here's the thing we meet with the home video people and with DC Comics you know several times a year to talk about future projects Mm -hmm. and we'll all sit in a big room together and throw out ideas of things that we want to do and things that maybe they would like us to do and you know sometimes we'll throw out a a title and they'll say oh yeah that tested really well Mm -hmm. you know so that it's like Afterlife yeah it's it's all which struck me as so so The Fox Kids uh, years, that's what a lot of people remember when they think of the series and their favorite episodes. But the Kids WB years, that doesn't get as much, you know, discussion or play. Do you have any favorite moments from that or, you know, anything that you want to say about that trans? <laughs> oh, I think you got uh, one. Well, uh, it, it's it, just because it was one of the chances, one of the times where we actually pulled one over on the home video people or the, or the broadcast standards and practices people. Uh, I mean, it's, an epi- it's a really good episode anyways, but Over the Edge is one of my favorites of that run. Um, Absolutely. Uh, there's just it's it's just a really good. Even though it's a dream, and even though it's all a dream, and that's kind of a, a, a cheat. I think the episode kind of earns, you know, the, that cheat. So by the time you get to the end of it, you don't go, "Oh, it was just all a dream," because we're telling you pretty much from the beginning. It's like the minute the scarecrow shows up, it's like, "Oh, you, you kind of know it's going to be." Yeah. A dream. But uh, I just thought that was a really really good episode, um, and that that whole bit where we got to kill Batgirl. You know that was that was kind of fun to have, you know kind of play with people's emotions you know and I know we fridged her I know it's awful but, but yeah anyhow is there anybody who came on to do voice a voice to voice a character that surprised you when you heard them well Mark I mean Mark Hamill was uh, you know I never in a million years would I have thought to cast Mark Hamill as the Joker but when we did. Uh, come to the realization that we should probably recast the part um, Mark had already told us earlier uh, since he, he was in that, that Mr. Freeze episode that he really wanted to play one of the one of the big villains and uh, so we remember that and brought him back in to, uh, to audition for the Joker and uh, it, it was just it was not even it wasn't even anybody he was even close I mean he was just he just nailed it right right away it was just like wow okay great so that was a big surprise I mean it's, I, when I first time I heard that voice coming out of him it was like Wow, Luke Skywalker! <laughs> Holy cow! Um, but yeah, that was probably the most obvious one. All right, thank we're you. Gonna, we're gonna rotate. All right, thank, thank you guys. You so much. Thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Have a great trip home. Yeah, yeah, uh, we've done this before. <laughs> so. Afternoon, evening. Hey, I've lost track. So here, here, so I'm here for the 25th anniversary. Of- Alan, um, so, uh, Alan Burnett, I think. Because you appeared in animated. Yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> the first appearance of Harley and me. <laughs> it was uh, what was the name of the show? It was I know you were one of the Joker's victims. Uh, Joker, Joker's favorite. Joker's favorite. Yeah. That's right. And uh, they did a number on it. it was <laughs> but it's fun. I've got three cells. 
in my, in my office of me getting uh, looking up at the Joker who's it's going to do something horrible to me. So, so I'm just going to dive in if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so looking back 25 years on, did you ever imagine while producing the show in the beginning that this would become such a big hit and sort of become the iconic version of Batman for generations? Not really, but I, I'll tell you the truth. I, I thought it would be a popular show. I thought there was just a craving for a show like this. Yeah. And it was, it was in me, I know. And you could just... And people wanted wanted a serious superhero show and uh, you know Tim Burton proved that what did that movie make like 54 million the first weekend which is now you know years ago that was something Mm -hmm. so um, anyways uh, I knew it was going to be popular I didn't know it would be this lasting what do you think is like the most uh, powerful duo in the uh, DC uh, uh, animated series universe in the, the, the most popular, Batman and Robin, are you saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah that works. <laughs> yeah, that would work. I think the new Robin, Damien, is a lot of fun, you know? So, um, so yeah, they're, they're the dynamic duo. Those guys. <laughs> Forever. Thank you. We mentioned, was it fun to kind of bring in the characters and craft those stories? I mean, did you have inspiration from the comics, or did you kind of go your own path? No, we really were taken from the comics. Uh, when I was starting, uh, they flew me to New York, and they I had a meeting with DC. It was me, uh, Marty Pasco, was one of my story editors, and um, Paul Levitz, who was, the, I believe, the vice president of DC at the time. And we got all the comic books, all of the comic books, uh, all the Detective and Batman comic books from 1955 on. And we went through them for two days. And Paul Lovitz, who has uh, uh, such incredible knowledge and a photographic memory, I guess, he was going, he used to explain all the stories in a nutshell. And a lot of them I recognized because they would be, you know, by 1958 I was reading these things. So, um, so we, we took the, what we loved from the comic books. But we started with comic books. And if we could do a story that was a direct lift from the comic books, we would do it. If it was a good story. Laughing Fish, for example. The only difference is that uh, nobody dies in the laughing... In our Laughing Fish, they just go into strange comas. But, uh, but Even the animals. Even yeah. the animals, yes. So, anyway, so that's... We, we really went back to uh, the, the original stuff. Was there anything off-limits that DC didn't want put into a cartoon from the Batman source material? I don't remember anything, really. I'm trying to think. There's no, there was really nothing. They were with us 100%. Romantically, who do you think Batman should belong with? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> probably Catwoman, really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, he, he does not work well with uh, a love interest. There's something about him. When I began uh, doing the show, uh, the uh, story editor at the time, I, we were talking about his sex life. He says, he's a monk. He doesn't, he, he's not a virgin, but he's done with it. And now he's on to Batman. And, and, uh, and I, I actually think 
that's not a bad way to go. So, but we gave him a couple of girlfriends during the during the run, and we did the movie, uh, which was uh, a story based on uh, based on his first love. So. The kids WB years often get overlooked when people talk about you know the show and their favorite episodes. Do you have any memories of that transition going from Fox Kids to Kids WB and favorite episodes or production stories from that time? Um, kids WB. I just remember the Kids WB. They wanted to do. They wanted Batman to. The original Batman had a sort of nine to fourteen-year-old audience, and we started when we started doing Kids WB. They really wanted to bring it down to a six to eleven-year-old audience, and I, and at one point they saw that we weren't doing that. We just couldn't do that. We just you know we were in a, this. We couldn't change it, and so they said, "Well, let's make a younger Batman," and so we ended up doing Batman Beyond. And they thought they were going to get from the same crew a, uh, a 6 to 11-year-old show. But they didn't. <laughs> and so that never went for 65 episodes. I think it went for 54, 52, something like that. But uh, it was a lesson. That if you really want to change a show, start anew with new people. Because the old guys are still in that frame of mind. Um, you briefly mentioned uh, Mask of the Phantasm. Um, that originally had started off as direct video as a direct video project. Yeah. Yeah. At what point did it become theatrical, and what did that cha- uh, decision entail for changes? There, there was an executive came over to see what we were doing, mm-hmm. and Eric Radomski was one of the producers. Had made the uh, opening title credits, which was essentially was a, a trip through Gotham City in CG, mm-hmm. which was new at the time, so it was pretty striking. And the guy said, hey, why don't we make a movie out of this? <laughs> and we said, okay. We, you know, who are we to tell them that that's the only piece of CG in the whole thing? <laughs> so um, that's how it became a movie. It wasn't a success as a movie, but it, it, the movie, I, having it in theaters first was a, a great pleasure for me because I, I would go and watch the audience. But, uh, 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 but the... Uh, but it, I mean, it's lasted. That that thing has lasted. People still refer to it. Do you have over all the years that you've been able to sort of look back on the series a favorite villain that stands out to you as like something you personally prefer? Oh, well, the Joker I love. So um, of course, uh, I like Two Face very much. I like I tend to like split personality. So I like I like uh, the ventriloquist uh, too. And uh, but there's something in all of them. And. Uh, and as much as I love Two-Face, I think he's a pretty limited character. So, uh, coming up with stories for him aren't, aren't easy. Coming up with stories for um, Riddler aren't easy, too. I think we finally got a good Riddler story in the, at the, at toward the end because we decided we were going to do visual cues instead of the usual riddles, words. That slows, that slows everything down. Have figuring it out with words. So. <laughs> the voice casting on the series was amazing. You got a lot of good actors come through. Yes, it was Andrea Romano. Yes. Who recently retired? She did it, and uh, and I would come into the studio and see all these actors that I knew from my childhood, from from the sixties <laughs> and even fifties sometime. And uh, I'm a big Hitchcock fan, mm. and she brought in uh, she brought in. Uh, 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 John Vernon, 
And he, she brought in at one time Tippy Hedren. That's right. And uh, I, uh, that that hitch. Roscoe Lee Brown, she brought him. He was in um, in uh, Topaz. Yes, and, yes, yes. Yes. So uh, whenever I got one of uh, a Hitchcock-related uh, actor, it was always fun for me. So. If Adam West, they partnered him with Batman in a very clever way. That yeah. was very clever. Well, Adam West, he was she, he was my first Batman because he was in the last two ep- episodes of Super Friends, last two years of Super Friends, and. Uh, so, and he was, he, everybody loves Adam West. They may not love the campiness of the show, but they love Adam West. And we were starting to talk about how we would feature him, I think. And somehow, I don't know how the story formulated, but he became the great ghost. And he was, we didn't know if we could get him, and we got him. And uh, I think he appreciated uh, all the love that was coming to him that day of recording. So uh, that's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, mine too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good trip home. Tara Strong. San Diego and now here in New York. Yeah, you're following me. I am following. <laughs> so do you have any favorite Batgirl moments? Yes, I loved uh, Girls Night Out. That was really fun. Because at that time there weren't that many kick-ass chick superhero roles so to save the day with Supergirl was pretty cool what was it like to uh, you remember the audition and how it all worked yeah I remember uh, I just moved from Toronto um, to Los Angeles and I had that audition it was a really scary uh, casting room because there were a lot of well-known celebrities in that room as well as voiceover legends and um, I'd collected Batgirl's little kid, so like I really wanted it. <laughs> and then you know, go in the room with Andrea Romano and Bruce Tim, and you're like so intimidated because they're just so damn smart. And um, I just remember feeling like being in that moment and portraying her as as real as I could. And when I got the phone call, my agent left on my machine. He's like, "Oh my God, you're her. You're the girl that's the Bat. You're Batgirl." And I was like, "Oh my God!" It was so exciting. <laughs> I pinched myself then, and I still do every time I get to play her. Yeah. Uh, what's one story that you've always wanted to play play through? I think it'd be really fun to explore Oracle. Yeah. yeah, just take her to all different kinds of levels, and I think that'd be cool. Like a Birds of Prey? I mean, did you guys see that Huntress episode that I did with the musical one? Yeah, I love that one. (laughs) No one does it better than the birds. You're not backing me up? Yeah, yes. I just had to do it with Tara Strong. My Comic-Con's complete. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. Uh, but with the, um, how'd you like playing on the grave in the bold? It was so much fun. What was your favorite like aspect on there? I can't even say. It's like I said, every single day I'd pinch myself. I mean, I'm working beside Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy, and you're like, what's happening right now? It's just a magical experience, really. And uh, like uh, working uh, like with dark and comedy, like what's your favorite between the two? Like, well, when it comes to um, superhero world, I really prefer the dark. I don't like it too silly or cartoony, which is another reason I really loved working on this series because it really was dark. And then the comedy came out of 
sort of unexpected moments in like a real life experience would happen. So it wasn't like a forced comedy. It was like a sort of tongue in cheek, and I, I loved that. Uh, do you have any particular favorite memories from working on the show, or any moments that stand out to you as like you know something really unique? Well, I mean, every day was like that. It was like every day I would pinch myself. Um, I sort of have a funny moment. Brian Stokes Mitchell came in for an episode, and I didn't know who he was. And he asked if I wanted to go see his show. I said, sure. <laughs> and he gave me two tickets, and me and my boyfriend at the time had, like, front row center. I'm like, oh, this kid's got some pull. <laughs> and it was ragtime, which I was like, oh, my God, this guy is brilliant. So that was probably the silliest moment. <laughs> it was nice to see Batgirl kind of having a relationship with, with Commissioner Gordon, her dad. That was kind yeah. of neat to... You guys played that really well. Yeah, cool. we had a good time. The scene where you almost come out to him and he stops you, that was um, at the end of Over the Edge. That was uh -huh. a very good episode. Yeah, I should really go back and rewatch everything. It's been a while, but it was really special. Who do you think makes like a good like fighting partner next to uh, Batgirl, other than Batman and Robin? Supergirl. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> when you did Killing Joke, there's that little... Um, thing of you and Batman kind of getting together and that's alluded to in Batman Beyond although you weren't Barbara by then And but in Mystery of the Batwoman you do have that flirty phone call. What do you think about you know pairing Barbara and Bruce as opposed to Barbara and Dick? I really love The Killing Joke and I love that pairing. I just thought it was really strong and a bold choice and um, she's an adult now and they're not related <laughs> and, you know people get mad because they think like that's like your dad and it's like no it's not <laughs> um and i thought it was well shot like it wasn't gratuitous and um a lot of people wanted it even though they pretend they they were disgusted by it they wanted that so i don't feel even a little bit bad <laughs> recently in uh, justice league uh, total action the new series you got to do batman as a child oh mm -hmm. how was how was that did you pull from kevin's performance totally yeah totally i just imagined him as a little boy copied a lot of his sort of inclinations and how he says things and where his mind is the cool thing is playing back originally allowed you to voice other characters like Harley and yeah. you really got to kind of expand into the universe a little bit. Really? It's really amazing. All the characters I've played, it's like everyone's like this iconic role that I just keep pinching myself over. It's so much fun. And thankfully the fans have been accepting and loving it. So You can play dark, you can play light. Yeah. It's, it's fun. I know you must get this question often, but like, uh, what's one of your... Uh, uh, favorite episodes from the animated series. Um, what was the one where she dies? What was that one called? Over, over the edge. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. You love that dying. Was really cool. I love dying. Yeah, that was fun. That was cool. That was trippy. Uh, how did it like help? Uh, like all these characters, like they're so deep and strong and meaningful. Uh, how did it help you develop to grow as a wonderful, beautiful woman you are? Well, I think it's sort of the same as if I were doing. Um, an on-camera show or a theater like you really become these characters and so I've really grown up with Batgirl and when I started you know I just moved here from LA so um, obviously from now to the killing joke has been a tremendous amount of growth and I've just kind of grown up with her. For the Batman animated series uh, you came on as Batgirl and it sort of 
you have a lot of say in sort of how she became as a character, or did you like the direction of the character, or did you sort of just come in to feel part of it? I think I came in to become Batgirl and sort of give as much of myself, in essence, to her, but I have to give kudos to the storytellers. Um, the writing on that show was so brilliant. Um, we didn't really improvise a lot uh, or um, give our ideas in terms of where the characters should go, but Andrea Romano is such an actor's director that she really trusted um, our integrity and allowed us to be organic with our choices, so it was probably a collaborative effort. Your performances always seem to have like a very easy conversational with the other character. Were you still recording singularly though, or were you two people in the booth and you were having that ability to have that back and forth? Uh, back then, we uh, we did full record, full cast record, which was okay. great because so like when you're radio. yeah, when you're playing off another actor, it makes a difference, and mm -hmm. how you respond to them is a lot more organic. I I prefer to do it that way. Has that changed now? Is that yeah? That happens anymore? less. Depends on the show. Some shows I still do full cast records, and some it's just just you. <laughs> Will we be seeing you become Batgirl again? Because we have a lot of these original animated DC movies coming out, mm -hmm. so lots of opportunities. Are we gonna? See? I hope so. <laughs> Batgirl year one. We've been waiting for that one. I'm hoping for it. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. 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 If uh, the Joker was Batman's best friend, what do you think would be his favorite, uh, sorry, his best aspect of uh, the friendship between them? I think that they are, I think that Batman and Joker are yin and yang of each other. I don't think one would exist without the other. Joker would not be the Joker we know if it wasn't for the Batman to play off of him. And Batman wouldn't be the Batman we know if he didn't have the Joker to play off. You know, they, they just, they define each other in so many ways. So I can't imagine either one without the other. They wouldn't be the same people. Is there a... Do you, do you remember the, the first recording session when you were all together doing the episode, the first Joker episode? The first Joker episode? Yeah. I do. Because I knew Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, which most people knew him as. And I thought, the Joker? <laughs> That's kind of odd. Mark Hamill? And then he came in and just physically became this madman. I mean, I wish the audience could see him the way I see him in the recording studio because he's, his face transforms. It's very rubbery, and he he just you know devours the microphone. Um, it's a very kind of an intimidating presence to be with. Uh, he's a lot of fun, and he's a theater actor, and I'm a theater actor, and we like to play off of each other. Uh, he's very generous. Um, he genuinely wants me to be good uh, because he knows the better I am, the more I'll have to give him and the better he'll be. And I genuinely like when he's good. I want him to be good because I know that it gives me more. So there's a, there's a, real, uh, there's a real generosity when we're in the booth together that I just love. Does that Star Wars No. No, he's good about that. He never tells us anything. 
is there a Batman story that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? I know for a long time, man, so that was Killing Joke, but now that that's, you know, behind us in the rearview mirror, you know, what is your... Well, there are two wonderful ones, The Death in the Family and Hush. Those are two hot stories, and I would hope that they would be done, and I'd hope that I'd be involved in them. Any interest in doing uh, Kingdom Come? I don't know that one. Sorry. It's another one for me to read. <laughs> as, a, as someone who assumably has been reading Batman comics for at least the last 25 years, uh, do you have a favorite Robin? Um, of, of the voice actors, you mean? No, of the, the characters. Oh, the Tim Drake? Uh, Robin, yeah. yeah. I guess Tim Drake, definitely. How's your relation with uh, Lawrence Lester just to make uh, Batman and Robin work? Well, Lauren, like, like, um, um, I'm having these blank moments today. It's so weird. <laughs> it's Sunday night, man. Man, I am so tired. Lauren is also one of these very, very generous actors that is just very easy to work with. Um, Andrea, you know, a lot of that has to do with Andrea Romano, the casting. She doesn't tend to bring people in who don't play well together. So you know when you're going into an Andrea booking that you're going to get very generous people. And Lauren does a lot of work with Andrea. And, and so he's like that. So we've been working together for 25 years. We have a great relationship. Was there ever a moment while you were doing a recording that really sticks out to you to this day? When I was recording with with anybody? Yes, with anybody. One of my favorite recording moments was doing uh, Mask of the Phantasm and uh, the scene at the grave of the parents. Um, because it had to be very emotional, it had to be very um, honest. And Andrea had me do it a number of times. And each time I kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper and she knew what I was doing I was getting and then they finally got to a point where she said perfect that's perfect we got it and afterwards I said boy that was like an acting class that was like an acting class in there that was just to be given that opportunity to, to explore an emotional range like that um, I loved I loved her actors like challenges and that was a challenging one. What was your reaction when you found out that Mask of the Phantasm was going from uh, direct-to-video to uh, a big screen production? I was amazed and ecstatic and pleased because the first time I saw any footage of Batman early on in 92, you know, we do the recordings first and they're sent off to the artists. Then they come back six months later and you do a process called ADR, where you link up the sound with the visual and you kind of clean up the soundtrack a little bit. So the first time you see any physical footage for any particular episode is during ADR. Well, in the first six months of the show, we hadn't done any ADR yet because no art had come back from the artists yet. So we were recording kind of into our imaginations. We, we had sketches we were working to, but we hadn't actually seen any shows, any footage. So the first time I saw footage was for On Leather Wings, the first episode. And I'm sitting there in the studio, and this, and it, you know, a, an ADR studio is a full screen, it's a big screen, so it's like a movie screen, sort of a smaller version, with a 
beautiful sound system and this the sound system comes up and these brilliant lights come on and I looked over at the technicians and I said did you have a clue that this is what we were working on I said I had no idea this is unbelievable it was so beautiful so when they said that Mask of the Phantasm was going to be a feature film I just knew it was going to be that kind of experience that kind of all encompassing big beautiful because they did this show like a feature you know it wasn't ever done like a a small screen project it was always done like a big screen project it just happened to be marketed on a small screen did you ever right, we, sorry we have to stop it there sorry thank you thank guys. you thank, thank you guys. Thank you. congratulations on you. thank you by the way, I love Bruce Tim making fun of Morbius from the 90s Spider-Man animated series. That was unexpected bonus. I love that show, but it's so much fun to make fun of. Once this was all done, I hoofed it to the airport. The press thing was late, and the schedule was very close to my flight. I turned out to be rushing for nothing since my flight was delayed for hours. That's okay. I had a great time, and I was in no rush to return to Florida. So like Stella does, I'll do highs and lows. My high was being in New York City, experiencing the culture that it entails, the subway, pizzerias, different landmarks. But if I had to do a con-related high, I'd say that the Gotham press thing is always fun. Um, I see the cast. This was my third time seeing the cast within like a three-month period because I interviewed them in July at Comic-Con, then September at um, Tribeca Film Festival, and, uh, and now here. So, you know, we, we have a good rapport. The low is having to fight my way into the last press event on Sunday. That was very stressful, and I was questioning if I was going to be able to get in. Just having to, like, insist to them, this is an appointment, here's the email, here's this. And they were just very aggressively, no, 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 no. Lots of comparisons to San Diego here, and unfortunately the comparisons are unavoidable given my history with the convention. I did prefer the setting. I love visiting New York. I'm glad the schedule was lighter. It was a great uh, switch from San Diego, but I did miss my friends. Um, This was a good time, though. Um, I don't, I mean, if I'm going to say which one I like better, I'm definitely more of a San Diego Comic-Con guy, but there is things that San Diego could learn from here. I would definitely recommend New York Comic-Con, and I'll definitely try and go again. My life is so frantic, it's hard to tell what my situation will be in October 2018, but I would certainly like to return. Explaining the musical, uh, day cues like Stella does, the New York City song at the beginning was just to kind of, you know, set the stage and everything like that here. No grand inside joke there about Oliver and company. That's what it's from. It's from Disney's Oliver and uh, company. Friday's song was music from the Sega Genesis Jurassic Park game, which Gerard and I spent hours playing and had lots of laughs. And Saturday's song was another Jurassic Park reference, um, even though it's Pocahontas. Why? Because Gerard and I were stuck on this river ride level for hours, and I kept on singing Pocahontas's Just Around the River Bend. Sunday song is Birds of Prey in honor of the sing-along Tara Strong and I did. Not as eventful as Stella's Diaries, but nonetheless, thank you all for joining me and revisiting my New York memories. Until next time, this is Josh, and you've been listening to the New York Comic Con Batman Universe Diaries. Enigma sent you the Edward Enigma. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> my once friend Oswald, now my foe. It's me, Ed, just so you know It's time we meet, I think you'll agree You'll find me where the earth meets the sky Where water flows and birds fly by At dusk we'll meet, I'll see you there We'll settle things, unless you're scared
What the hell was that? We should torture him. 